Empire, A New History of the World, The Rise and Fall of the Greatest Civilizations, by Paul Strathern. Introduction Three Telling Tales of Empire At the turn of the 15th century, China was by some degree the most advanced civilization on earth. This was the land, tales of whose wonders Marco Polo had earlier brought back to Europe. In 1405, Zhu Di, third emperor of the Ming dynasty, ordered Admiral Zheng He to set sail from China with his fleet to explore the oceans of the world. Admiral Zheng He had been in the service of the Emperor Zhu Di since he had been captured as an adolescent and castrated according to contemporary custom. Zheng He had consequently risen through the ranks to become a man of mighty stature, both politically and physically. Eyewitness reports describe him as being almost seven feet tall and nearly five feet in girth. The fleet he commanded was of even more impressive proportions. It contained over 300 large ocean-going wooden-sailed junks manned by more than 28,000 men. The Admiral's treasure ship, a replica of which can be seen in Nanjing today, was 450 feet long. No comparable fleet would put to sea for over four centuries until the First World War. Zheng He and his fleet undertook six voyages between 1405 and 1424, during the course of which he travelled from Vietnam to Indonesia, from Burma, India and Ceylon, to the Persian Gulf, and up the Red Sea to Jeddah, then around the Horn of Africa, down as far south as Kenya. Precise records of these six voyages are no longer extant, but it seems likely that in the course of his travels, Zheng He must have covered a distance equivalent to circumnavigating the globe twice over. Amongst the many wonders that he transported back to China was a giraffe from Somalia. Its arrival in China caused a sensation, confirming the existence of the legendary Chinese Chilin, which in the 6th century BC had foretold the arrival of a king without a throne, later taken to be the philosopher Confucius, whose ideas would guide China through two millennia. In 1430, when Zheng He was in his 60th year, he was ordered to undertake a seventh voyage and to proceed all the way to the end of the earth. This voyage would take three years, extend far into legend, and be a voyage from which he would never return. According to the controversial claims of naval historian Gavin Menzies, this voyage took Zheng He around the Cape of Good Hope to West Africa, from whence he crossed the Atlantic to America and rounded Cape Horn, sailing as far north as California. One admiral, who separated from Zheng He's main fleet, is said to have reached Greenland and returned to China by way of northern Siberia, a passage that is likely to have remained open due to the after-effects of the medieval warm period. Another admiral is said to have sailed as far as Australia, New Zealand and the first drift ice of Antarctica. Evidence for Gavin Menzies' claims are, according to Harvard historian Niall Ferguson, at best circumstantial and at worst non-existent. Despite this, tantalising anomalies appear to remain in the form of Chinese DNA discovered amongst Venezuelan native tribes, a number of medieval Chinese anchors found off the California coast, as well as some surprisingly prescient coastal features that appeared on maps drawn prior to information received from 15th-century European explorers.
Confirmation that Menzi's amazing claims concerning Zheng He's legendary seventh expedition were taken seriously in some quarters emerged when the Chinese President Hu Jintao addressed the Australian Parliament in 2003 and asserted that the Chinese had discovered Australia three centuries before Captain Cook. This has now seemingly become official Chinese history. In the years following Admiral Zheng He's death in India in 1433. New Confucian ministers had risen to power at court, who were hostile to commerce and to all things foreign. A series of imperial hygiene decrees, sea bans, were issued, forbidding Chinese ships from sailing to foreign nations. Official records of Zheng He's voyages were destroyed, and the imperial fleet was confined to port, where it soon fell into disrepair. These decrees were initially proclaimed as a measure against Japanese pirates, but had the unintended consequence of isolating China from the outside world. The progressive, outgoing Ming civilization began to ossify, and one of the greatest eras of orderly government and social stability in human history fell into decline. Our second telling tale concerning the ethos and legacy of empire happens to take place some three centuries later, just as Chinese isolation was beginning to be disturbed by the arrival of European traders such as the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British. By now, the British were beginning to impose their colonial administration on India. An exemplary instance of this took place in 1770, when the northern province of Bihar was devastated by one of its recurrent famines. Consequently, the de facto ruler of British India, Warren Hastings, ordered the construction of what became known as the Granary of Patna. Captain John Garstin, an engineer in the East India Company Army, was ordered to erect a building for the perpetual prevention of famine in the province. The result was a highly imaginative edifice, which the locals named the Golgar, the Roundhouse. Almost 100 feet tall and nearly 500 feet in circumference at ground level, it dominated the surrounding Indian dwellings. Its summit providing views over the city of Patna to the Ganges, sacred river of the Hindus. Its dome-like structure would be recognized by the local population as resembling both a Buddhist stupa and the dome of an Islamic mosque. Ascending around the dome was a spiral staircase for the use of Indian bearers carrying sacks of grain to be emptied through the hole in the top of the dome, gradually filling the internal hemisphere with sufficient grain to provide for any future famines. The Golgo would be judged to be touched with the machismo of the imperial presence, the most famous of the practical structures of the Raj. Captain Garstin ordered an inscription on the side of his architectural masterpiece, which announced that it was first filled and publicly closed by. This proclamation remained forever incomplete. According to the visiting Victorian poet Emily Eden, the Golgo was found to be useless. When I visited Patna and was shown this celebrated structure still in good condition, almost two centuries after its completion, I was informed of the reason for its redundancy. According to my guide, the door in the base of the dome, through which the grain should have poured out once it was filled, had in fact been constructed so that it only opened inwards. Some modern sources dispute this significant detail, but when I visited Patna, I could find no one who was not adamant concerning the veracity of this incompetence and consequent suffering inflicted by the British. Such views may have been reinforced by the fact that many I spoke to were of sufficient age for the last Bihar famine of 1966-67 to have been more than a folk memory.
Our third tale of empire brings us into the modern times, when, as we shall see, many had good reason to believe that this would be the era of humanity's last empires. The world's two great empires appeared to be hell bent upon destroying the world itself. In 1945, the United States Manhattan Project under Robert Oppenheimer was in a race to complete the world's first atomic bomb. Many of the scientists working under Oppenheimer at the remote Los Alamos site in the New Mexico desert had fled Germany as a result of the Nazi decrees against the Jews and were referred to ironically as Hitler's gift to the Western Allies. Before Oppenheimer undertook the first bomb test, some of his leading scientists, most notably the Hungarian Jewish Edward Teller, raised the possibility that a nuclear explosion might ignite the atmosphere and incinerate all life on Earth. Oppenheimer assigned the head of his theoretical physics department, the German Jewish Hans Bethe, to calculate the likelihood of this taking place. Although the secret report he and Teller eventually produced claimed that such a conflagration was not possible, they did nonetheless feel constrained to add. However, the complexity of the argument and the absence of satisfactory experimental foundations makes further work on the subject highly desirable. The detonation of the first atomic bomb went ahead, nonetheless. The same question arose again in 1952, prior to the detonation of the first hydrogen bomb. This time, masterminded by Teller himself. Once again, after meticulous calculations, it was concluded that the possibility of atmospheric ignition was negligible. The first hydrogen bomb was duly tested. It immediately became apparent that not all the meticulous calculations concerning this bomb had been correct. Or even approximately correct, the detonation itself proved to be two and a half times more powerful than the maths had predicted. Within a few years, struggle between the two great empires competing for global domination, the United States and the Soviet Union, had achieved reductio ad absurdum. Both had accumulated nuclear arsenals capable of destroying the world several times over. In 1962, their rivalry came to a head with the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was essentially an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation between the USA and the USSR, where the Soviets blinked first and Armageddon was narrowly averted. According to nuclear historian Alex Wellerstein, writing several decades later, the Cuban crisis was even more dangerous than most people realized at the time, and more dangerous than most people know now. This was but one of several near accidents in which one of the two great modern empires might have destroyed the world rather than accept defeat. Perhaps the best documented incident concerns the man who saved the world. On the sixth of September, nineteen eighty-three, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was the duty officer in charge of the Serpukov fifteen nuclear early warning bunker outside Moscow. Just after midnight, one of his computers relayed information from a Soviet satellite that had detected an inbound American intercontinental ballistic missile. In keeping with the deterrent policy of mutually assured destruction adopted by both the USA and the USSR at the time, Petrov should immediately have launched a massive simultaneous nuclear counterattack. Instead, he decided that the computer reading must be an error, and disobeyed his orders on the grounds that if the U.S. were to launch a first strike attack against the Soviet Union, it would obviously involve more than one single missile. Soon, his computers indicated four more incoming missiles. Although Petrov had no means of verifying his hunch, he once again decided that these two were the result of a computer error—simply a remarkable coincidence. Once again, he desisted from launching a counterattack.
according to later reports on this incident. It was subsequently determined that the false alarms were caused by a rare alignment of sunlight on high-altitude clouds and the satellite's orbits, an error later corrected by cross-referencing a geostationary satellite. Each of these three tales illuminates aspects in the creation of empire, the sense of adventure, the administration involved, as well as the dogged pursuit and exercise of sheer power. And as we have seen, such achievements frequently incorporate elements of their own self-destruction, to say nothing of any ensuing imaginative distortion of the facts concerned. The multiplicity of synchronized organization that goes into the creation and function of a great empire is certainly humanity's most complex achievement, responsible for much of our formative historical evolution. Yet, ironically, the annals of empire are frequently more concerned with ethos than historical record. Our impression of empire, whether informed or jingoistic, remains ambiguous to this day, as reflected in the following two brief images from modern culture. In Franz Kafka's short story *In the Penal Colony*, a colonial officer shows a visitor the ingenious machine which has been developed by his master. Anyone found guilty of an offence is strapped into the machine, which then slowly and excruciatingly inscribes upon his body the law that he has broken, torturing him to death in the process. The colonial officer is so besotted with this machine that he insists upon personally demonstrating it to his visitor. Having set the machine to inscribe the words "Be just," he places himself inside it. Unfortunately, the machine has fallen into disrepair, so that instead of carrying out its intricate operation, it goes out of control and begins to mutilate the officer, inflicting upon him an excruciating death. It is not difficult to interpret this enigmatic imperial image in all manner of ways, few of them optimistic. The second image is equally paradoxical, if a little less excruciating. This comes from the film Monty Python's Life of Brian. In one scene, the leader of the People's Front of Judea, played by John Cleese, holds a clandestine meeting where he delivers a speech urging the party faithful to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire. He ends by demanding rhetorically, "What have the Romans ever done for us?" One by one, the party members come up with unsolicited suggestions, until eventually their leader is forced to exclaim exasperatedly, "All right, all right, but apart from better sanitation and medicine, and education and irrigation, and public health and roads, and a fresh water system, and baths and public order, what have the Romans done for us?" These three tales of empire and the ensuing two images may be viewed as paradigms of the wider generality of empire itself, and how we have come to regard it. All of which brings us to the thorny topic of what precisely constitutes an empire. What is its definition? Does this remain the same throughout world history? And indeed, what is the effect on world history of such entities? The Oxford English Dictionary definition of an empire is an extensive territory. Especially an aggregate of many separate states, under the sway of an emperor or supreme ruler, also an aggregate of separate territories ruled over by a sovereign state. Here we have but a basic framework. Inevitably, over the centuries, this will take on different guises, not all of which will involve what we would regard as progressive elements of evolution. As indicated earlier, a description of empire must be deemed to subsume such elements as the spirit of adventure, administration, and power, initially in the form of war. Indeed, war and consequent subjugation of alien people would seem to be the formative impulse from which empire develops. 
Civilizing aspects frequently, but not invariably, follow. It seems no accident that civilization, in its Western form, progressed across the globe more rapidly than ever before during the century which saw the first two world wars, followed by the threat of a third. On the other hand, since the last decades of that century and well into this one, the world has seen no major wars on that previous scale, while progress. Especially in the form of the IT revolution and all that entails, has transformed the world as never before. Bearing in mind such multifarious aspects of empire, we can now begin to trace the history of the world as it is reflected in ten supreme examples of this phenomenon. Chapter one: The Akkadian Empire. Around five thousand years ago. Settled agricultural communities of the Late Bronze Age began to coalesce into recognizable, socially organized civilizations in three distinct regions of the globe. The earliest of these emerged prior to 3000 BC in the Fertile Crescent, which stretches in a hoop from Upper Egypt along the eastern Mediterranean coast and down the Tigris-Euphrates Valley to the Persian Gulf. Similar developments would occur around 2500 BC in the Indus Valley. Loosely modern Pakistan, and half a millennium later, along the Yellow River in China. Central to all these regions are great rivers, which irrigate the land and are prone to flooding. Herodotus, the father of history, writing in the fifth century BC, offers one of the earliest descriptions. During the flooding of the Nile, only the towns are visible, rising above the surface of the water like the scattered islands of the Aegean Sea. While the inundation continues. Boats no longer keep to the channels and rivers, but sail across the fields and plains. In distant history, such an inundation had evidently become a catastrophic deluge, carrying away all in its path. Thus, it comes as little surprise that the early mythology of each of these separate civilizations speaks of a great flood which God caused to cover the earth, with only a chosen few surviving. In the biblical version, it is Noah and his family who survive, along with their ark, which contained two and two of all flesh, including every beast and all the cattle, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every fowl and every bird. When the flood subsided, Noah's ark is said to have run aground on Mount Ararat, which is located in the far east of modern Turkey, close to the borders with Armenia and Iran, at the very upper reaches of the Euphrates River basin. At the opposite ends of the Fertile Crescent, in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, loosely modern Iraq, two distinct civilizations began to develop. In Egypt, the so-called Old Kingdom began in 2686 BC with the unification of the Upper and Lower Kingdoms. Perhaps half a millennium prior to this, the Sumerian civilization attained maturity in the fertile region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which during this period flowed separately into the Persian Gulf. Technological innovations which took place within the Fertile Crescent include the development of agriculture and the introduction of irrigation, as well as the invention of glassmaking and the wheel. Writing was invented by the Sumerians. Originally, this consisted of round marks made in damp clay, which was then baked to become a permanent record, probably numbering cattle, containers of wheat, and so forth. With the introduction of a wedge-shaped reed as a marker, these impresses evolved into cuneiform writing with distinct characters capable of conveying things, and later the language itself. Sumerian, as spoken in southern Mesopotamia, is classified as a language isolate. In other words, 
it appears to be original and not descended from any prior language, except perhaps an early verbal Paleolithic pidgin. The Sumerians inhabited independent city-states, whose populations probably extended to around twenty to thirty thousand inhabitants each. The territorial boundaries of these states were marked out by canals and boundary stones. In the view of most authorities, the Sumerians may have constituted a civilization, but they were not an empire. Yet it was out of this innovative civilization that the Akkadian Empire would grow. One of the earliest references to Akkad is in the Book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. This records that Nimrod, the great grandson of Noah, founded a kingdom which included Babel and Akkad. According to myth, Nimrod was responsible for building the Tower of Babel, a structure intended to be so high that it would reach heaven. This so angered God that he caused its builders to speak different languages, thus confounding their efforts and dividing humanity into different language groups. Some myths also identify Nimrod with Gilgamesh, hero of the eponymous epic, the oldest great work of literature known to us. From this, it can be seen that Nimrod is probably a mythical character containing elements of several ancient heroes whose identity became blurred in prehistory. The first historically certain ruler of the Akkadian Empire was Sargon, who was born around the middle of the twenty-third century BC. Though we do not know the actual birth name of this individual, Sargon simply means the true king. Even details of Sargon's life and reign remain disputed among scholars, necessitating choice, which once again leaves any historian open to the charge of valuing ethos over accumulated fact, incorporating often contradictory evidence. Sargon's legendary description of his infancy has familiar overtones. My mother was a changeling, a child substituted by fairies for a human child. My father, I knew not. She set me in a basket of rushes with bitumen sealing my lid. She cast me into the river, which rose not over me. In this, there are unmistakable echoes of the infant Moses, the Hindu god Krishna, and Oedipus, as well as the Messiah. This would appear to be some kind of archetypal myth, a requisite for such early proto or quasi-divine figures. Much like Moses, almost a millennium later, Sargon was found, adopted, and thrived in his new home, the kingdom of Kish, part of the original Sumerian civilization. Sargon rose to the important post of maintaining the irrigation of the kingdom's canals, in charge of a large band of laborers. These laborers were probably reserve militia, skilled in the use of weapons. At any rate, Sargon gained their loyalty, and they aided him in overthrowing the king of Kish, Urzababa, around two three five four B.C. Soon after seizing power, Sargon succeeded in conquering a number of neighboring Sumerian cities, including Ur, Uruk, and possibly Babylon. After every victory, he tore down the city walls, and the city was incorporated into the Akkadian Empire. Sargon is said to have founded the capital Akkad. According to one source, he dug up the soil of the pit of Babylon and made a counterpart of Babylon next to Akkad. Here, Sargon built his palace, set up his administration and barracks for his army. He established a temple to Ishtar, Akkadian name for the Sumerian goddess of fertility and war, and Zababa, the warrior god of Kish. Sadly, Akkad has yet to be discovered and remains the only royal city of ancient Iraq whose location remains unknown. This precludes any direct archaeological evidence, limiting our knowledge to the likes of Babylonian tablets and texts, often made many centuries later. 
Sargon's ambition soon grew, and he would launch a number of campaigns, with the declared intention of extending his empire across the entire known world as it was to him. This included the whole of the Fertile Crescent, no less. He did not ultimately succeed in this, but the extent of his conquests and military expeditions remains impressive all the same. The later Babylonian texts, known as the Sargon Epos, speak of him seeking the advice of his subordinate commanders before launching his ambitious campaigns. This suggests the commander of a well-run military machine rather than a despotic ruler, or the megalomania implied by his territorial aims. Not surprisingly, his feats entered later legend. Sargon had neither rival nor equal. His splendor over the lands it diffused. He crossed the sea in the east. In the eleventh year, he conquered the western land to its farthest point. He brought it under one authority. He set up his statues there and ferried the west's booty across on barges. He stationed his court officials at intervals of five double hours and ruled in unity the tribes of the lands. He marched to Kazalu and turned Kazalu into a ruin heap, so that there was not even a perch for a bird left. Kazalu seems to have been one of Sargon's earliest conquests, as it was probably located east of the Euphrates near Babylon. The ultimate extent of Sargon's conquests remains impressive. His military exploits certainly took him as far as the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, up to the Cedar Forest and the Silver Mountain. This is seen as a reference to the Armanus and Taurus ranges, which stretch along the border of Anatolia, modern Turkey. Some legends suggest that he marched beyond this into Anatolia itself. This makes sense, as hostile tribes occupied the passes through these mountains, thus controlling the Akkadian trade routes to Anatolia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, from which they received their supplies of tin, copper, and silver. The presence of such tribes may also account for why Sargon launched his southern military expeditions, which would have secured trade routes to these same metals in southeast Persia and Oman. This, or a further campaign into eastern territory, would also have protected access to the lapis lazuli, which originated in northeast Afghanistan. This semi-precious stone, whose intense blue color was much valued, could be polished for use in beads, amulets, and inlays for statuettes. The extent of Sargon's southern military expeditions is known in more detail. He is said to have washed his weapons in the sea, i.e., the Persian Gulf. Sargon's southern conquests extended along the northeastern shores of the Persian Gulf as far as the Straits of Hormuz. Records of another expedition have him extending his empire along the southwestern shores of the Gulf as far as Dilmun, modern Bahrain, and Margan, Oman. Such feats may seem extraordinary. But they remain plausible. Sargon is said to have maintained a standing army come court of five thousand four hundred men who ate bread daily before him. Later texts speak of him setting sail across the Sea of the West, the Mediterranean, and reaching Keftu or Kaftor, as it is called in the Bible. This was usually taken to be Cyprus or possibly even Crete. Such was Sargon's empire that he is said to have declared. Now, any king who wants to call himself my equal, wherever I went, let him go. As we shall see, the leaders and citizens of most consequent great empires will harbour similar grandiose sentiments, which resonate through the millennia, mocking and yet later mocked by those who follow. This paradox is perhaps best illustrated by Shelley's poem on Ozymandias, king of kings, who boasted, "Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair." Yet all that now remained of these works was a vast broken statue and its half-buried, shattered stone head, 
beyond which, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Sargon was the first Ozymandias, and the lesson has yet to be learned even today. From the Roman emperors to Napoleon, Hitler and beyond, dreams of imperial greatness remain rooted in a present which extends into perpetuity. Babylonian copies of inscriptions that are known to date from the early Akkadian era claim that Sargon ruled over his empire for 55 years. His extension of territory certainly aimed at more than mere conquest and devastation, as in the case of Kazalu. In many cities, he appears to have spared the indigenous population, replacing the local government with Akkadian administrators. Likewise, the previous ruler would be executed and a trusted deputy installed in his place. With devastated cities such as Kazalu, the remnant population would either be put to the sword or marched off in captivity to become slaves, in much the same manner as the Bible describes the Israelites being led into captivity in Babylon over one and a half millennia later. In Sargon's early conquests of Sumerian cities, he is said to have placed his daughter, Enheduanna, as high priestess of the moon god Inanna in Ur, and extended her role to high priestess of the god of heaven, An, at nearby Uruk. Enheduanna was evidently well suited for such roles, and she is known to have written a number of hymns to these Sumerian gods, which played a significant role in winning over the local population to her father's rule. As such, she stakes a remarkable claim. Sargon's daughter made herself the first identifiable author in history, and the first to express a personal relationship between herself and her god. These are two highly significant steps in our social individuation. Previously, worshippers had groveled in fear before their gods. Enheduanna establishes herself as more than a mere priest. She wishes to be taken as a person, an interlocutor with the gods. She speaks to them personally, telling them what is happening in their cities. When a certain Lugalane leads a rebellion at Ur, she asks Inanna to pass on a message to Anne, asking him to right these wrongs and come to her aid. Wise and sage lady of all foreign lands, life force of the teeming people, I will recite your holy song. Lugalane has altered everything. He has removed Anne from Iana temple. He stood there in triumph and drove me out of the temple. He made me fly like a swallow from the window. My life strength is exhausted. My honeyed mouth became scummed. Tell Anne about Lugal Anne and my fate. May Anne undo it for me. Note how Inanna, initially goddess of the city of Ur, is addressed as lady of all foreign lands, suggesting that her rule now extends over all her father's conquests. The significance of this will become apparent later. At any rate, Enheduanna's prayers are answered, the rebellion is overcome, and she is reinstated whereupon she addresses a profuse hymn of praise to Inanna, my lady, beloved of Anne. However, such a rebellion was not an isolated incident. As Sargon grew older, his grip on his empire was thought to be faltering. According to a late Babylonian chronicle, in his old age all the lands revolted against him and they besieged him in Akkad. But Sargon was still prepared to rouse himself against any king who wants to call himself my equal. From his besieged capital, he launched a furious counter-attack. He went forth to battle and defeated them. He knocked them over and destroyed their vast army. Later, the nomadic hill tribes of Upper Mesopotamia rose against him and in their might attacked, but they submitted to his arms and Sargon settled their habitations and smote them grievously. 
As we shall see, this tendency to revolt in the outer regions of the Akkadian Empire would become a regular feature in the later years of a ruler's life. Sargon was succeeded by his son Remush, whose accession was greeted by a further revolt amongst the Sumerians and further afield in Persia. Although Remush forcefully subdued these uprisings, he appears to have been a weak and unpopular character. Ultimately, he even forfeited the loyalty of his own courtiers. In 2270 BC, after nine years of rule, his servants killed him with their tablets. As the 20th century French historian Georges Roux rightly comments, this is proof that the written word was already a deadly weapon. Ramesh's successor to the throne was Manishtushu, whose name means "who is with him." Roux suggests that this indicates he was Ramesh's twin brother. He too appears to have appointed his daughter as a high priestess, which would suggest that this was becoming customary. The main event of Manishtushu's reign was a great campaign he led south to the Persian Gulf. Manishtushu, king of Kish, crossed the lower sea in ships. The kings of the cities on either side of the sea, thirty-two of them, assembled for battle. He defeated them and subjugated their cities. He overthrew their lords and seized the whole country as far as the silver mines. The mountains beyond the lower sea, their stones he took away, and he made his statue. Access to the trade routes in the south was once again open, giving access to metals and lapis lazuli. This was just as well, for by now the northern territories of the empire had slipped from Akkadian grasp, their lands overrun by hostile neighbors. After a fourteen-year rule, Manishtushu would be succeeded by his son Naram Sin, whose name translates as "beloved of the people of Sin." He would prove to be a great ruler in the mold of his grandfather. His thirty-six-year reign, inspiring many legends of his greatness, having inherited the title King of Akkad, Naram Sin would later add "King of the Four Regions of the World," eventually ascending to King of the Universe, with his written name preceded by the star ideogram meaning God, which in Sumerian reads as Dingir and in Akkadian as Ilu. This brings us to the difficult question of language. Although both the Akkadians and the Sumerians were Semitic peoples, they spoke distinctly different languages. It was Sargon who introduced Akkadian as the official language of government administration and imperial trade. Akkadian is the first Semitic language of which we have written evidence, and its main dialects appear to have been Babylonian and Assyrian. However, the original Sumerian remained the ceremonial and religious language. This was possibly because the Akkadians tended to adopt the gods of conquered territories, yet at the same time appointing female members of the royal family as their high priestesses to ensure religious loyalty. This transformation of the Akkadian language meant that it would become the spoken language throughout the empire. On the other hand, some scholars insist that Sumerian was retained and that the Akkadian Empire saw widespread bilingualism. As we have seen, Sumerian was a language isolate. Whereas Akkadian was an East Semitic language, one of six groups in the Semitic language as a whole, which itself spread over the Levant, the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Abyssinian region. The general use of Akkadian and East Semitic through the Akkadian Empire led to stylized borrowing on a substantial scale, to syntactic, morphological, and phonological convergence. Indeed, Akkadian would remain the lingua franca throughout the region until a millennium later, whence came the rise of Aramaic, the language spoken by Christ. 
Ironically, both Akkadian and East Semitic eventually became extinct, whereas the Semitic languages as a whole would evolve into widespread use in such varied languages as Phoenician, the Punic language of Carthage, as well as Arabic, Amharic, Ethiopian, and Hebrew. The imperial administration was funded by taxes on vassal city-states, which were also required to maintain Akkadian garrisons. Domination was further maintained by the royal monopoly on foreign trade, as well as the awarding of estates in conquered territory to what is best described as Akkadian aristocracy. These were mostly former military commanders and trusted administrators, who would also be rewarded with slaves originating from other conquered cities. This had the added advantage of dispersing members of any potential clique who might attempt to overthrow their supreme ruler. The power of the imperial ruler was further reinforced by his elevation to divine status. This had the effect of enhancing his personal charisma. It's difficult to overstress this element of leadership charisma, which would be a recurrent feature of empires. Emperors would be descended from the divine members of their family, thus assuming deity. Mere mortals who trembled in the emperor god's presence could never escape his wrath, even in the afterlife. One of the great early Akkadian inventions was Sargon's calendar, which was used throughout the empire. Sargon would name each year after an important event which had taken place during the previous year, and this became a standard tradition. The year when Sargon went to Simmerum, the year when Naram Sin conquered and felled cedars on Mount Lebanon. Thus. All city records were synchronized with those of Akkad. Before this, each city worked according to its own calendar, though in some cases religious events would coincide, owing to their dates coinciding with astronomical events such as the equinox. Apart from its practical value, Sargon's calendar was the most obvious symbol of a more pervasive imperial assimilation. Prior to conquest, each Sumerian city had used its own system of weights and measures, as well as distances. Under Sargon and subsequent rulers, all such measurements became standardized throughout Mesopotamia. This further cemented Akkadian rule, helping to establish a common way of life amongst the subject people. Furthermore, such was the success of this system that these were units which would remain standard for over one thousand years. Towards the end of Naram Sin's thirty-six-year reign, he became bewildered, confused, sunk in gloom, sorrowful, exhausted. The usual end of reign uprisings appear to have taken place in the outer provinces, most notably amongst the powerful Lulubi in Persia. Most inscriptions record that Naram Sin was victorious in these struggles, but this may include an element of rose-tinted hindsight. Other, admittedly incomplete, inscriptions speak of defeats, with Naram Sin only able to make a successful last stand at Akkad. Either way, there is no denying that Naram Sin was the last great monarch of the Akkadian dynasty. His first notable victory over the Lulubi is commemorated in a fine rock sculpture, which can still be seen near a mountain top in modern Iran at Darbandigor, Pass of the Pagan. More pertinently, he is also depicted in a superb victory stele, which was discovered at Susa, north of the Persian Gulf. This has deservedly been characterized as a masterpiece of Mesopotamian sculpture. Besides its realistic depiction in relief of surprisingly lifelike human figures, it has a number of significant features. For instance, Naram Sin is depicted as being almost twice as tall as the other human figures beneath him, and he is wearing a two-horned helmet, a sign of his divinity. 
Later, this would become the sign of a minor deity. As a major deity, his helmet would sprout four horns. Such regular end-of-reign uprisings allow us to make certain deductions. As the 20th-century author Paul Krivacek pointed out, empires based solely on power and domination, while allowing their subjects to do as they will, can last for centuries. Those that try to control the everyday lives of their people are much harder to sustain. Such considerations certainly help account for the brevity of this first empire, which lasted for less than two centuries. The Akkadian imposition of alien gods upon their conquered cities would seem to have been but the outward manifestation of a more heavy-handed communal control. Even so, other factors must certainly have contributed. For a start, the sheer novelty of this highly complex human social creation must certainly have made it difficult to sustain. Obvious though it may seem, one should always bear in mind the sheer difficulty presented by the fact that the Akkadians had no blueprint for what they were doing. They were obliged to make up the rules as they went along. Following the death of Naram Sin in 2218 BC, he was succeeded by his son Sharkali Shari, king of all kings, who would rule for the next 25 years. Sharkali Shari appears to have presided over a period of almost continuous provincial revolts, even one by the governor of Elam, who had been appointed by his father. In 2193 BC, Sharkali Shari would be murdered in a palace revolt, whereupon the empire descended into anarchy. The Sumerian king list, which was compiled around 2100 BC, evocatively says of this period, "Who was king? Who was not king?" Excavations carried out at the end of the 20th century indicate that from approximately 2220 to 2000 BC, the entire eastern Mediterranean region was subject to a severe climate change, bringing with it droughts and famine. During this period, fertile regions in Sinai became deserts, and archaeological evidence indicates that nearly all Palestinian towns and villages were destroyed around 2200 BC, and lay abandoned for about two centuries. Some posit a sensational explanation for this climate change. Aerial photographs of southern Iraq revealed a two-mile-wide circular depression with the classic hallmarks of a meteor crater. This would possibly explain recent archaeological evidence that on some sites there was construction seemingly going well when, apparently overnight, all work suddenly stopped. Either way, this change marked the end of the Akkadian Empire, regarded by many as the first world empire. However, not all concur with this assessment. The 20th-century Italian scholar Mario Liverani vehemently insists: in no case is the Akkad Empire an absolute novelty. Akkad, the first empire, is therefore subject to criticism, not only as for the adjective "first," but especially as for the noun "empire." Liverani argues that earlier the Sumerians developed proto-imperial states, adding somewhat anomalously. That the term empire, with regard to the Akkadians, is simplistic. This argument is convincingly countered by Krivacek, who points out a fundamental transformation that came about with this first empire. Up until now, civilization based itself on the belief that humanity was created by the gods for their own purposes. Each city was the creation and home of a particular god. With the conquests of Sargon, all this changed. This was how Inanna, goddess of the city of Ur, came to be addressed by Sargon's daughter Enheduanna as Lady of all foreign lands. The gods and goddesses of the rulers would become the supreme gods and goddesses of the entire Akkadian Empire. 
The Akkadian world witnessed the proliferation, if not always the origin, of many features of early civilization. Sophisticated, realistic sculptures were carved in relief on stone stele, or gouged in relief into cylinders, which, when rolled, left an impression in clay. Similarly, silver gathered from mines at the outposts of the empire was melted into ingots. These were then stamped with a name, the seal of approval, and weight. They were thus used for trade. A proto form of money, guaranteed by the world's first bankers. The Akkadians also built the first ziggurats, stepped asymmetrical flat-topped pyramidal structures with temples at their summit. The very word ziggurat is an anglicized form of the original Akkadian zikaratu, and in time, one of the greatest of these would be a three hundred foot high Babylonian ziggurat named Etimananki. Although this huge structure is now reduced to nothing but rubble, its name translates as "home of the platform between heaven and earth," confirming that these were the edifices that gave rise to the legend of the Tower of Babel. Although no temples have yet been found at the summit of any extant ziggurats, we know of their existence. Herodotus describes the furnishing of the shrine on top of the ziggurat at Babylon and says it contained a great golden couch on which a woman spent the night alone. The god Marduk was also said to come and sleep in his shrine. Thus, the son of God was the issue of a god and a human woman—an early example of the story that would persist through Zeus in the Greek myths into the Christian era. Speculations on the precise origins of the ziggurats are equally intriguing. Some claim that they represent a sacred mountain, a folk memory from the original Sumerian homeland, which, according to some sources, was the mountains of the northeast. This suggests the Zagros Mountains, which occupy western Persia and border the Fertile Crescent. A similarly plausible suggestion, which in no way contradicts the mountain myth, claims these ziggurats were raised as protection for the temples against the seasonal floods, some of which could be extreme. As their architecture grew, there is no doubt that they were intended to become increasingly awesome and forbidding to the common people gathered below. The complicated sets of staircases worked into their design would have made them easy to defend against intruders, at the same time preventing any secular spies from discovering the secrets of the temple ceremonies and initiation rituals. Once again, echoes of such practices have come down to us in the Eleusinian mysteries of the ancient Greeks. Later ritual sacrifices of many kinds and remnants can even be detected in the high altars of Christian churches. Only priests were permitted to ascend to the top of ziggurats, and one of their duties was to observe the movements of the stars in the night heavens. Here, astronomy was certainly entwined with astrology, yet the astronomical understanding of the movements of the planets developed by these priests would later enable the Babylonians accurately to predict eclipses of the sun many centuries into the future. These used advanced geometric techniques that would not be rediscovered in Europe until the 14th century A.D. What originated with the Akkadians would be developed by the Babylonians, who gave the world further distinctive features of early civilization and empire. Not least of these was the Code of Hammurabi, the world's earliest comprehensive code of laws. This was inscribed in Akkadian on a seven-foot-high stele dating from around 1754 BC, during the reign of the Babylonian king Hammurabi. It contains 282 laws covering aspects of civil life, ranging from slander to theft and divorce, as well as most famously the legal principle paraphrased as "an eye for an eye." 
Meanwhile, some 700 miles or so to the west of Babylon, a parallel empire was developing in the form of ancient Egypt. Here too, a civilization evolved its own similar yet distinctive hallmarks, such as pyramids, the successive rule of pharaonic god-kings and hieroglyphic writing, in this case on papyrus. The Egyptians also developed their own more down-to-earth but equally impressive form of mathematics. Each year, the Nile flood would recede, leaving bare mudflats, which would have to be divided into plots of land precisely commensurate with those occupied prior to the rising flood. This led to a mathematics involving immensely complicated algebraic fractions, whereas the Babylonian mathematics had more of a tendency towards abstract geometric precision. H.G. Wells, writing a century ago, would claim of these empires, We know that life for prosperous and influential people in such cities as Babylon and the Egyptian Thebes was already almost as refined and as luxurious as that of comfortable and prosperous people today. This may well be, yet it is always worth bearing in mind P.J. O'Rourke's advice. When you are thinking of the good old days, think one word, dentistry. Quite aside from this painful art, it is worth considering another significant dental fact. The teeth of ancient Egyptian mummies, that is, the fortunate few described earlier, are invariably flat. This was initially ascribed to evolutionary reasons. It is now known that they were ground down by the amount of desert sand and grit that could not be prevented from entering prepared food. And to dental hardships one could add life expectancy, virulent disfiguring diseases, the vice-like conformity required by such societies. Sufficient imagination can always add to this list. Such strictures will apply, in more or less a degree, to all empires great and small, before and after ancient Egypt. It is the ethos that can be rosy, instructive, inspirational and so forth, seldom the nitty teeth gritty facts. But this should not be a cause for pessimism. History scrutinises the past and seeks to learn from it. It does not seek to live in it. Egyptian influences would spread to Crete, with Babylonian influences dispersing through Anatolia and Persia, while the Phoenicians transported such ideas throughout the Mediterranean. Amongst the Greek-speaking city-states that occupied the islands and coasts of the Aegean, this would produce a transformation. Uniquely, ancient Greek civilization was fragmented, while its learning was divorced from religion. Liberated from an oppressive, all-embracing imperial and religious hierarchy, individualistic thought blossomed, giving birth to what we now see as Western civilization. Philosophy democracy, citizens' rights, the perfection of realistic sculpture, architecture, science, tragedy, comedy even, the list goes on. Such creative individual freedom for all but women and slaves would become a template for Western civilization. Once this strain of mentality had become established, it would never quite be eliminated from Western human evolution. Over the following two and a half millennia, it would survive tyranny, state terror, empires, barbarism, and even centuries of intellectual stagnation. However, from the outset, this mental trait would prove ineffective in combating sheer physical power. For all its glories, the Greek world would quickly succumb to the military might of the expanding Roman Empire. Despite such radical developments, there was no clear-cut break with earlier empires. This is perhaps most significantly illustrated by an unmistakable thread of continuity in the evolution of alphabetical writing, which gradually replaced cuneiform scripts such as Akkadian and Babylonian.
Chapter Two: The Roman Empire. The founding legend of Rome is replete with familiar echoes. A vestal virgin named Rhea Silvia, one of the priestesses who tended the sacred flame, was seduced by Mars, the god of war. When she gave birth to twins named Romulus and Remus, these were placed in a reed basket which floated away down the river Tiber. The twins were rescued by a she-wolf who suckled them. Later, Romulus would slay Remus, just as the biblical Cain had slain Abel, and in 753 BC he would found the city named after him on the Palatine Hill overlooking the Tiber. To encourage the growth of this new settlement, its king Romulus welcomed colonists, giving refuge to fugitives and slaves. Most of these colonists were young men, so Romulus invited the nearby Sabines to a festival where the Romans abducted and raped the young Sabine women. Consequently, the Romans found themselves plunged into a series of wars against neighboring tribes in order to ensure their continuing existence. To assist him in his rule, Romulus appointed a hundred old men. The Latin for old man is senex, and this group became known as the Senate, an institution that would survive throughout the entire era of the Roman Empire. As we shall see, these early legends contain in embryo an uncanny resemblance to many of the fundamental elements that would characterize the Roman Empire. In particular, ruthlessness and aggression. Militarism would be central to Rome's social structure, enabling it first to survive and then to thrive. Of all the empires we shall describe, it is the Roman which casts the longest shadow over ensuing history. Indeed, some elements would even persist into that very perpetuity dreamt of by all empires. To this day, the traditional depiction of the she-wolf suckling the infants Romulus and Remus remains an iconic image in the city of Rome. And over a millennium and a half after the fall of ancient Rome, its proud acronym SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus. The Senate and people of Rome remains the official emblem of the municipality, visible on everything from manhole covers to pavement refuse bins. Of course, the city, which would spread from the Palatine Hill to the traditional seven hills of Rome, is also filled with monuments to its ancient imperial past: ruins, complete sites, roads, aqueducts, and so forth. Much the same is true throughout the former territory of the empire, which, in a recurrent theme, its poet Virgil named the Empire Without Limit. Remnants stretch across Europe and beyond, from Hadrian's Wall near the border of Scotland to the Hadrian's Arch on the fringes of the Arabian Desert in modern-day Jordan. And most pervasive of all, the Latin language, which remains more or less recognisable in the many European languages that evolved from the original mother tongue, such as Italian, Spanish. French, Romanian, and a considerable part of English. So many words in all these languages would be easily discernible to any educated ancient Roman. Then there are the legal systems, weights and measures, municipal baths, even architecture, to name but a few formative influences. For example, Peter Charlenfant, the French military engineer who originally designed Washington D.C. in the early 1790s, intended its government buildings to resemble a neoclassical Rome. From the early years, the people of Rome and its senators adopted a constitution consisting of an unwritten set of principles, mainly established through precedent. At least in theory, the king was appointed by the senate, and the constitution contained many elements that remain the sine qua non of national constitutions to this day. That is the notion of checks and balances to ensure that no power group can gain undue influence. 
Also, the separation of powers, such as the independence of government and justice, religion and state, and so forth. And perhaps most important of all, the notion of impeachment, by which the legislature could lay formal charge against its leader. The king was accompanied by an armed guard of lictors, each bearing the fasces, a bundle of rods strapped around an axe. This symbol of power has reverberated through the ages, appearing on the back of the pre-Second World War U.S. dime, as well as behind the podium in the U.S. House of Representatives. It also gave its name to the modern term fascism. During the initial Kingdom of Rome period, the city gradually overcame the powerful Etruscan civilization, which occupied the swathe of territory north of Rome, running through Tuscany and beyond, and to the south as far as modern Naples. When the seventh king, Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud, attempted to institute a hereditary monarchy, the kings were overthrown, and the Senate established a republic, from respublica, the public thing. This was ruled by the Senate, now expanded to several hundred patricians, upper-class families, which appointed two consuls who held office for a year each. The republic also included an assembly of tribunes elected by the plebeians, the common people. This lower house could propose laws to be voted on by the Senate. Such a bicameral structure of government remains a recognizable feature of democracies to this day. The consuls would often become military commanders, leading the army during times of war. As Roman power expanded through southern Italy and Sicily, it soon came up against the Phoenician people, who controlled the Mediterranean from their capital Carthage in modern Tunisia. This would result in a war for the control of the Mediterranean, no less. To all intents and purposes, the civilized world as they knew it. The ensuing Titanic conflict against the Carthaginians would continue for over a century and became known as the Three Punic Wars. It was during the second of these wars that the Carthaginian general Hannibal led his army, including cavalry elephants, across the impenetrable Alps. His surprise invasion wreaked havoc through Italy for fifteen years. At one point, even besieging Rome itself. The Romans also came under attack from the Macedonian Greeks to the east. Just over a century previously, the Macedonian leader Alexander the Great had conquered Anatolia, Egypt, and Persia, reaching as far as the banks of the Indus. This large, short-lived empire fell apart on his death, eventually fracturing into more than half a dozen separate states. Even so, the Macedonians remained a formidable fighting force. Fortunately, the Romans were led by Publius Scipio, the only military strategist of the age who could match Hannibal's genius. Scipio led an invasion of North Africa, which struck at the heart of Carthage, and in 202 BC defeated Hannibal at the Battle of Zuma. Carthage sued for peace, and henceforth the victorious Roman general became known as Scipio Africanus on account of his North African great victory, which had saved the empire and led to him becoming a consul. During the Punic Wars, Roman power began expanding through Spain, North Africa, southern France, and perhaps most importantly of all, into Greece. At this point, Greece remained arguably a superior civilization to the Romans, both culturally and possibly even militarily. The secret of Alexander the Great's unprecedented military success had been the Greek phalanx. Basically, this consisted of an impenetrable advancing line of soldiers with interlocked shields bearing short swords. Behind them was a similar line of soldiers with longer spears, which protruded beyond the shields of the front line. 
Supported by wedge formations of cavalry, this proved an irresistible force. Then, in 197 BC, the invading Roman army came into conflict with the defending Greek army at the Battle of Cynocephali. The Macedonian Greek forces outnumbered the Romans, but they were hampered by swirling mists and the vulnerable flanks of their phalanxes. The Macedonian phalanx proved no match for the more manoeuvrable Roman legions, which were supported by cavalry, including twenty war elephants. The Romans had learned from the Carthaginians: elephants were unstoppable and terrified even the strongest infantry formations. From this point on, the Roman legions would prove all but invincible until they reached the extremities of Gaul. The harrying Germanic tribes of the Rhine, who disappeared into their forests and avoided fixed battles. And the Picts of northern Britannia, where, according to legend, the famous Ninth Legion of five thousand men marched north into the mists of Caledonia, never to return, with no trace of them being discovered to this day. The history of ancient Rome is usually divided into three distinct eras. As we have seen, the initial kingdom gave way to the Republic in 476 BC. It was during the four and a half centuries of the Republic that Rome expanded into an empire. Increasingly, the republican tenor of Rome would come under threat during these years. This is best illustrated by the social situation in Rome itself. Initially, the ruling patrician families and the plebeian commoners appear to have lived in relative harmony. This was largely due to a system of patronage known as clientia, by which upper-class patrons looked after their lower-class clientele. Such patronage might typically include employment, protection, sponsorship for office, and so forth, with reciprocal support for patrons. The latter indicates an important mutual aspect of this arrangement. Patrons could employ crowds of supporters, vociferously calling for political office for their paymaster. The more clientele a patron had, the more prestige he could command. As the empire expanded, more slaves were dispatched to Rome. And this arrangement of patronage came under stress. Plebeians who had been employed in menial tasks found themselves surplus to requirements. Landowners took on slaves to do their agricultural work, and important citizens even took on educated slaves as scribes. In a parallel development, the governors of provinces of the new empire became increasingly wealthy. Egypt and the Carthaginian hinterlands of Africa Vetus, Old Africa, provided increasingly large and lucrative shipments of grain. Most significant of all was the growing power that began accruing to the successful commanders, who began expanding the empire, as well as dealing with such troubles and revolts as arose within it. Amongst the legions, an aspect of clientia continued to flourish. To avoid conflict of interest, foreign legionnaires were invariably posted far from their homeland. The Ninth Legion, which disappeared in Caledonia, consisted of Spanish soldiers. Consequently, legionnaires felt increasingly bound to their commander, their loyalty invested in the man who led them and rewarded them with booty, rather than the rulers in distant Rome. The commander of a legion, Legatus, held his post for up to four years. Often passing on to a provincial governorship, where he could amass a substantial fortune. Charismatic commanders increasingly came to regard their troops as their own men. One such was Julius Caesar, whose life aptly parallels the last days of the Republic. Julius Caesar was born into the nobility in 102 BC. 
Romans had long admired Greek learning, and in 75 BC, Caesar was on his way to Rhodes to study oratory when he was captured by Aegean pirates. Insulted at the low ransom the pirates required for his freedom, he vowed to them that on his release he would hunt them down and crucify them, which he did. Through connections and ability, he quickly rose to become a political tribune. On a posting to Spain, he saw a statue of Alexander the Great, prompting him to realize that at his age, Alexander had ruled the world. This spurred his already overweening ambition. By 59 BC, he had been elected by means of bribery as a consul. Yet during his period of office, he sought to redistribute land amongst the poor. Such was typical of Caesar's character, both ruthless yet true to his beliefs. His time as consul was followed by a series of military campaigns, in which he proved himself the equal of any commander. His exploits included the first invasion of Britain in 55 BC, building a bridge across the Rhine, and an ultimately victorious series of campaigns against the Gauls. During the course of this bitterly fought campaign, which included the loss and slaughter of a Roman legion, Caesar is said to have dispatched as many as 100,000 slaves to Rome. Helping to pay off the huge debts he had accumulated in furthering his ambitions, in 50 BC Caesar was ordered to disband his army and return to Rome to face charges of exceeding his orders. Had Caesar returned alone, he would have faced criminal prosecution, with his many enemies calling for his death. Instead, he marched his 13th legion back to Italy. By marching across the Rubicon, a river in northeast Italy, he entered Roman territory bearing arms. An act of treason from which there was no going back. In the ensuing civil war, he chased his rival Pompey to Egypt, where he hunted down and killed his enemy. There then followed his celebrated affair with Cleopatra. On his return to Rome, he assumed dictatorial powers. He at once began instituting a number of much-needed reforms, including a redistribution of land, pensions for veterans, and in 45 BC, the introduction of a new calendar. Known as the Julian calendar after its originator, this would last for one and a half millennia. We still retain the same names for the months, with July being named after Julius Caesar. Other reforms included a concentration of power and bestowing upon himself the title dictator in perpetuity, an honorific he would hold for just one month before he was assassinated in March 44 BC. The reign of Julius Caesar was a tipping point, signalling the death throes of the republic. As a man, he was a contradiction, emphasizing many of the best and the worst aspects of ancient Rome. The most obvious, but often overlooked, of his qualities was his sheer intelligence. This was counterbalanced by his vanity, which ran the full gamut of his amour propre, from never forgetting a slight to his constant worry over his receding hairline. Which brings us to his love life. Despite going through three wives and juggling mistresses, even in the midst of his most pressing campaigns, he is also known to have had a number of serious homosexual affairs, for which he suffered at the hands of the satirists and gossip mongers in the Senate. Caesar's most noticeable characteristics were insatiable ambition and increasing megalomania, which were matched by his belief in the simple virtues of early Rome: physical and mental vigor, civic virtue, and the like. He believed in reforms that would return Rome to these early glories, a cause which endeared him to his followers. His reforms endeared him to the plebs and middle classes, as well as a sizable faction of the patricians. Many, such as the equally charismatic general Pompey, would later turn against him, while still retaining their admiration for his many skills.
These included a military acumen on a par with Scipio, as well as highly developed and calculating political expertise. He was also a fine, if unvarnished, writer. His Gallic Wars contained precise, often self-serving, historical descriptions of his campaigns, and remain studied as classical texts to this day. He was also aware of the element of luck. The chances he took were often far more than calculated risks. He dared Fortuna, the goddess of luck, and he would certainly have seconded Napoleon's remark: "I would rather have a lucky general than a good one." Looking back in history to the pre-Roman era, we can see that Caesar echoed many of the characteristics of those early rulers of empires, especially Alexander. Looking forward, we can see uncanny echoes of his life and development in the many who would seek to emulate him, both seriously Napoleon and laughably Mussolini. A period of instability swept the Roman Empire before Augustus took power in 27 BC as the first self-declared emperor. This marks the beginning of the third period of ancient Rome, the empire which would go through several transformations before its fall in AD 476. Ironically, the solid foundations of the Roman Empire were established well before the Empire period, which mainly takes its name from the fact that it was ruled by an emperor. The first emperor Augustus was an adopted son of Julius Caesar, and would in time become known as Augustus Caesar. A precedent had been set. From now on, the emperor would adopt his successor and bestow on him the name Caesar. The original meaning of this name is obscure and disputed, but it may well refer to Julius Caesar's birth by Caesarian section, from the Latin word caedra to cut. Following on from the Roman emperors, the name would evolve into the Russian Tsar and the German Kaiser. Resemblances to the earlier Babylonian Belshazzar and the Akkadian Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar fall into the at best circumstantial and at worst non-existent class of history. But as we have seen, such theories will always flourish, with items like the Chinese discovery of Australia and Eric von Dernicken's Chariots of the Gods making regular appearances. More interestingly, many fundamental cultural theories held to be self-evidently true for centuries have also been relegated to this non-existent class. Flat earthers and alchemists may have fallen foul of scientific investigation, but more plausibly supported theories remain vulnerable to newly discovered facts, or even simply a transformation of cultural outlook. In 1969, the British art historian Kenneth Clark delivered what was deemed at the time to be a definitive TV series named Civilization. Almost half a century later, a series of programs with similar grandiose ambitions, delivered by Mary Beard, Simon Sharma, and David Olugosa, would be named Civilizations in the plural. This trio, an entertainingly erudite classicist, a British art historian of Jewish descent, and a British Nigerian popular academic, extended their scope far beyond the Western tradition central to the patrician Clark's vision. Their fresh worldview included examples across the ages from every inhabited continent. Here too was a transformation that quite matched the end of the flat Earth era. The solid, self-evident, two-dimensional plane of a single progressive Western civilization had been transformed into a three-dimensional globe of multicultural traditions. History will always remain fluid, open to fresh interpretation, spurred by the discovery of new facts, the evolution of new modes of thought. In the Empire period, the population of the city of Rome is thought to have been somewhere between three hundred and twenty thousand and a million. While the empire it ruled over covered the equivalent area 
though not the exact territory of modern Europe, containing a population of between 50 and 90 million. The range and inexactitude of these figures is indicative. Indeed, the word census is derived from the Latin word censere to estimate. Roman citizens and those foreigners lucky enough to attain Roman citizenship were granted a number of privileges, such as the right to vote, immunity from certain taxes, the right to defend themselves at a fully legal trial, and the right to live in Rome. Women and slaves were not counted as citizens, although their number may have blurred the census estimates. Women of childbearing age were almost permanently pregnant, with unwanted babies left out on street corners. Not for nothing was it said that all roads lead to Rome. The characteristically straight Roman roads fanned out overland to the most distant parts of the empire, but they also attracted many to journey to the greatest city the world had yet seen. Curiously, this powerful urban centre did not actually produce anything. All goods, from grain to wine, nails to cloth, had to be imported, largely through the port of Ostia, some twenty miles southwest at the mouth of the Tiber. Here, cargo arrived from all over the Mediterranean and beyond: grain from North Africa, tin from Cornwall, silk from China via the Levant. It was then transported up the Tiber on barges. As the population of Rome began to swell, it became necessary to placate the common people, many of whom lived in crowded tenements and were left unemployed due to slavery. The authorities adopted a policy of panem et circensis, bread and circuses. This entailed free food and regular entertainments at the Colosseum, which took ten years to build, and at its height was said to accommodate over eighty thousand spectators. This staged such events as gladiatorial combats. Malefactors being attacked and eaten by wild beasts, as well as occasional normacia, mock naval battles. The latter were particularly popular and predated the building of the Colosseum. The first of these was staged in 42 BC by Julius Caesar himself in a large flooded pit beside the Tiber, estimated to have been some 500 yards long and 300 yards wide. This was a mock battle only in the sense that it was staged and on a huge scale. Several dozen vessels, including triremes manned by galley slaves hauling three horizontal rows of banked oars, rammed their opponents prior to hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Caesar's initial spectacle involved two thousand soldiers and four thousand galley slaves. Both soldiers and slaves consisted of prisoners of war and condemned criminals. Such spectacles not only entertained the masses, allowing them to vent their bloodlust, but also cowed them. Life was cheap, and authority was harsh to those who fell foul of it. Compare such entertainments with classical Greek theatre held in amphitheatres and attended by the population of a city-state. Both forms had a cathartic element, but where one retold the ancient myths of its people, Oedipus and the like, the other was a demonstration of vicious brute force. One embodied art, democracy, and even psychological wisdom; the other indicated an increasingly rigid autocracy. We may not know the exact populations of Rome and other cities in the empire, but owing to one of the greatest freak occasions in history, we can form a surprisingly precise picture of what life was like in such places. On the twenty-third of November, A.D. seventy-nine, the volcano Vesuvius in southern Italy erupted, covering the nearby town of Pompeii in volcanic ash, preserving it largely intact for posterity. Houses, people, streets, wine jars, dogs—even all the bustle and variety of Roman life was immobilized in a long, agonizing moment.
We can see pictures of the richer inhabitants in the precisely preserved frescoes on the walls of their villas. We can hear the gossip and scandal peddled by the common people in the graffiti. Restitus was here, handle with care, beside an outline of a penis. Atimaeus made me pregnant. There were even cartoons with speech bubbles on the walls of the taverns. We can tell what the inhabitants drank, how the rich banqueted, how citizens relieved themselves in communal rows of open lavatories, the illustrated service charges in the bordellos. All human life is here. We can deduce from biblical references that things would have been only a little more primitive on the streets of ancient Babylon. Likewise, we learn from the 15th-century French poet François Villon that things were only a little more sophisticated on the streets of medieval Paris. If we judge by mortality rates, the lives of the underprivileged throughout Europe and the Mediterranean region remained much the same until the 19th century. During the Babylonian era, life expectancy amongst the common population has been calculated at around 26 years. Similarly, in Roman times, it was 25 years, and during the medieval era, 30 years. Not until 19th-century England did this rise to 40 years. Admittedly, all such figures are difficult to gauge and heavily disputed. Were they skewed by the inclusion of high child mortality rates? Just how much did they apply to the common people rather than the population as a whole? Here again, the notion of census would seem to imply a large element of estimation. My point is that despite variations in population, exceptional plagues, wars, and so forth, the condition of life for the poor remained, for the most part, barely above subsistence level throughout these eras. On the other hand, there is no denying that the Roman Empire marked a great leap forward in human history. Where the ancient Greeks made a fundamental theoretical contribution, the Roman contribution was largely practical. This is, of course, a huge generalization. Greek architecture, with its epitome on the Acropolis at Athens, was a wonder to behold. Yet it was the Romans who added the final counterintuitive practicality in the form of the keystone, which both completed and held together the gravity-defying stones of the arch. This great invention enabled the introduction of longer straight roads with arched bridges and finally aqueducts, some more than fifty miles long, often supported by as many as three stacked rows of arches. Two thousand years later, some of these aqueducts are still in working order. The Trevi Fountain in modern Rome is supplied by water from the Virgo Aqueduct, built by the Gallo-Roman general Agricola in 19 BC to supply water for the public baths. From this two-dimensional beginning would emerge the magnificence of the three-dimensional dome, another Roman marvel which would not be emulated for almost a thousand years after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Yet not all Roman usages were a success. Greek mathematics was a sublime creation. Roman numerals, which all but eliminated the possibility of division or multiplication, soon put a stop to theoretical mathematics and other more practical mathematical advances. Despite such glitches, the sheer organization required to run an empire of such a scale continues to astonish. From Hadrian's Wall to Hadrian's Arch in the Middle East is just under two thousand five hundred miles, as the crow flies, or the Roman road would like to have travelled, around the same distance as from Miami to Los Angeles. Yet the entire empire ran largely according to the dictates of a single centralised system. The currency was the same, based on the silver denarius. In times of severe shortage, the price of goods would be carved in stone, literally, at markets of the empire, to prevent traders from charging exorbitant prices. 
The economics of supply and demand was understood on a rule of thumb basis by the traders themselves, but its larger economic implications barely registered with the authorities. With so many dependent upon a subsistence level of supply, the flawed economics of slavery was irrelevant. Pay workers, and they spend. Thus, the economy grows. On the other hand, the Roman legal code would evolve over the years into a highly sophisticated system of jurisprudence. Our very word derives from the Latin "jurus," "ius," law, right, and "prudentia," wisdom or knowledge. Roman law, from the original twelve tables of 449 BC to the Corpus Juris Civilis, body of civil law, promulgated in AD 521, would provide the foundation for a host of legal systems to come. Its influence and distinctions are still recognizable in the framework of much Western law. Yet the Roman Empire was not, on the whole, a happy place. When emperors began to assume the mantle of deity and expected to be worshipped as such, the multi-theistic, quasi-superstitious religion inherited from the Greeks gradually became sapped of its spirituality. The distinctly unholy behaviour of the likes of Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero, now as then bywords for depravity, prompted belief in a new spirituality, unsullied by any connection with temporal power. It is no accident that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place during the reign of Tiberius, or that Nero made the Christian scapegoats for the fire of Rome in AD 64. Yet this secret religion of slaves would continue to flourish until eventually the Emperor Constantine was converted in AD 313. The last years of the Republic and the early years of the Empire would see Rome at its cultural zenith. Although the Romans produced no match for the sheer creative intelligence of the ancient Greeks, their culture is certainly a noble echo, making up in sophistication for what it may lack in raw originality. To mention but a few examples, the poet Ovid wrote exquisite love poems and scurrilous satire, and was banished to the Black Sea for his troubles. Lucretius's great scientific poem De Rerum Natura. On the nature of things, reintroduced the Greek philosopher Democritus's idea of the atom as the ultimate object of matter, from atomos meaning uncuttable or indivisible. The Greek physician Galen, who practiced in Rome in the second century A.D., established a body of medical knowledge that would last for almost one and a half millennia. The philosopher and dramatist Seneca wrote tragedies that would influence Shakespeare, and he also preached the philosophy of Stoicism, so popular amongst educated Romans, with its selfless message on how to endure adversity. Napoleon may have much admired Julius Caesar, but he refrained from reading about ancient Rome, citing too much opening of veins. Suicide was prevalent amongst patricians who fell from favor. The prime exemplar being Seneca. Who chose to open his veins rather than suffer the public disgrace of execution after he was accused of plotting against Nero? The terminal decline of the Roman Empire began around the later third century A.D. and would end with the sack of Rome in 410 by Alaric the Goth. This long, gradual collapse has been ascribed to all manner of reasons, ranging from moral decay to gradual enfeeblement due to lead poisoning from the hot water pipes. Edward Gibbon, the 18th-century British author of the renowned six-volume *Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire*, blames Christianity. Of all the many contributory factors, one stands out: the mass migration across Europe of warrior tribes such as the Goths, the Vandals, and the Huns. These would seem to have been irresistible by an empire beset with civil war, plague, and economic decline. 
Yet the fall of Rome did not mark the extinction of the Roman Empire. By the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine had moved the capital to Byzantium, soon to be named Constantinople after him, now Istanbul. This would split off to become an Eastern Empire, which managed to hold out as the Germanic tribes and their followers overran the rest of the Western Empire. The Eastern Empire would gradually take on the tenor as well as the name of its capital city, becoming the Byzantine Empire. The Roman Empire, as such, was no more. What have the Romans ever done for us? The answer to this question became most apparent when the Romans departed, leaving behind dilapidated outpost forts, abandoned stretches of aqueduct leading from nowhere to nowhere, villas with crumbling mosaic floors undermined by defunct heating systems, and buried pouches of gold coins that would remain undiscovered until the age of the metal detector. It is during this period between the sixth and eighth centuries that the lack of communication between provinces of the former empire caused the vulgar Latin used throughout the Roman Empire to split into what became known as the Romance languages, such as French, Italian, and Spanish, which are spoken today. The term Dark Ages is now frowned upon by serious historians, yet it certainly evokes much of the period between the fall of Rome and the tenth century. Instead, many choose to call this period Late Antiquity or the Early Medieval Era, preferring to reference the two ages that bookend its years. Paradoxically, this Dark Age was a period of both cultural stagnation and mass migration. The movement of peoples had begun with the migration of the nomadic Hun tribes from Eastern Asia across the steppes westward into Europe. This set in motion a disturbance that would spread throughout the continent. In the face of the advancing Huns, the Germanic tribes were forced to migrate south from their homelands. In waves, the Goths, originally from Sweden and eastern Germany, swept through eastern Europe, splitting into the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths as they passed through southern Europe and along the shores of North Africa. The Germanic and Proto-Slavic Vandals swept through France, Spain, and North Africa. While the Huns from Central Asia and the Caucasus migrated through Hungary, France, and the Balkans. Later, the Vikings from Scandinavia sailed to attack the shores of all northern Europe, eventually travelling as far as Greenland and the New World. Other Vikings sailed down the Volga, increasingly as traders, establishing the state of Rus, before venturing south across the Black Sea to arrive at Byzantium. Out of this chaos, in 800, Charlemagne established a Frankish empire, which briefly ruled over much of Western Europe. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Empire continued to wax and wane over Anatolia and the Balkans. By now, this remnant of Roman rule had become, both in culture and language, a largely Greek empire. Ancient Rome, as such, was now but a reference point in history. Meanwhile, the mantle of progress passed further east. The scattered books and learning of the classical era were taken up and developed by Arab scholars in a second flourishing of Middle Eastern civilization. Just as Christianity would receive its founding inspiration from the historical Jesus of Nazareth, so Islam would be founded by the Prophet Muhammad. Islam recognized itself as following on from the two previous monotheistic religions of the Middle East, namely Judaism and Christianity. The Judaic Abraham and Moses, as well as Christ, were all seen as earlier prophets, predecessors of the final prophet of God, Muhammad. But here the resemblance ends. Muhammad was no Jesus Christ, and the empire he founded was based on no religion of slaves. 
The empire of Muhammad was the empire of a fervent new religion, and was, from its outset, an empire of conquest. Chapter three: The Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates. For many Western minds, the stereotypical image of the Arab caliphates is exemplified by Shahrazad, the condemned storyteller who managed to stay alive by entrancing the Sultan of Baghdad for one thousand and one nights. Such were her fabulous and magical stories that, at the end of each night, the Sultan postponed her execution so that he could hear the end of the current story, which had been interrupted by the rising of the dawn. The name Shahrazad is of Persian origin, and her tales of the likes of Ali Baba, Sinbad the Sailor, and Aladdin run the gamut of the Oriental world. Aladdin, for instance, despite his Arabic name Allah Adin, is from China, or at least an Arabic medieval version of this land. And the sorcerer who befriends Aladdin hails from the Barbary coast of North Africa, the westernmost Islamic territory half a world away from China. The blend of exoticism, ancient wonder, and the ever-present threat of death creates an imaginative never-neverland, whose many-coloured glass stains the white radiance of historical actuality. This latter has come down to us in such words as algebra, alcohol, and alchemy, which, despite its illusory aim, developed many of the laboratory techniques and material distinctions of modern chemistry. In these words, the prefix al. As also in algorithm is the giveaway, but our language and our knowledge is peppered with a variety of other borrowings from Arabic, ranging through admiral emir to zero, which would transform Western European mathematics, through coffee, cotton, and cork to gauze, soda, and traffic. The list goes on and on. This verbal heritage hints at the host of more realistic advances bequeathed by the era of the caliphates, when once again this Middle Eastern corner of the globe led all civilizations. In order to grasp the rationale of the caliphates, we must first understand their religion and the import of its founder. Muhammad was born into a leading family at Mecca in western Central Arabia during the year of the elephant, reckoned to be around A.D. 570. His father died before his birth, and his mother died when he was six, leaving him to be brought up by a paternal uncle, Abu Talib, and his wife. When Muhammad was a young man, he travelled as a merchant to Syria, and later became involved in trade between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean, where he gained a reputation as a truthful and trustworthy man, whose advice was often sought in the resolution of disputes. But he also had a deep spiritual side. Each year, he would retire to a mountain cave outside Mecca to meditate and pray. In A.D. 610, when he was 40 years old, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and passed on to him verses that would later become part of the Quran, a book which would come to be regarded as the Word of God. Later, Muhammad would begin preaching according to the revelations of God's Word conveyed to him by Gabriel: "God is one, and Islam submission." This was largely unsuccessful, as the inhabitants of Mecca were polytheistic, with each tribe having its own god or protector. Consequently, Muhammad and his followers migrated some fifty miles north to Medina in A.D. 622, which marks the first year of the Muslim calendar. Here, after leading his followers through several years of armed struggle, Muhammad gathered ten thousand of his men and marched successfully on Mecca. In 632, he returned on a final pilgrimage to Mecca, thus establishing a tradition known as the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, 
which should be undertaken once in a lifetime by all adult Muslims. Months after his return to Medina, Muhammad died at the age of 62. By this time, a large part of the Arabian Peninsula had been converted to Islam. The harsh desert conditions of Arabia dictated a simple life, where a close communal existence was essential for survival. The purity, loyalty and fervent adherence to a common belief required of such a life would be embodied in the five pillars of wisdom central to Islamic faith. Shahada, to profess that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Salat, performance of ritual prayer five times a day. Zakat, giving alms to the poor. Psalm, fasting during the month of Ramadan. And Hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca. These appear in the Hadith, words spoken by Muhammad, but only written down after his death. The Quran and the Hadith form the basis of Muslim law, often known as Sharia law. Following Muhammad's death, the Rashidun Caliphate was established, with its leader, or caliph, being chosen by a democratic consultation amongst elders, or according to the wishes of his predecessor. The fourth caliph was Ali, the cousin and son-in-law of Muhammad, the first to be a direct blood descendant of the Prophet. As such, Ali is regarded as Muhammad's rightful successor by all Shia Muslims. The name Shia derives from Shi'at Ali, partisans of Ali. Sunni Muslims recognize his three predecessors. The Rashidun Caliphate would include a 24-year period of rapid military expansion, with Muslim Arabs completing their conquest of the entire Arabian Peninsula before spreading east across Persia. Ensuing caliphates overran territory as far as Armenia and modern-day Afghanistan, at the same time spreading west through Egypt, and later the littoral of North Africa as far as Tunisia. What accounts for the success of this rapid expansion, which would continue after Ali died in 661, and the consequent establishment of the Umayyad Caliphate? The initial important factor was Muhammad's move from Mecca to Medina. Not for nothing is this seen as year one of the Muslim calendar. By moving away from Mecca, Muhammad and his followers loosened their tribal loyalties and developed a close communal bond, all defending each other against the hostility they encountered from surrounding believers in other tribal gods. It soon became clear to Muhammad that aggression was necessary for survival. At the same time, this also helped gain converts. If Islam was to become more than a local cult in Medina and to fulfill the promise of its core belief in a single god, it needed to expand. The belief in a single, all-powerful deity renders any who believe in different gods nothing less than heretics opposed to the one true faith who must be shown the error of their ways. As a former trader, Muhammad well understood the logistics of economic survival. His initial expansion beyond Medina involved cutting the supply lines to the inland desert cities, which relied upon caravans from the coast. As the number of converts to this single-minded religion increased, so did their fervent belief in themselves. Again and again in history, it will be seen how a well-directed army fired by a belief in its own cause, which instills selflessness and an iron discipline, can produce an all but unstoppable force. Just over a thousand years later, an ill-equipped French army, its soldiery inspired by a belief in the revolution, would conquer Europe. The remnant Persian Empire, Sassanid, and the far-flung eastern edges of the Byzantine Empire provided no match for the zealous Arabs, who quickly absorbed them, introducing their language and beliefs to new lands. 
The ruler Ali would transfer the capital of the caliphate to Kufa in Iraq, which was more strategically placed to rule the expanding empire. However, by the end of his five-year caliphate, a civil war had broken out between the Sunni faction and Ali's Shia faction, which recognized him as the only true successor to Muhammad by way of the bloodline. In 661, whilst Ali was praying at the great mosque of Kufa, he was assassinated. This led to the establishment of the second caliphate, which was ruled by the Umayyad dynasty, who were Sunnis. The first ruler of this caliphate was Muawiyah, who had been the governor of Syria, and his first move was to transfer the capital to Damascus. Despite such internal conflicts, the expansion of the caliphate continued under the Umayyad dynasty. The most notable new conquest was the expansion along the North African coast and the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula, which was at the time occupied by Visigoth Christian kingdoms. Regardless of the Islamic zeal of the conquerors, they remained mindful of Muhammad's explicit command with regard to members of the Abrahamic faith. This included both Jews and Christians. According to Muhammad, these should be permitted to continue practicing their faith as long as they paid the jizya tax. A tribute payable annually to the Muslim authorities. This was usually assessed on the ability of the person to pay, and was invariably more or less greater than the local Muslims paid as part of their zakat, the third pillar of wisdom concerning alms to the poor. Similarly, Christian and Jewish communities were permitted to continue operating according to their own legal systems, leaving them largely autonomous within the caliphate. For this reason, the Umayyad Caliphate may be regarded as a secular state, that is, government was separated from religious authority. In other words, Sharia law, derived from the Quran and Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, was not applied throughout the civil sphere. Such freedom inevitably resulted in certain anomalies. For instance, as the Caliphate expanded beyond the borders of Syria into Anatolia, it found itself fighting the Byzantine Christians. Meanwhile, the many Christians within the borders of Syria were not regarded as the enemy and were permitted to go about their business as before. Even more astonishing is the fact that Muawiyah, the first caliph of the Umayyad dynasty, was even married to a Christian. Despite such apparent contradictions, in practice, this policy only served to strengthen and consolidate Umayyad rule in the new territories. Here we can see that they were in accord with the 20th-century historian Paul Krivacek's insight that empires which allow a certain freedom to their subject peoples tend to be more easy to control and last longer. The conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, along with expansion east as far as the Aral Sea and modern-day Pakistan, left the Umayyad Caliphate ruling over a vast region covering around 4,300,000 square miles and 62 million people. At the time, a third of the world's population. This was the largest empire the world had yet seen, around twice the size of the Roman Empire at its zenith. By 711, the Umayyad conquest of the Iberian Peninsula was complete, and Arab forces now pushed across the Pyrenees, spreading east along the coast of southern France and north into the heartland of France itself. The Umayyads continued to sweep all before them until, in October 732, they reached as far north as Tours, less than 150 miles southwest of Paris. It seemed as if all Western Europe lay at their mercy. However, they now found themselves opposed by the combined forces of Charles Martel, ruler of the Franks, and Odo the Great of Aquitaine. 
The appearance of Martel and the Franks in such numbers caught the Umayyad general Abd al-Rahman by surprise, and Martel formed a square, taking advantage of the hills and woods as cover. Opinions differ as to which side had the largest army, but there is no doubt that Martel had been preparing for this battle for some years. The fearsome Umayyad cavalry was forced to charge uphill through trees. Meanwhile, their infantry was ill-dressed for the cold French autumn. Martel's eventual victory sent the Umayyad army into retreat back across the Pyrenees. In the words of the great 19th-century German historian von Ranke, this battle was the turning point of one of the greatest epochs of European history. Instead of Western Europe becoming an Arab continent, it now meant that Frankish power was established. Within less than 40 years, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, would be crowned king of the Franks and set about establishing an empire that unified much of Western Europe for the first time since the fall of Rome. The Umayyad Caliphate would continue to rule until it came into conflict with the Abbasid Revolution in 750. The Umayyad forces under their white flag were soon overcome by the black flag of the Abbasids and a new caliphate was established. The Abbasid family was descended from Muhammad's uncle Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib, after whom they were named. So, once again, this was a Sunni dynasty, as their caliphs were not directly descended from the Prophet. The Abbasid power base was Persia, and soon after they assumed power, the capital would be transferred to Baghdad. This was to be the beginning of the Golden Age of Islam, when the originally Arab world of the caliphates would take on a distinctly Persian hue. Most famous of its early caliphs was undoubtedly Harun al-Rashid, or Harun the Rightly Guided, who features as the Sultan in the 1001 Nights of Scheherazade. From the outset, the Abbasid caliphs saw it as their duty to promote learning, founding the House of Wisdom. This probably began as the large private library of Harun al-Rashid, which he made available to scholars. It soon evolved into an intellectual centre of learning, attracting scholars of the highest quality. The most significant of its early functions was the sponsoring of the translation movement, which would have a major influence on Arabic thought over the coming six centuries of the caliphate. This movement was responsible for translating works of the ancient Greek mathematicians, physicians, astronomers and philosophers, especially Aristotle. Many of these works had been lost in the West after the fall of the Roman Empire, and the effect of this new knowledge upon Arabic thought cannot be overestimated. It certainly influenced some of the finest minds of the caliphate period, but more than this, it inspired them to original thinking, which was in advance of anything hitherto found in human knowledge. Two incidents serve to illustrate the significance of this to the outside world. In 802, Charlemagne sent a mission of friendship to the court of Harun al-Rashid. This returned with a gift for the king of the Franks in the form of a gilded bronze clock, at a time when no such thing existed throughout Europe. According to the modern French historian André Clos, this clock was a clepsydra, which on the hour sounded a chime and dropped small coloured balls into a pool. At midday, twelve horsemen galloped out of twelve windows in the case. Charlemagne and his courtiers gazed in awe at this wondrous instrument, convinced that it worked by conjuring up magical spirits. The second incident took place some 300 years later, when an English philosopher and traveller named Adelard of Bath returned from a voyage to the Levant, where he had scarcely been able to believe what he had seen and learned. The Arabs had translated hitherto unknown works of Aristotle and the ancient Greeks, thus immeasurably increasing their learning, 
especially in the field of natural philosophy, what we would now call science. They had gone on to achieve amazing feats, such as measuring the circumference of the Earth, a feat achieved by the ancient Greeks but subsequently forgotten. Muslim scholars had also invented algebra and drawn diagrams of how the human body worked. They had discovered new curative ointments and medicines, and had created an astrolabe that could measure the movements of the stars. This latter had enabled the Arabs to make new discoveries in astronomy and vastly improved their ability to navigate when travelling by sea or across deserts. Other Western visitors would confirm Adelard's fabulous stories, even adding to them. One told of a battle in the far northeast of the Caliphate, where the Muslims had taken a number of prisoners of war who had subsequently passed on a secret of their Oriental culture, how to make paper out of rags, which could then be written on. This is now reckoned to refer to the Battle of Talas, which took place in Kazakhstan in 751, the only known conflict between Abbasid and Chinese armies. So, who were these great Arab thinkers? What exactly was the import of their discoveries, and how did they manage to accomplish such feats? The general answer to the last question much resembles the explanation for the sudden explosion of learning in ancient Greece, that is, the separation of religious and scientific thought. The scientists declared that all learning, both spiritual and secular, was understanding the mind of God. Anyone who sought to curtail their researches was thus committing blasphemy. Fortunately, it was several centuries before the religious authorities saw a way around this sophistry, which usurped their all-embracing powers. The treatment of the sick in the courtyards of mosques dated back as far as Muhammad himself and his mosque in Medina. Such places gradually became separate institutions, known as bimaristan, a Persian word for home of the sick. The first great bimaristan was founded in 805 by Harun al-Rashid in Baghdad. Within the first decades of the Abbasid Caliphate, other hospitals had been established in Cairo, Damascus, and Cordoba. The religious influence remained in the fact that all, regardless of sex, race, or religion, could be treated at such institutions and free of charge. On the other hand, the knowledge and practices employed in such hospitals was purely secular. Arab medical scholars made use of the translated works of Aristotle, and in particular Galen. Another religious aspect of such places was the belief that God sends down no malady without also sending down with it a cure. Such belief might not be scientific, but it was certainly an inspiration to those studying medicine who immediately set about seeking cures for the ailments with which they were confronted. As we shall see, one of the reasons for this golden age was that although religion and science were separate, they actually supported one another. Science was a religious quest, inspired by religious belief. The first great scholar to embody this tradition was Al-Razi, often known as Razis in the West, who was born in 854 in Ray, south of the Caspian Sea in Persia. He travelled to Baghdad as a young man, where such was the depth and breadth of his intellect that he was asked by the Abbasid Caliph Al-Mutadid to found a new great hospital, intended to be the finest and greatest in all the Caliphate. An indication of Al-Razi's scientific thought can be seen in the method he used to choose the hospital's location. He selected the district where the fresh meat displayed on the hooks outside the butcher's stalls took the longest to rot. Al-Razi would complete over 200 manuscripts during the course of his 65-year lifetime. In common with other scholars of the day, he did not limit himself to one field. 
His greatest advances may have been in medicine, where he wrote pioneering work on contagious diseases and anatomy, but he also made original contributions to fields from logic to astronomy, grammar and philosophy. The Baghdad of this era was one of the wonders of the world. Sailing ships from as far afield as Cathay, as China was then known, and Zanzibar tied up at the palm-fringed keys along the Euphrates River. At the heart of Baghdad lay the famed two-mile-wide round city with its three rings of defensive walls, within which stood the golden palace of the caliphs and the grand mosque. From here, four axial roads ran out to the four corners of the Arabic Empire. In suburbs beyond the walls were villas with shaded gardens and tinkling fountains. Beyond lay the teeming bazaars, whose stalls displayed cinnamon from Sumatra, cloves from Zanzibar, and a plethora of goods in between. On the streets, entertainments ranged from fire eaters and sword swallowers to turbaned storytellers, recounting many of the same tales that appear in One Thousand and One Nights. But these magical narratives were far from being the only great literature produced during this golden era. Perhaps best known in the West is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Which would cause a sensation when it was translated some seven hundred years later by the Victorian English poet Edward Fitzgerald. Omar Khayyam himself remains a somewhat mysterious figure who achieved renown in his lifetime as an astronomer and a mathematician. His Rubaiyat or poems in quatrains first appeared in a biography written about him over forty years after his death. Since then, as many as two thousand quatrains have been attributed to him. Though some of these are certainly not his work, there is no doubting the quality of the poetry itself. Here, with a loaf of bread beneath the bough, a flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness, and wilderness is paradise enow. This was hardly the orthodox way to paradise, and Omar Khayyam soon found himself facing a charge of impiety, whereupon he took the precaution of leaving town on a pilgrimage. One of the great scholars of the Abbasid Caliphate was Muhammad al-Khwarizmi, who in 820 was appointed head librarian at the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. Al-Khwarizmi would produce works on astronomy, geography, and also mathematics. The last field would see his most permanent contributions. It was he who popularized the Hindu-Arabic numerals, which introduced a decimal counting system that freed mathematics from previous cumbersome methods of calculation. His name, Al-Khwarizmi, has come down to us in the word algorithm, a process or set of general rules for solving specific problems. But most important of all was his work, The Book on Calculation, whose Arabic title contains the word algebra, meaning the reunion of broken parts. This is a penetrating metaphorical description of how we solve an equation with unknown quantities, and is the Arabic from which we derive the word algebra. In the Hadith, Muhammad explicitly forbade figurative representation, in case this led to idol worship. Consequently, Arabic art became sublimated into highly abstract forms such as patterned tiles and calligraphy. The walls of mosques, both great and small, contained superb examples of these Islamic forms of artistry. Here, in calligraphy, language and prayer took on a combined beauty of their own, whilst tiles exhibited complex geometric patterns and ingenious, intricate symmetries that still intrigue mathematicians to this day. Muhammad even taught his daughter Fatima calligraphy, and this practice was taken up by many women within the confines of the harem. Cut off from normal socialising, some of these women studied and became scholars in their own right. 
These scholars became renowned as teachers of women students. Little mention is made of such educated women, owing to the oppressive patriarchy of the society. However, we catch a tantalizing glimpse in one of the tales related by Shahrazade. Briefly, the story tells of how an Arab slave girl called Tawadud was offered to the caliph, but her owner wanted him to pay an extortionate sum on account of her exceptional learning. To test this, the caliph summoned to his palace all the most learned men in the land so that they could question her. First, a scholar of the Quran began questioning her, and she gave correct answers to all his questions. Then she asked him a question which he could not answer. The caliph ordered that the scholar be stripped of his robes and cast out in disgrace. Next, a physician questioned her on details of anatomy and medicine. Tawadud correctly answered all his questions, even apparently citing works of Galen as her authority. The physician was forced to concede to the caliph, "This damsel is more learned than I in medicine." Finally, a philosopher questioned her on the nature of time, admitting defeat when she solved a mathematical riddle he posed. The caliph then offered to pay one hundred thousand gold pieces for Tawadud, at the same time offering to grant her any request she chose. She replied that she wanted to return to her master, whereupon the caliph rewarded them both with a place at his court. In 1095, the eastern Mediterranean coast of the Abbasid Caliphate began coming under attack from the western armies of the Crusaders. These had been ordered by Pope Urban II to go to the assistance of the Byzantine Emperor, who was under threat from the Seljuk Turks, Sunni allies of the Abbasids. The Frankish warriors of the First Crusade then invaded the Holy Land of their Christian heritage. By 1099, they had conquered Jerusalem and soon set up permanent Christian kingdoms along the hinterland of the Eastern Mediterranean. Only when Saladin, a Sunni Muslim of Kurdish descent, led the Islamic armies, would the Crusaders meet their match, with Jerusalem being retaken in 1187. By now, the Abbasid Caliphate was beginning to fall apart, with various regions becoming virtually autonomous. Then, without warning, in 1257, a vast army of Mongols suddenly poured into Abbasid territory from the northeast, sweeping all before them. By January 1258, Baghdad itself was under siege. The following month, the city was overrun, sacked, and burnt to the ground. From this time on, the center of power in the Islamic Levant would move east to Cairo, where an Abbasid caliphate would soon be re-established. But the golden era of the Baghdad Caliphate was over. The caliphs now only held religious power, with the resident Mamluks holding the political and military power. Despite this blow, one part of the old Islamic empire continued to flourish. For years, Al-Andalus, the Iberian Peninsula, had been a virtually autonomous province of the empire, ruled over by the Emir of Cordoba. Indeed, such was the independence of the Emirate of Cordoba that it retained its allegiance to the old Umayyad Caliphate, and soon its cultural magnificence had even begun to rival that of Abbasid Baghdad. By as early as the 10th century, the city of Cordoba had grown to an estimated population of 500,000, making it the largest city in Europe. In the empire, only Baghdad and possibly Cairo were larger; the former having a population of around 800,000. With a mix of Islamic, Christian, and Jewish people living in comparative harmony, Cordoba had become a great financial, political, and cultural center. Even the second city of this independent emirate became a wonder of Islamic Europe. 
Granada, located almost 2,500 feet up in the cool Sierra Nevada, with its fabled Alhambra Palace and gardens, would in time become independent of Cordoba. In this way, Granada was able to provide trade links between the Arabic world and the Christian provinces that were gradually making inroads into Al-Andalus in the north. This trade link reached south across the Mediterranean to the Berber territories of North Africa and thence across the Sahara. Sahara is simply the Arabic word for desert. These trade links carried caravans of gold from the mines of Mali as well as salt, ivory and slaves north from Timbuktu. In the opposite direction, this trade route was also responsible for the spread of the Islamic religion to West Africa. Later, Granada would become a great centre of Jewish civic influence and culture until the delicate balance of multi-religious tolerance was upset, resulting in the 1066 Massacre of the Jews. Al-Andalus would produce one of the greatest philosophers of the Arabic Golden Age. This was Ibn Rushd, who was born in Cordoba in 1126. Like so many of the other great Arabic scholars of this era, he was a polymath, writing works on everything from physics to jurisprudence. He travelled to Marrakesh in the Islamic province of Morocco, where he made astronomical observations, attempting unsuccessfully to discover physical laws that might explain the movement of the stars in the heavens. In later life, he was appointed as a Qadi, judge of the Sharia court in Cordoba, but fell out of favour and was banished by the emir. He is best remembered for his voluminous commentaries on the works of Aristotle. Many of these would be translated into Latin and began circulating amongst scholars in Europe. Here, Ibn Rushd's name became westernised to Averroes. Such was his influence on medieval Christian thought that it led to a philosophy known as Averroism. This included a mystical strain which claimed that all humanity shared the same eternal consciousness. The Moroccan province was also the birthplace in 1304 of Ibn Battuta, the Islamic scholar who became the greatest traveller the world had yet seen. The extent of his travels by camel, horse and boat continues to astonish to this day. According to his verified account, his voyages would range east around India as far as China, south beyond Timbuktu, along the coast of East Africa beyond Zanzibar, and north around the Black Sea and the Caspian. In other words, Ibn Battuta travelled the length and breadth of the known world, or the extent of the world that was known to Arab traders. And this is the point. Before being a religious and military leader, Muhammad had been a trader. And after the early conquests, the Arab Muslims merely continued in this trading tradition, both by land and especially by sea. The most far-flung points that Ibn Battuta reached were already part of the Muslim world. For instance... Muslim traders first reached China as early as the 7th century, with the religion soon establishing itself amongst the local people. Similarly, the Berber traders crossing the Sahara from North Africa first brought Islam to sub-Saharan Africa in the 9th century, when with the aid of missionaries, it soon began to supplant the local African religions in Mali and a wide swathe of territory reaching from Senegal to the Sudan. During the period when Ibn Battuta was travelling the world, Christian forces continued pressing further and further south through Al-Andalus. The last Arabic stronghold to fall was the Emirate of Granada in 1492. But this was far from the end of Islamic power in Europe. In a counterbalancing movement, the Ottoman Caliphate had prevailed in Anatolia, finally conquering Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire in 1453, before pressing on into the Balkans. But the story of this great empire, 
is yet to come. As we have seen, by now the earliest centers of civilization in Asia and North Africa, ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and the Yellow River, had spread across their separate regions and gone on to become linked to each other through trade routes. In the era prior to this, they had developed largely in isolation. Yet around the fifth century BC, these entirely separate civilizations had reached a surprisingly similar stage of human evolution. They had each produced an exceptional figure of such stature that he would transform the intellectual development of his peoples for centuries, even millennia to come. China had produced Confucius, whose ideas would continue to play a formative role in Chinese thought right down to the present. His teachings had emphasized self-development with the aim of improvement. India had produced Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, whose emphasis had been on spiritual development in order to overcome the wicked illusions of this world. And ancient Greece had produced Socrates, who had instructed his followers to question themselves in order to know themselves. Quite separately, it seems, each of these branches of humanity had, in its own way, evolved a means to individuality. This leads to the interesting question. Was such self-understanding a necessary stage through which human evolution was bound to pass? Indeed, was this part of our common humanity? This is difficult to answer for the simple reason that not all civilizations would sustain the means for such an attainment to flourish. Self-reflection was a luxury for the few at the best of times. During more harsh periods, it would seem to be all but eradicated in the cause of a powerful collectivism that claimed an overwhelming benefit for the common good. We have seen how an idea or a new religion can galvanize a people. Not for nothing does the word religion come from the Latin religare, the thing which binds us. The next empire we encounter will have a similarly powerful driving force, harking back to an almost pre-individualistic collectivism. In so doing, we return to the empire that overran Baghdad in 1258, putting an end to the glories of the Abbasid Caliphate. Chapter Four: The Mongol Empire. Just as the Huns, the Goths, and the Vandals had driven all before them some eight centuries previously, so would the Mongols prove an irresistible force as they spread out from their homeland across the Eurasian landmass. In migrant tribes of hunter-gatherers living off the land through which they passed, every man was a warrior. Such migrations could support roaming bands of a few hundred people at most. The next stage of human development involved shepherds. In such societies too, every man was a warrior. But as the warriors brought their sustenance with them in herds, they could move in larger groups. This was how Muhammad could gather ten thousand men for his march on Mecca. The third stage of development involved settled pastoral people. Such societies were more sophisticated. The surplus of their produce could support leisure and culture, as well as a standing army. Yet, ironically, these cultured societies were no match for the migrations of what were essentially barbarian tribesmen, as the Romans discovered. And now, almost a millennium later, the peoples of the eastern and the western worlds would be forced to learn this lesson anew, as the Mongol hordes poured out from their eastern fastness across two continents. No great empire is fundamentally unique, but the Mongol Empire would contain sufficient anomalies to set it apart from almost all other empires, both before and since, great and small. Its history, even its very existence, is beset with contradictions. 
This would be the largest contiguous land empire the world has ever seen, stretching from the Pacific to the eastern borders of Germany. Yet it would prove the most short-lived great empire in history. It would be an empire that tolerated all religions, from Islam to Christianity and Buddhism, from shamanism to Judaism and Taoism. Yet it would also forbid many of these religions from carrying out their most sacred practices. For instance, followers of Islam were forbidden to slaughter meat in the halal manner. Likewise, Jews were forbidden to eat kosher and practice circumcision. All citizens of the Mongol Empire had to follow the Mongol method of eating. Similarly, the Mongol edicts against polluting water, which precluded the washing of clothes or even bodies, particularly during summer, hardly endeared them to religions that held a strong connection between purity and godliness, with an abhorrence of the unclean. Other similar contradictions abounded. Despite the vast area of its conquests, the Mongol Empire would leave scattered ruins and no great buildings. The only magnificent monument that the Mongols caused to be created was the Great Wall of China, which had been intended to keep the Mongols out. This was an empire notorious for the vast slaughter it inflicted on its enemies, yet it would leave behind in Europe a legacy that caused an even greater death toll in the form of the Black Death. Even its emperors present us with a conundrum. Its first emperor, Genghis Khan, would go down in history as probably the most bloodthirsty conqueror of all time, an often genocidal invader who swept into oblivion those in his path. Yet the last ruler of the Mongol Empire is remembered in the romantic imagination of the West for his fabulous capital, Xanadu. This would be described by the contemporary English traveller Samuel Purchas. In Xanadu, did Kublai Khan build a stately palace, encompassing sixteen miles of plain ground with a wall, wherein are fertile meadows, pleasant springs, delightful streams, and all sorts of beasts of chase and game, and in the midst thereof, a sumptuous house of pleasure, which may be moved from place to place. Now all that remains of Xanadu are ruins circumscribed by a grassy mound where the city walls once stood. Yet Kublai Khan was to be no Ozymandias. In later life, he would leave Xanadu and set up his capital in Kambalik, which means the city of the leader, on the site of what is now the capital of China, namely Beijing. Many centuries have come and gone, yet this city and its great monuments have yet to lie in shattered remnants amidst the lone and level sands. To the north of China, beyond the famously treacherous, shifting, singing sands of the Gobi Desert, and hemmed in by mountains to the north and the west, lie the vast, grassy steppes of the landlocked territory known as Mongolia. This plateau is around five thousand feet above sea level and stretches some one thousand five hundred miles from east to west, and more than five hundred miles from north to south. It has been occupied by nomadic tribesmen since time immemorial. Historians estimate this as being since around 2000 BC. The origin myths of these people were entirely vocal, and over the centuries they have become muddled with Buddhist and shamanistic folklore from surrounding peoples. But one thing remains certain: these tribal nomads regarded the wolf as their legendary ancestor, and they strove to emulate his qualities: cunning, ferocity, and the strength of the pack. The Mongols may have identified themselves with the wolf. But the one animal these tribesmen cherished above all others was the horse. Mongolian horses were, and remain to this day, a sturdy, stocky breed of amazing endurance. Wandering free, they subsist on grass alone and are able to withstand the extremes of temperature that characterize this otherwise empty region. 
In summer, the heat rises to over 30 degrees centigrade. In winter, it falls to minus 40 degrees centigrade. The nomadic Mongol tribes developed an intense and symbiotic relationship with their herds of horses, which provided them with their every need. Horse meat was food. The long tails and manes of these animals could be woven into ropes. Their skin could be used to reinforce the felt of the tent-like gur against the piercing cold wind. Their dung provided fuel, and their mares provided milk. Boiled and dried into chunks, this could be stored and carried. Fermented, it provided acidic-tasting alcoholic kumis. Productive mares could be milked up to six times a day, and in times of extremity, especially when engaged in warfare, the tribesmen learned to slit a vein in their horse's neck, providing a small cup of blood which would keep them alive. Though the horses roamed free, they were trained to respond to their master's call or whistle like dogs. When the tribesmen were pursuing an enemy, they would bring along anything up to half a dozen horses each, so that they always had a fresh mount. Although the horses only weighed around five hundred pounds, they could carry loads well in excess of their body weight. When ridden, they could gallop over six miles without a break. In the frigid cold of a winter's night, a Mongol would snuggle up against his horse for warmth. When they reached water, the rider would kneel down beside his mount to drink. Yet, although a Mongol tribesman could always distinguish each of his collection of horses by its skin markings, he never gave them names. It was almost as if his horses were part of him and needed no alien designation. As the population on the steppe multiplied, the various Mongol tribes began to fight over territory. These tough, warlike people with their pony-sized steeds soon became fearsome warriors. The saddles on which they rode had short stirrups, so that the rider could guide his horse with his legs, enabling him to use his arms to fire lethal metal-tipped arrows from his short bow with great accuracy. Tied to the saddle behind him was an array of weapons, which might include a scimitar, daggers, and a mace or a hatchet, as well as a leather bottle of milk. For armor, he wore cured horse skin studded with metal. Over the centuries, a body of strict rules grew up concerning the treatment of horses, and woe betide any who broke them. This was exemplified in Genghis Khan's order: seize and beat any man who breaks them. Any man who ignores this decree, cut off his head where he stands. The man we know as Genghis Khan was born in a remote northeast corner of the Mongolian plateau, where the Siberian winds blow in from the mountains to the north. According to a local legend, seemingly undiluted by later folklore, these Mongols originated from the forests on the slopes of the mountains when the blue grey wolf mated with the beautiful red doe, who gave birth by the shore of a large lake to the first of the Mongols, Batachikan. The large lake is assumed to be Lake Baikal in modern-day Russia. Some time after this, Batachikan's descendants left the forests for the steppe, where they settled along the Onon River. The Mongols saw themselves as different from the neighboring Tatar and Turkic tribesmen, claiming descent through the ancient Huns who founded their first empire in the region during the third century. Hun is the Mongolian for human being. It was these Huns who, in the fourth and fifth centuries, migrated west across Asia and into Europe, where they dispersed the Germanic tribes, the Vandals and the Goths, causing the movement of peoples that brought down the Roman Empire and ushered in the so-called Dark Ages. Life on the steppe was hard for the Mongols. The chill Siberian winds brought intermittent rainfall. This froze on the mountainside in winter, melting in summer to flow down into blue lakes, which spilled into rivers, 
bringing water to the vast parched grasslands that stretched to the empty horizon. Sometimes there would be no rainfall for years on end, with the sky remaining like a vast blue dome over the landscape. The endless blue sky, which spread from horizon to horizon in all directions, was worshipped as the one true god by these people. It was he who brought the clouds bearing rain. Modern climatologists have discovered that sometime after the birth of Genghis Khan, climate change began to moderate the weather of the region for several decades. This brought warmer temperatures and more rainfall. As a result, there was a widespread increase in grass. Herds of horses and other livestock were able to multiply, as did the tribesmen. The inevitable result was increasing tension between the nomadic tribesmen over large expanses of coveted land with no natural barriers. Without warning, tribesmen attacked the isolated gur of rival tribes, carrying off young women and boys into slavery. Outnumbered, the menfolk fled, carrying off their finest horses and wives in order to warn their allies, so that they could return to fight another day. Revenge was a constant driving force. Into this world in 1162 was born a child named Timujin, who would only later assume the name Genghis Khan. Timujin was the son of Yesuge, a leader of the important Borjigin clan, which lived close to the site of modern Ulaanbaatar. Timujin's early life was hard and brutal. When he was just nine, his father was poisoned, and his tribe cast out his mother Olun and all the family children. The oldest of these was Bekta, who was not directly related to any of them, being a son from Olun's murdered husband's previous marriage. Forced to scavenge for a living on the barren steppe, the close-knit family group hunted and foraged to stay alive, catching fish in the Onon River before it froze over for the winter. An intense rivalry grew up between Bekta and Timujin, which came to a head when Timujin learned that Bekta intended to take Olun as his wife. Whereupon Timujin stalked Bekta and slew him with an arrow. Bekta's last words to his brother are said to have been, "Now you have no companion other than your shadow." As far as can be gathered, Timujin was probably not yet even a teenager. At this point, it is worth pausing to examine how we have come to know these events in such detail. The story of Genghis Khan's life is recorded at some length in the Secret History of the Mongols, the Bible of the Mongol people. This was written in the vertical lines of original Mongol script by an anonymous scribe some years after Timujin's death. The Secret History of the Mongols remained unknown to the West until a Chinese version was discovered by the 19th-century Russian monk Pyotr Kafarov during his travels in China. However, a faithful translation from the reconstructed Mongol text would not be made until as late as 1941 by the German sonologist Erik Hainisch. The work's flavor is biblical, and the accuracy of its text is of a similar order. In other words, it remains sacred to its people. Yet, apart from its mythological opening, it would seem to be a quasi-accurate narrative. This being confirmed by contemporary hearsay accounts passed down in stories. The ancient Mongol language would remain purely verbal until Genghis Khan ordered the adoption of the script used by the Uyghur Turks. These were the occupants of the large Xinjiang region of northwest China, which lies to the west of modern Mongolia, separated by the Gobi Desert. In the original Uyghur script and its Mongol variant, the letters of each word are written from top to bottom, that is to say, vertically in lines of words. These complete lines are then read in sequence from left to right. 
The anonymous author of the secret history of the Mongols indicates that it was finished in the year of the mouse. The Mongols copied the Chinese calendar, which is based on a twelve-year cycle, with each year named after a different animal. Scholars scrutinizing the events mentioned in the text have come to the conclusion that the secret history was written in 1228, 1240, or perhaps even 1252. We can now return to the adolescent fratricide, Timujin. When he arrived back at the family encampment, he encountered his mother, Olun. With a mother's acumen, she realized at once what he had done. Immediately, she flew into a rage, screaming at her son the very same words that the dying Bekta had uttered to him. Now you have no companion other than your shadow. The psychology bred into Mujin by the simplicity and savagery of this almost primeval world can barely be imagined. Europe may have been a thousand miles distant, but it might as well have been a thousand years away. On the other side of the world, Western civilization had begun to stir once more. With a mature medieval culture beginning to emerge, great Gothic cathedrals were being built at Reims and Chartres. Universities were already well established at places such as Oxford, Bologna, and Paris. Meanwhile, in the Arab Empire, amidst great cities such as Baghdad and Cordoba, the mosques and bazaars were thronged with populations numbering in the hundreds of thousands. And to the south of Mongolia, in nearby China, behind the protection of the Great Wall, the Jin Dynasty. Under the Emperor Shisong was entering a period of peace and prosperity. This was a time of scholars and poets, wood blocks printing the texts of Confucius, and artists painting the birds and landscapes of the Chinese countryside. Meanwhile, in 1177, when Tumujin was 15, he was taken captive by marauding tribesmen who led him off to slavery in a kang. This consisted of two large, heavy, flat pieces of wood, carved so that they could be clapped close around the prisoner's neck. The weight of the wood was a painful burden, and its size meant the prisoner was unable to feed himself with his hands, leaving him utterly dependent on his master. Miraculously, Tumujin managed to persuade one of the tribesmen to help him escape. During this and his consequent adventures, Tumujin appears to have exhibited a winning charisma, inducing people to help him and then to join up with him. Prior to the death of Timujin's father, he had arranged for his son to be betrothed to a girl called Berta in order to form an alliance with another powerful Mongol clan. Timujin now travelled to the Ongirat tribe to claim his bride. No sooner had he married Berta than he was kidnapped by neighbouring tribesmen. Timujin immediately led a campaign to avenge this crime and soon retook his wife. Tales of Timujin's escape from slavery and his bold rescue of Berta earned him a high reputation for bravery and leadership. He soon rose up the tribal hierarchy, becoming a tribal chief. By means of tactical alliances and tribal warfare, Timujin eventually established himself as leader of all the Mongol tribes. By 1206, he had become ruler of all the neighboring tribes, including the Turkic Tatars and Uyghurs. A gathering of the tribes. A kuriltai was held, and Timujin was acknowledged as Genghis Khan, leader of all the people living in felt tents. This unprepossessing title would soon strike fear into the hearts of all who heard it. Genghis Khan was now undisputed ruler of the entire plateau, from the Gobi Desert in the south to the Arctic tundra in the north, from the Manchurian forests in the east to the Altai Mountains of the west. Realizing that this Mongol alliance would soon fall apart if it was not united and put to some use, in 1209, Genghis Khan launched a series of raids into nearby foreign territories.
In 1211, spurred on by the sheer exultation of victory, Genghis Khan and his burgeoning army of horsemen rode south into northern China. The success of his furious but disciplined primitive army was beyond belief. Within the next few years, Genghis Khan had overthrown the Jin dynasty. As he later explained, heaven had grown weary of the excessive pride and luxury of the Chinese. I am from the barbaric north. I wear the same clothing and eat the same food as the cowherds and horse herders. We make the same sacrifice and share the same riches. I look upon the nation as a newborn child, and I care for my soldiers as if they were my sons. Prior to this, Genghis Khan went on, he had merely been interested in plunder. But now he had ridden south and succeeded in something that no one else had ever achieved in history. He had defeated the Chinese. And from them, his army had learned how to use siege engines, catapults, and even gunpowder. Genghis Khan now turned his eyes to the west and prepared to launch an attack upon kingdoms and empires with long histories and fabled cities, the like of which neither he nor his men had even dreamt existed. From now on, he vowed, he would unite the whole world in one empire. Which brings us to the question of sideways history. Normally, history is conceived as running in a linear trajectory. This may be seen as a vertical timeline on a graph. Sideways history may be seen as a horizontal line, taking account of various stages of history running in parallel. This is best illustrated by the 20th century economist Milton Friedman, who observed that when he was living in San Francisco, he found himself living amidst almost the entire history of economics in its various stages of development. Around him, he saw a great variety of immigrant communities and different classes, Chinatown, the Italian district, and many other social groups, each making use of their own cultural form of economic life. There was barter economy, credit economy, deferred debt economy, capital economy, and even the simple quasi-socialist communal economy practiced by religious communities. Economics in all its history was alive and thriving around him. Much the same can be said of the empires and countries occupying the Eurasian landmass in the early 13th century. In the east, there was the highly stratified Chinese empire. From the Near East to Spain was the Abbasid Caliphate, an essentially religious society which still tolerated a degree of secular thinking in the form of science and philosophy. In Russia and Eastern Europe, tyrannies of primitive serfdom flourished. Meanwhile, in Western Europe, a variety of social administrations had sprung up. These ranged from democracy in Florence to absolute monarchy in France, along with oligarchy in Venice. Whilst in England, there was a kingdom on the verge of the Magna Carta, which would grant citizens inalienable rights. Almost all of these societies were evolving, more or less slowly, as they sought to absorb the political, social, economic and scientific advances that were stirring into life. Progress and survival would soon be the order of the day. All this begs a number of basic questions. What precisely is social progress? Who should benefit from it? And what is its aim? Indeed, does it even have an ultimate end, a utopia? These difficult questions remain without a final answer to this day, when it appears that liberal social democracy and economic advance are far from being the inevitable course of future civilization. Such questions will begin to arise of their own accord as we examine the empires that come into being in more progressive times, and as we shall see, any attempt to find even a provisional answer to them is not easy. 
Such questions continue to nag at our empire-building impulse. However, it would seem that one thing can be stated for certain: the spread of the Mongol Empire across Eurasia did not result in what anyone would see as progress. Or did it? History moves in mysterious ways; its blunders to perform. Despite the massive destruction involved in the Mongol invasion, some have seen this clearing of the ground as a necessary prelude, sweeping away the social, political, and cultural rigidities which prepared the way for the more adaptable, more progressive civilization to come. But first, we must see what this freeing up of history involved. In 1211, the Mongol invasion led by Genghis Khan swept westwards like fire burning through a map, and with similar results. They rode for thousands of miles through southern Siberia, across the Turkic lands, and then onto the Khwarazmian Empire. This empire of five million people occupied Greater Persia and Western Afghanistan, as far north as the Aral Sea. Its territory included historic cities such as Samarkand and Bukhara, which had grown rich from the Silk Route trade between China and Europe. Yet this large and sophisticated empire fell within two years to Genghis Khan's army. How on earth did Genghis Khan and his army of primitive horsemen achieve all this, and with such speed? There was no doubting the efficiency and ferocity of his fighting men, organized in tumen, units of ten thousand men galloping behind their black horsehair tug banner. But how did Genghis Khan manage to instill discipline amongst such fiercely independent horsemen? How did he make them follow his pre-arranged tactics and commands? The life of the Chinese military theoretician Sun Tzu, who wrote *The Art of War* around 500 BC, offers a clue here. Sun Tzu was ordered to appear before his leader, who had read his book and wished to test its author's theory on how to manage soldiers. Could it even be applied to women, for instance? Of course, replied Sun Tzu. Whereupon he divided the leader's 180 concubines into two companies, each armed with spears, selecting a leader for each company. He then attempted to drill the two groups, passing on orders to their leaders, but all of the young women simply burst out laughing. Sun Tzu explained to his leader, "If words of command are not clear and thoroughly understood, then the general is to blame." He ordered the leader of each group to be beheaded, replacing them with a different leader. When the next orders were given to the leaders and passed on to the two groups, both groups carried out their orders with alacrity and great efficiency. Although Genghis Khan certainly never read Sun Tzu, his method of instilling discipline amongst his men was remarkably similar. As for the rest, Genghis Khan knew the speed, endurance, and ruthlessness of his horsemen, and employed his lightning tactics accordingly. A typical move was for him to use heavy firepower to blast a passage through the enemy lines for his cavalry units, which were then deployed with maximum efficiency. Piercing the enemy line and then fanning out behind their rear, cutting their supply lines and instilling panic, which caused the enemy to flee in all directions. Communication between separate units was maintained by the use of flags. Indeed, it is to the Mongols that we owe the art of semaphore. The lasting effect of these tactics can be seen in the fact that the German Second World War Panzer General Heinz Guderian, the master of Blitzkrieg, identified the inspiration of his tactics as Genghis Khan. Though the ruthlessness with which Genghis Khan followed through on his tactics is another matter, according to Khan's biographer Jack Weatherford, the objective of such tactics was simple and always the same: to frighten the enemy into surrendering before an actual battle began.
Any who then resisted could expect the very worst. After taking Samarkand, Genghis Khan ordered the entire population to be assembled in the plain outside the city walls. Here they were systematically butchered, their severed heads arranged in pyramids. In Bukhara, as his Mongol soldiers burnt the city to the ground, Genghis Khan addressed the wailing remnant population in the main mosque, announcing that he was the flail of God sent to punish them for their sins. When the Khan's Mongol army took Gurganj, the capital of the Khwarazmian Empire, the 13th century Persian scholar Juvaini recorded that Genghis Khan's 50,000 Mongol soldiers were commanded by their leader to kill 24 citizens each. As there were not enough citizens to meet this command, and the soldiers well understood the punishment for not fulfilling their leader's orders to the letter, the ensuing swift and competitive slaughter of several hundred thousand people resulted in what has been called the bloodiest massacre in human history. An enigmatic, somewhat bland portrait of Genghis Khan in his later years conveys little of the sheer terror his presence could inspire. It was drawn around 45 years after his death, but the artist consulted with men who had known Genghis Khan closely during his lifetime. Originally black and white, it was softened by colour during the following century. Genghis Khan now returned to Mongolia, but dispatched two of his most trusted generals, Chepe and Subutai, north with 20,000 horsemen. This army swept up through the Caucasus and into Russia. Here they were confronted by an army of 80,000 men, which they annihilated. Instead of occupying this territory, they then withdrew. Genghis Khan had ordered that this was to be merely a reconnaissance mission. Such exemplary slaughter brings us to the deeper problem of morality and questions concerning the ethics of conquest and empire. Indeed, is there any such thing as morality involved in the imperial enterprise? The usual justification for such conquest is the spreading of progressive civilization. Beneath this lie even more fundamental questions concerning the ethics of empire and the morality of progressive civilization itself. Is there such a thing as either? And if so, why should we regard such things as universal? Are all human beings equal? Should they all be treated in the same fashion? Should they all be subjected to the same universal laws? If so, what is the ultimate moral law? Over the centuries and over its extensive reach and influence, the Western tradition has come up with surprisingly similar answers. The biblical book of Leviticus, written around 1400 BC, stated, Love your neighbour as yourself. Freud would declare this, the commandment which is impossible to fulfil. Despite this, similar injunctions would appear in Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism and indeed most of the world's major religions. One and a half millennia after Leviticus, Jesus Christ would exhort his followers, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Six centuries later, Muhammad would pronounce, As you would have people do to you, do to them. Over a millennium after this, Europe's leading philosopher, Immanuel Kant, would recognise that such an injunction did not necessarily involve a belief in God. Yet his analysis of ethics led him to a remarkably similar conclusion to all those previous theisms when he declared the fundamental principle of morality to be treat others as you would wish to be treated. It would take another 300 years before modern thinkers recognised that such a sentiment was inadequate. As Freud understood, it is psychologically impossible to maintain such a stance on a permanent basis. This was simply not how we actually lived or behaved in a social setting. Our moral thinking did not work like this.
the Lebanese-American thinker Nassim Taleb has transmogrified this basic principle of morality into a maxim that more closely reflects our moral needs, ethical thinking, and behaviour. Do not to others what you don't want them to do to you. The inapposite double negative may make it less easily comprehensible. Is it simply a sleight of hand reversal or turning inside out of the Leviticus Christ Kant maxim? Examine it carefully. It is not. This would seem closer to a basic instruction for the guidance of our actual moral behaviour. Not so much love thy neighbour as proceed with due care. It's not difficult to see Genghis Khan adhering to this maxim. For a boy whose father had been murdered, whose stepbrother had plotted to marry his mother, and who had been taken into slavery, enduring the pain and humiliation of the Kang, he can have been under few illusions about what others wanted to do to him. And he had certainly chosen to act accordingly, pyramids of skulls and all. In fact, the question of morality and empire remains open, leaving us with little but clichés. Might is right. History is written by the victors, and so forth. Only the hindsight of historians begins to add any perspective to such views. But this comes later. Where empires are concerned, the certainty of the present often prevails with much the same conviction as that held by Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan would die at the age of sixty-five in twelve twenty-seven, ironically from injuries sustained from falling off his horse while crossing the Gobi Desert. Genghis Khan's grave has yet to be found. According to legend, a river was diverted over his burial place so that it would never be discovered. Such a ritual harks back to the beginnings of historical time. Both Gilgamesh and Attila the Hun are said to have been buried in the same way. Even before Genghis Khan's death, a Kurultai had been called to decide who amongst his sons should be his successor. This had broken up in acrimony. Following his death, the empire was divided into several khanates governed by his sons. However, his third son Ogedai would eventually be recognized as the second great Khan of the Mongol Empire. Ogedai was renowned for his love of alcohol, and on his installation as Khan, he became so drunk that he threw open his father's treasury and riotously distributed all the riches stored there. Despite such an inauspicious start, Ogedai would prove a more than competent ruler. He was not inclined to lead the Mongol armies on campaigns and preferred to remain in his capital. Karakorum, overseeing the campaigns and organizing the administration, the gathering of taxes throughout the empire was modelled on the Chinese system, with the monies being collected by local tax farmers. Likewise, paper money was circulated, backed by silver. At the time, paper itself remained a novelty in Europe, let alone paper money. The problem of communications throughout the vast empire had already been solved by Genghis Khan. Who instituted a network of relay stations? As the Mongol army moved at speed, its communication system had to be even faster. Messengers riding on relays of horses could cover more than 150 miles a day over almost any terrain. Such speeds and efficiency would not be matched for over 600 years until the advent of the Trans-American Pony Express. Although Ogedai did not lead his men into battle, the empire continued to expand under his reign. Pushing far into Europe, in 1241 the Mongols won the Battle of Legnica in Poland, and Western Europe lay at their feet. News then spread throughout the empire of Ogedai's death, and the commanders rode back as fast as they could to take part in the Kurultai to elect a new leader. By such chance was Europe saved from a Mongol invasion.
An uncannily similar situation would arise in 1258 after the Mongols had overrun the Abbasid capital Baghdad. Egypt and the remnants of the entire Abbasid Empire lay at their feet. Then news came through that the fourth great Khan, Monke Khan, had died, and the leaders once more galloped off east for the Kuraltai, leaving behind an ill-organized Mongol army. In 1260, this was defeated in Palestine by the Mamluks at the Battle of Ain Jalut. Egypt, North Africa, and Al-Andalus were spared the Mongol onslaught. In that same year, Kublai Khan became the fifth great Khan of the Mongol Empire. During his reign, the empire definitively split into four separate khanates. Instead of attempting to reunite the empire, Kublai Khan turned his attention south to China, moving his capital to Kambalik, Beijing, with the intention of forming an entirely new empire. The three khanates to the west of Kublai Khan's realm were the Golden Horde, occupying the territory north of the Black Sea and the Caspian, extending north and east into what is now Russia and Kazakhstan. The Chagatai Khanate, Afghanistan and northeast Central Asia, south of the Golden Horde, and the Ilkhanate, Greater Persia and west into Anatolia. All of these would convert to Islam, hence Ilkhanate, while Kublai Khan's realm adopted Buddhism. The Golden Horde would eventually give way to Russia, but not before it had dealt a blow which turned the course of European history. In 1348, Mongols of the Golden Horde were besieging the Crimean city of Kaffa, modern Feodosia, which was then a Black Sea trading port of the Genoese. When there was an outbreak of bubonic plague in the Mongol army, they catapulted plague-ridden corpses over the walls. Some claimed this as the earliest example of germ warfare. Consequently, ships sailing from Kaffa to Europe transported the plague to Italy. Within half a dozen years, the Black Death, as it came to be known, had spread across Europe from Lisbon to Novgorod, from Sicily to Norway. In the process, killing between thirty to sixty percent of the entire population, probably accounting for over one hundred million deaths. A proto-renaissance of European culture, inspired by a variety of disparate sources, such as the Sicilian court of Frederick the Great, Stupa Mundi, scientific and philosophical ideas imported from the Muslim world, and the new naturalistic painting of the Italian Giotto, was halted in its tracks, delaying the actual Italian Renaissance by a century. Chapter Five: The Yuan Dynasty. Kublai Khan proclaimed the Yuan Dynasty in 1271 and set about completing his conquest of the Song Dynasty of southern China, which would eventually unite North and South China for the first time since the Song Dynasty had split off from the Jin Dynasty almost 150 years previously. China has traditionally flourished during periods when the North and South have been united. Unification would always prove difficult over such a vast region, although the people occupying this region are and have been throughout history, for the most part, homogeneous Han Chinese. Any consideration of Chinese history must be seen from the perspective of its long past, as well as the effect this may well have upon its future, and thus the future of world history. Effects and influences can take centuries to be understood. According to the story, when China's 20th-century communist ruler Chairman Mao was asked in the 1960s about the impact of the French Revolution, he is said to have replied, "It is too early to tell." Subsequent sources, hampered by a similar lack of hard facts, claim that this remark was really made by his prime minister Zhou Enlai, who was said to have been referring to the Paris 1968 Student Revolution.
The Chairman Mao version better illustrates the Chinese attitude towards historical effect. Even in Chinese communism, it is possible to detect age-old Buddhist influences, which coloured attitudes back through the dynasties to the Yuan period and beyond. Unlike the previous empires we have discussed, which had their own origin myths, the Yuan dynasty, which ran from 1271 to 1368, was born out of a succession of previous dynasties. By the time of its birth, dynastic China was already a mature culture with a recognisable quasi-continuous history. As previously mentioned, Chinese Han civilization evolved independently in the Yellow River Basin of central China around 2000 BC. That is to say, a millennium or so after the Mesopotamian and Nilotic civilizations. Out of this Han civilization, the legendary first Xia dynasty is said to have developed. Han rule gradually spread by migration and assimilation, which included the process of Sinicization, the adoption of the same diet, writing, language, lifestyle, and general culture of the Han. The original dynasty of United Imperial China was the Qin Dynasty, which began in 221 BC. This covered a territory recognizable as China, stretching from the borders of modern Manchuria as far south as modern Vietnam and west towards Sichuan. Qin is generally recognized as the origin of the name China. This dynasty is today remembered for its founding emperor Qin Shi Huang, who died in 210 BC, leaving behind him a terracotta army. Whose purpose was to protect him in the afterlife. Surprisingly, this was only discovered by accident in 1974 by some local farmers digging a well, which penetrated a vast hollow underground mausoleum. The making of Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum is a feat in many ways comparable to the construction of the Sphinx and the pyramids. His army consisted of over 8,000 soldiers, all with individualized features, 130 chariots, and 670 horses. Its construction, along with the mausoleum itself, hidden beneath a hill-sized mound, is thought to have involved seven hundred thousand men, drawn from all over the empire. According to Sima Qian, the father of Chinese history, writing in the ensuing century, the first emperor was buried with palaces, towers, officials, valuable artifacts, and wondrous objects. One hundred flowing rivers were simulated using mercury, and above them, the ceiling was decorated with heavenly bodies. Below which were the features of the land. For more than two millennia, this was regarded as fantasy or, at best, legend. And even after the discovery of Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum, certain features of Sima Qian's description were taken as fanciful embellishments. However, consequent archaeological investigations have revealed high levels of mercury in the soil that once obscured the mausoleum, raising all manner of questions regarding any palaces. Towers, valuable artifacts, and wondrous objects yet to be discovered. Curiously, Qian's original manuscript makes no reference to any terracotta army, suggesting that possibly the very existence of this unprecedented collection remained a secret from the outset, with its creators being put to death. This too is not so far-fetched as it sounds. The other great construction dating from Emperor Qin's reign was an early crude version of the Great Wall of China, made of locally gathered stones and compacted earth. The precise length of this wall remains unknown, as most of it has either been eroded away over the centuries or become incorporated into the present structure. Even so, it is known to have covered more than three thousand miles. This certainly gives an indication of how the Chinese viewed the threat from the nomadic tribesmen who occupied the vast plateau to the north. The Mongols would not emerge as the dominant tribe for almost another one and a half millennia.
Even more suggestive of this Chinese fear is the sheer cost of Chin's wall. This was no great work of art, such as his intricate and wondrous mausoleum. Yet, where human life was concerned, the cost was, if anything, even greater. According to some modern historians, it has been estimated that hundreds of thousands, if not up to a million, workers died building the Chin Wall. Yet, this vast expenditure of human life would be followed by the laying of the foundations of a civilization that would, in the centuries to come, grow to equal and then excel any other civilization on Earth. It is no exaggeration to say that the Qin Dynasty created the social blueprint for most of the great dynasties to come over the ensuing two millennia, or longer, as we shall see some now argue. And how did the Qin Dynasty achieve this feat, which would in time produce an empire in the form of the Yuan Dynasty that was greater and more civilized than that of Rome, more artistically and technologically creative than the Caliphates? It was the Qin Dynasty that instigated a centralized government and employed a vast civil service of scholar officials who administered throughout the empire. This latter fact is and remains vital to the understanding of Chinese culture. Such a far-flung administration involved government by individual officials rather than rule according to an established legal code. What could be termed criminal or rebellious behavior was dealt with by penal sanctions. Yet, without a universal code of law. What guided these scholar officials in their administration of justice? It is here that we see the pervasive influence of Confucius. Not for nothing have his teachings been characterized as the philosophy of civil servants. Confucius had died some three centuries previously, but by now his teachings had become much more than a philosophy or a religion. The Analects of Confucius, a collection of his sayings painstakingly assembled after his death by his followers, was by now widely circulated. Indeed, they had become a spiritual ethical guidance that embodied an entire way of life. Membership of the civil service was dependent upon a deep and rigorous knowledge of Confucian teachings. Entrance exams were particularly grueling, with candidates locked in tiny cells containing just a writing board and a bucket for anything up to three days. This was designed to weed out members of well-connected families, relatives of previous civil servants, and such. It ensured that entry was entirely a matter of merit. The Qin Dynasty would last for only fifteen years, making it by far the shortest of the great Chinese dynasties. Yet it inaugurated an imperial system that lasted, with interruption and adaptation, until 1912, the year when the last emperor abdicated and the Republic of China was established. So, what are the teachings of Confucius which so molded the Chinese character? His ultimate aim was the achievement of harmony in both the personal and civil spheres. On the personal level, when one cultivates to the utmost the principles of his nature and exercises them on the principle of reciprocity, he is not far from the path. Adding in evidence of his understanding of how we actually behave, the all too recognizable, "What you do not like when done to yourself, do not to others." Yet, as with so many, he found himself forced to disregard such sentiment when it came to the practical business of administration, which is, of course, the imposition of power, wanted or unwanted, no matter how it is disguised. The pious Confucius commends: He who exercises government by means of his virtue remains as steadfast as the North Star in the sky. The more practical Confucius commends: Pay strict attention to business. Be true to your word. Be economical in expenditure and love your people. Buddhism, with its message of compassion and lack of attachment to this world, would arrive in China in the century following the Qin Dynasty. 
Initially, Confucianism abhorred its nihilistic approach, but Buddhism would eventually strike a deep chord in the Chinese national character. By the advent of the Yuan Dynasty, it had become the official religion. The reason for Buddhism's deep accord with the Chinese is not difficult to discern. The almost casual mass destruction of human life, as noted in the Qin Dynasty, for instance, would invariably be followed by a cultural resurgence, which even so contained the seeds of its own destruction. This ever-revolving wheel of fortune led to widespread uncertainties, which naturally fostered the withdrawal from worldly ambitions advocated by Buddhism. Such cycles have been a recurrent feature of Chinese history. The two most recent examples are perhaps the most instructive. The fighting before, during, and after the Second World War lasted from 1937 to 1949 in this part of Asia. During this period, China was ravaged by Japanese invasion and then civil war, both involving mass slaughter amongst the civilian population as well as the military participants. Such was the brutality and chaos that estimates of over 15 million Chinese deaths are usually accepted. Yet within decades, under the communist dictatorship of the charismatic chairman Mao Zedong, this ravaged land embarked upon the great leap forward. This would transform agricultural production, using people's communes to walk the road from socialism to communism, from poverty to abundance. In the process, China would become a world superpower, capable of resisting the combined force of the Western powers in the Korean War. Even vying with the Soviet Union for the leadership of world communism, the fact that all this contained the seeds of its own destruction came to be seen in Chairman Mao's decision to launch the Cultural Revolution in 1966, intended to mobilize the people once more and return to the basics of ideological purity. Mao's Little Red Book of quotations took on the role of Confucius's Analects, and a wave of destruction was launched throughout the land. How many died during these upheavals? Nobody knows because nobody counted. Consequent estimates suggest that over three million people died, and one hundred million people, a ninth of the population, were uprooted and displaced during this agony of self-destruction and famine, which would plague China for a decade. Yet, within forty years, this devastated country had made the greatest leap forward ever witnessed in human history. Building the architectural wonder of the world in the form of the Shanghai waterfront, sending a rocket to the moon, and becoming the world's second-largest economy—all this without the liberal social democracy and free market that was deemed essential to rapid economic growth. Whether this too contains the seeds of its own destruction, as authoritarianism of dynastic proportions coexists uneasily with a release of social mobility, energy, and creativity never previously witnessed on such a scale, remains to be seen. All of which places us in a suitable context to begin examining in detail the Yuan Dynasty, otherwise known as the Great Yuan. And why is this so? Perhaps most pertinently, the Yuan Dynasty stands in a pivotal midway position between the founding Qin Dynasty and what, for want of a better name, might be called the post-Mao Dynasty. At a certain point in all three of these dynasties, it could be claimed that China stood poised to lead the world. Only during the Yuan Dynasty has it actually achieved this feat. When Kublai Khan finally completed his conquest of the Song Dynasty in 1279, he did not follow the example of his grandfather Genghis Khan. During the long and arduous campaign that preceded this victory, the Mongol army was not unleashed in its traditional orgy of destruction, with populations put to the sword, cities left in smoking ruins, and pyramids of skulls. 
Kublai Khan set about sinicizing himself and his rule. The capital was established in Beijing, and he graciously invited the Song Empress Dowager and her eight-year-old grandson, Emperor Gong of Song, to take up residence in the city under his protection. At the same time, Kublai Khan embarked upon a policy of further expansion, now reaching beyond China in pursuit of a pan-Asiatic empire. Korea and Manchuria soon fell. Invasions were launched against North Vietnam and the Southern Vietnamese Kingdom of Champa, as well as Thai territory and Burma. To the north, his navy attacked the large island territory of Sakhalin off the east coast of Siberia. None of these territories was completely conquered, but most were forced to concede vassal status to Yuan China. However, despite repeated attempts to invade Japan, one with a fleet of almost 1,000 ships, weather, faulty ship construction, and fierce samurai resistance, along with inaccurate maps, all combined to thwart Kublai Khan's ambitions. Another invasion of far-flung Java proved similarly unsuccessful, once again frustrated by bad maps. Other cartographic enterprises proved more successful. The countries along the Silk Road were accurately mapped with the aid of expert Islamic geographers. Similarly, the renowned Kangnido Map of the World, which dates from before Admiral Zheng He set out on his great voyages, indicates that Yuan Dynasty geographers were well aware of the existence of India, Arabia, and Africa. If a little uncertain about their actual shape and size, the Mongols and their emperor Kublai Khan may have conquered China, but the extensive territory of which they took possession and ruled contained a far more advanced civilization than that of the Mongols. Indeed, Kublai Khan's first great contribution to this civilization was simply not destroying it. Inevitably, the years of war against the Song Dynasty had resulted in widespread destruction. Indeed, the city on the site of what would become Beijing had been reduced to ruins. But as part of his sinicization process, Kublai Khan ordered a new capital to be built in the Chinese style. Initially, he and his Mongol commanders, for the most part, presided over their new possession. But as the years passed, the new Yuan emperor would make his own distinct contribution. When Marco Polo arrived at Kublai Khan's palace in Beijing around 1275, several years into the new emperor's reign, he found the greatest palace that ever was. The hall of the palace is so large that it can easily accommodate six thousand people. The city itself was enclosed by walls six miles long by six miles wide. This was one of the termini of the Silk Road, and the city had separate quarters for foreign merchants of different religions. These included Nestorians. Christians of a heretical sect long since banished from Europe, Jews, Saracens or Muslims, and even Manichaeans, a Persian dualistic religion that briefly rivaled Christianity during Roman times, which the Chinese classified as vegetarian demon worshippers. As this indicates, the Silk Road was responsible for the dissemination of ideas as well as trade, and it was around this period that the ideas of the Islamic philosopher scientists began arriving in China, promulgating Aristotelian philosophy and Greek medicine. Chinese Muslim physicians became responsible for the establishment of hospitals, and Beijing became known as the Department for Extensive Mercy. Kublai Khan's greatest domestic contribution was the dredging and reopening of China's ancient Grand Canal, which led to a resurgence of the Chinese economy. Parts of this canal dated back as far as 500 BC, but it had not become linked up along its entire 1,000-mile length until a millennium later, before falling into disrepair during the ensuing centuries.
This amazing feat of engineering remains to this day the oldest and longest artificial inland waterway in the world. When Kublai Khan reopened the canal, it stretched from Beijing through the eastern Chinese hinterland all the way to the city of Hangzhou, which 300 years earlier had been the capital of China. When Marco Polo arrived at Hangzhou, the city of heaven, he could hardly believe his eyes. This was the finest and most splendid city in all the world, filled with wide and spacious waterways. On one side of the city is a lake of crystal clear fresh water. Its shores are thirty miles long and filled with stately palaces and mansions of such splendor that it is impossible to imagine anything more beautiful. These are the abodes of nobles and magnates. At the same time, there are also cathedrals and monasteries. The surface of the lake is covered with all manner of barges filled with pleasure seekers. No such city existed in Europe or anywhere else in the world. Even Venice appeared but a pale miniature imitation. Once again, we come to the concept of sideways history, with separate regions simultaneously at different stages of historical development. In the remnant of the caliphates, Al-Andalus, the mixture of religions and learning, had provided a ferment of ideas, with superb architecture such as the Grand Mosque in Cordoba and the Alhambra Gardens in Granada. But all this stood in peril from the southward advance of the Christian armies through the Iberian Peninsula. Meanwhile, in the heart of Europe, the Dark Ages had long since given way to a revival of education, with great centers of learning such as the Sorbonne in Paris attracting students from far and wide, as well as a resurgence of architecture with teams of skilled artisans and stonemasons erecting Gothic cathedrals in the heart of cities throughout the continent. Yet none of this compared with the splendors of Hangzhou. In Roman times, Europe had led the world. During the caliphates, the Middle East had seen the most advanced civilization, and now China was beginning to emerge as the world leader. But here was something utterly new: Europe and the Middle East had cross-fertilized ideas and technologies, borrowing from each other as their ships traded across the Mediterranean. China, on the other hand, was largely sui generis, developing its own ideas in isolation and retaining its secrets. Illustrative of this is the Silk Road, which was already well developed by the time it was described by Herodotus in the fifth century BC. The raison d'être of this network of interlinked trade routes lies in its name. China had discovered how to produce silk, which became a valued luxury in the West. The manufacture of this product, which was spun by the silkworm in its chrysalis, remained a closely guarded secret. Not until the 10th century did two Nestorian monks manage to smuggle out silkworm eggs, concealed in the hollowed-out tops of their walking canes, enabling the secret to reach the West. China was to come up with several fundamental discoveries that would remain secret until knowledge of their manufacture seeped out to the West. In many, though not all, cases, this would result in their further development, which would often change the face of world history. Paper was discovered, and the making of it developed in China during the first and second centuries A.D. It would be almost a millennium before this technique reached Europe. Similarly, gunpowder was discovered by the Chinese sometime around the turn of the first millennium A.D. Its military use would soon be exploited in such weapons as fire arrows, the mother of a hundred bullets gun, and thunderclap bombs, similar to stone grenades, whose shrapnel could inflict lethal wounds over a wide area. Ironically, gunpowder had been discovered by Chinese alchemists searching for the elixir of life, the mythical substance that promised to preserve the life and youth of any who drank it. This was a persistent favorite of Chinese emperors. 
The first Qin emperor, Qin Shi Huang, is known to have died of elixir poisoning in 210 BC. Elixir ingredients prepared by later imperial alchemists included ground pearl, gold leaf, and other precious substances known for their incorruptibility. More ambitious alchemists introduced mercury and salts of arsenic, which had the opposite of the desired effect. Chinese alchemists' search for an elixir of life would continue to lead the world until the 18th-century Qing Dynasty. This knowledge too would spread to Europe, gaining credence amongst accomplished and susceptible physicians alike. Lorenzo the Magnificent, lying on his deathbed in 15th-century Florence, was administered an elixir containing ground pearl, which would later become a favourite of English Victorian physicians who catered for the wealthy. The dream of eternal life is a persistent fairy tale, which has occupied a permanent place in every great empire throughout all human history. It persists to this day in the form of cryogenics, in which a gullible plutocrat pays for his cadaver to be frozen to below minus 130 degrees Celsius, in the expectation that one day he will return to amaze his descendants. But back to the unfortunately more realistic infliction of death. It would be several centuries before the formula for gunpowder reached Europe, where its potential was little realized, and it would be used mainly in the production of spectacular firework displays. It was the Mongol invasion of the Middle East and Eastern Europe, and the widespread use of explosive fire arrows by their horsemen, which altered this perception. Witnessing this new weapon, some unremembered inventor made a simple connection of genius and invented the cannon. According to the 20th-century Arab historian Ahmed Al Hassan, the victorious Mamluks used the first cannon in history at the vital Battle of Ain Jalut, which halted the Mongols in 1260. This claim remains disputed, but what cannot be disputed is the transformative effect of the cannon on military history. From that time on, the days of castles, arrows, armor, cavalry, even, and all manner of military hardware were effectively numbered. With the advent of artillery, warfare would never be the same again. Not surprisingly, the Chinese also invented the cannon for themselves. In 1341, the historian Shan Zhang recorded that a cannonball fired from an eruptor could pierce the heart or belly when it strikes a man or horse, and can transfix several persons at once. The list of cultural firsts invented and fully developed by the Yuan Dynasty continues to astonish. Most of these would trickle through to Europe more or less slowly, usually by way of the Silk Road. Others would remain uniquely Chinese. The most influential Yuan discoveries would transform Western civilization when they at last reached the outer world. As we have seen, paper had been invented some time previously, and the Song Dynasty had even experimented with paper money. However, it was the skilled administrators of the Yuan court who took this idea to its limit with the introduction of a centralized system of paper currency. This could not only be printed by special wooden blocks at the imperial mint, but could also be used to control the economy. Never before had paper been used as the prevalent form of currency throughout the land. Not only did these early Chinese financiers invent this form of money, but they also understood how to use it. As we have seen, previous Chinese administrations had introduced various attempts at paper money backed by silver, but the yuan paper currency, known as chao, was a fiat currency. That is, it was backed by nothing but government regulation, which simply said that it was worth what it was. As such, it was what is now known as fiduciary money, reliant solely upon the confidence of those who used it. This was no mean feat. 
The first attempt to introduce similar banknotes in Europe would come some 500 years later. In 1720, the Scots financier John Law would be placed in charge of the French Treasury and begin issuing paper money, an experiment that would end in disaster. France would not accept paper currency for almost another century. The other great yuan achievement was the establishment of the modern printing press. Various methods of printing had been known for some centuries previously in China, but it was a civil servant named Wang Zhen who definitively reinvented printing in 1298 with movable wooden type containing the many characters of the Chinese alphabet. This enabled the establishment of printing presses that could mass-produce entire books. Not until the following century would this method be established in Europe by Johannes Gutenberg. Precisely how much he knew about Chinese methods that had spread to the Middle East remains unclear. Either way, this invention would revolutionize China and then Europe, where it would be a catalyst for the Renaissance, spreading images, learning, and new ideas. In Yuan, China, it would bring about a transformation of culture and the arts that was uniquely Oriental. Most notably, this would include the development of a distinctive Chinese form of drama. The invention of the novel as a literary form, and the evolution of landscape painting as a form of poetic expression. A high point was the creation of the Three Perfections, a characteristically Chinese art form which combined poetry, calligraphy, and painting in a single work. However, the Yuan Dynasty's most exquisite creation was the development of a blue and white porcelain, which would never be surpassed. But it is perhaps in science that the Yuan Dynasty excelled. It would be three centuries before Galileo crystallized the scientific revolution in Europe with his realization that the universe is written in the language of mathematics. Yet by this time, Chinese scientists and mathematicians were already making discoveries that would have amazed their European contemporaries as much as Harun al-Rashid's ornate clock had astonished the court of Charlemagne in the Dark Ages. By 1290, the Yuan astronomer Guo Shoujing had completed a calendar that calculated the terrestrial year as 365.2425 days. That is to say, within 26 seconds of its present measurement. He also solved a major hydrological difficulty in the completion of the Grand Canal and invented a host of astronomical measuring devices, which would not be superseded until the invention of the telescope. In the light of such achievements, it comes as little surprise that the 13th-century Yuan mathematician Xu Shiji raised Chinese algebra to the highest level. In particular, he devised a method for solving simultaneous equations with four unknowns, introduced matrix methods, as well as what we now know as Pascal triangles. Here again is a classic example of sideways history. These algebraic concepts would remain unknown in Europe until they were discovered independently some three centuries later. Chinese and European mathematics would continue to develop in parallel, yet unevenly and without contact, for many years to come. Similar parallelism of a more synchronous kind can be seen in the development of the magnetic compass. The compass had been known in China since the Qin Dynasty, when it had been used for occult divination practices. Its elevation from quackery to maritime navigational use was a direct result of the Yuan scientific outlook. Meanwhile, identical developments were taking place quite independently in Europe, enabling medieval sailors to venture directly across the Bay of Biscay rather than hugging the coast. This was, of course, nothing compared to the truly astounding navigational journeys of Zheng He during the ensuing Ming Dynasty. By the 14th century, the Yuan Dynasty was beginning to fall apart. In the end, its success in so many fields proved incompatible. 
recalled Marco Polo's description of the lakeside shore at Hangzhou, which was lined by no less than thirty miles of stately palaces and splendid mansions. Rapid economic progress had, as ever, led to excessive benefits for the upper strata of society. Meanwhile, the masses remained crippled by taxes. Class conflict became inevitable. Such troubles were exacerbated by a series of natural disasters. Three times the Yellow River burst its banks, leading to catastrophic floods, famine, and loss of life. The end came with a peasant uprising, which rapidly spread from province to province. The military too revolted, and in 1368 the capital fell, and a new Han emperor was installed in place of the previous Mongol incumbent. The Ming Dynasty had begun. This too would be one of the great dynasties, though not quite as formative as the Yuan Dynasty, and it too contained the seeds of its own disaster, which would transform China for centuries to come. The Confucian scholar officials who had been so instrumental in creating such an efficient and coordinated imperial administration had now become hidebound with rigid traditions and creeping corruption. Such an institution did not take easily to the new challenges posed by scientific inventions and pioneering exploration by the likes of Admiral Zheng He. Such things did nothing but upset the personal and civil harmony required by Confucian teachings. By the early decades of the fifteenth century, the administration had begun to prevail upon the emperor. China isolated itself from the outside world, and the scientific revolution ground to a halt. The progressive society that had led the world began to ossify. Ming vases, exquisite poetry, art, and opera reached perfection. Harmony had become absolute and static. By now. Individual civilizations had begun to evolve at several new locations across the globe. These ranged from the Songhai Empire in West Africa to the Mughal Empire in India, as well as the Rus of Ivan the Terrible, which had emerged in the Duchy of Moscow after the expulsion of the Golden Horde. Such empires developed their own characteristics, which often incorporated outside influences left behind by conquerors or imported by traders, such as the Trans-Saharan caravanners or Persian sailors navigating the southern sea lanes of the Silk Route. Other civilizations continued to exist in fragmented isolation, such as the Aborigines of Australia and the native tribes of North America, like the economist Friedman's San Francisco. All stages of human development existed on the same horizontal timeline. Each of these contained their own kernel of uniqueness, yet none more so than the next empire we will consider. This would evolve its own version of sophistication, untouched by developments elsewhere. Indeed, its very existence leads us to question the inevitability, or otherwise, of human evolution. Were we bound to become what we are? Is it in our genes? Something foretold in our social interaction? Something intrinsic to the very nature of society itself? What does far-flung humanity retain in common? Such questions are necessarily raised by the very existence of the Aztec Empire. The culture, mores, and entire social structure of this empire, which evolved in the isolation of Mesoamerica, prompts all manner of undermining inquiry. Chapter six. The Aztec Empire, like the Mongol Empire, the Aztec Empire was brief and bloodthirsty. After which its influences were all but expunged from the surface of history. However, deeper cultural resonances would remain unacknowledged. Perhaps the most striking image of this comes from its sister civilization, the Inca Empire, which developed independently on the western littoral of South America. 
Some years after the conquest of the Incas by Spain, a young Catholic priest newly arrived from his home country was conducting a service in a local cathedral. Looking down at the dimly lit rows of Inca faces of his supposedly converted congregation, he recognized that, despite appearances, they were in fact still practicing their ancient religion. Indeed, they had even decorated the cathedral in such a fashion that Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the statues of the saints had all taken on the guise of Inca gods. The sudden realization by this callow priest that he was unwittingly officiating at the rites of a dark deity of whose pagan mysteries he knew nothing had such a traumatic effect on him that he suffered a mental breakdown. Like its short-lived Mongol contemporary on the other side of the globe, the Aztec Empire was also riven with contradictions quite as gruesome as any Mongol atrocity. An epitome of Aztec art can be seen in the eerily beautiful yet chilling life-sized skulls. Which were carved out of single pieces of transparent quartz. The diaphanous interior markings of the crystal inside the glass-like skulls were believed to contain the secrets of the early history and final destiny of humanity. Several of these skulls, belonging to prestigious national collections such as the superb skull in the British Museum, have been demonstrated to be skilful centuries-old fakes. Yet such is their power, which surely mimics the originals from which they were copied, that the authorities have, for the most part, taken the exceptional step of leaving them on display. Less chillingly skilled yet equally original is the cartoon-like art produced by the Aztecs, drawn on stretched deerskin or dried sisal leaves or agave fiber. These recorded scenes from Aztec history have a similar compelling veracity, though entirely different style, to those of the Maya tapestry. Which recorded the Norman invasion of England in 1066, though unlike the Maya tapestry, these have been assembled together as codices or books, such as the Codex Mendoza. As this name suggests, the original Aztec artifacts were only made into books following the Spanish conquest. Originally, these drawings appeared on long, carefully folded-up sheets of material, and would have told their stories in similar fashion to the lengths of material that make up the Maya tapestry. Included in the Aztec codices are such wonders as a man watching a comet pass through the heavens, and numerous examples of the exotic costumes and headdresses worn on ceremonial occasions, frequently adorned with brightly coloured feathers from local macaws and birds of paradise. By contrast, many of the drawings depict scenes of unspeakable horror, at least to Western eyes. Cartoons depict men gathered together enjoying parties of ritual cannibalism, a still living human gazing up as his recently cut out heart is held aloft, gushing blood. Examples of auto sacrifice involving synchronized bloodletting, where the participants pierce their bodies with cactus spines. Even in daily life, simple beauty often coexisted alongside excruciating barbarity. This was a society whose currency was chocolate. Yet to pay the gods for keeping them alive, their ritual mass slaughters unleashed waves of blood that spilled down the steps of their towering pyramids. What is it about quasi-pyramidal structures and their apparent ubiquity in early societies? The Aztec pyramids were not like the classic Egyptian pyramids, yet they bore an uncanny resemblance to Babylonian ziggurats. The Chinese also built pyramidal structures. The mound that housed the Emperor Qin's terracotta army bears a certain resemblance to one, which may have been more striking when it was first erected. As do the ancient Buddhist stupas of India, the earliest of which date from the fourth century BC. And just a few decades ago, some Chinese archaeologists came across a five-thousand-year-old stepped pyramid in the remote mountains of Mongolia. Babylon, Egypt, 
Mexico, China, India, now Mongolia, and perhaps even more examples waiting to be discovered in other remote parts of the globe, is the building of pyramids somehow a universal stage of human development? In many of these cases, there can have been no possible contact between the people who built these pyramids. Does this mean that there is something in our common history that prompts civilizations at a certain stage in their development to expend the enormous effort required to erect such massive objects? Is this shape some kind of archetype which lurks at a subconscious level of the human mind? The 20th century Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, who based his understanding of the human mind upon the existence of a collective unconscious containing such archetypes, would certainly have us believe so. Yet there exists no rigid scientific method to test such a theory. So, what is the significance of this shape in humanity's disparate history—a shape whose appearance is often separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years? The earliest Mesopotamian steppe ziggurats date from around 3000 BC. The earliest Egyptian pyramids, which were similarly stepped, date from around 2750 BC, and may well have been copied from their Mesopotamian counterparts. The recently discovered and similarly stepped pyramid found in Mongolia seems to have been contemporary with these distant artifacts. Yet, despite any resemblance, it certainly could not have been copied from its counterparts in the Fertile Crescent. The earliest Mesoamerican pyramids are thought to date from anything up to 1000 BC, but there could have been no external influence here either. So, is all this part of a human trait or mere coincidence? Try looking at this question from another point of view. What are the shapes of other great isolated ancient or prehistoric structures? Do they bear any resemblance to pyramids or even to each other? Just a brief list of these would seem to dispel such psychological speculation. The large stone faces or moai of Easter Island, the walls of Zimbabwe, Stonehenge, Angkor Wat, Timbuktu. Each of these isolated monuments is unique in construction and form, and had its subtle differences of purpose too. The pyramid, it seems, is not an archetype, more part of a primitive inclination, only one of many instincts that prompted early human society to build monuments greater than the individual human being. Although we do not always know the precise purpose of these structures, we can surmise that they somehow represented their society or its leader, or were vital in the performance of some sacred function for the people who erected them. Possibly reminding them of a near-forgotten mythical past, or the mountainous landscape of their original homeland. Which brings us to the question of who the Aztecs were and where they came from. The Aztecs spoke a group of closely related languages known as Nahuatl. During the time of the Aztec Empire, this was a largely verbal language. The only permanent records were what we now call the codices, which consisted largely of drawings. However, there is evidence that they also contained writing in pictographs and ideograms, as well as a surprisingly sophisticated number system. Unfortunately, the codices that have come down to us are, for the most part, corrupted European versions, which included various commentaries. The unadulterated originals were seemingly all destroyed by the Christian invaders, who regarded them as nothing more than pagan texts. Even so, the remaining neo-codices do contain a number of scenes depicting divination, Aztec ceremonies, and ritual calendars, as well as representations of the gods. However, the most reliable and uncorrupted of the several versions of the Aztec origin myth existed only in the purely verbal Nahuatl form. According to this, at the time of the creation, there was a god called Ometecutli, 
which translates as twice a deity. He existed in male and female form and produced four sons. Two of these, Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli, were given the task of bringing into existence other lesser gods with specific duties, as well as creating the earth and all its people. With the birth of these early four gods, there began a series of historical cycles of creation and destruction related to the sun. During the Aztec Empire and its preceding history, there had been four suns, each of which had been destroyed by a catastrophic event. Nahuatl text records, "We now live in the time of the fifth sun." The people of this era worshipped Quetzalcoatl, the god of light and air, who had rescued humanity after the fourth sun had been destroyed by Tezcatlipoca. God of judgment, darkness, and sorcery. In order to appease Tezcatlipoca and prevent him inflicting another catastrophe, he had to be paid off, nourished with the blood of human sacrifice. If this was not sufficient, he would turn the sun black, the world would be rent asunder in a violent earthquake, and Sitzimitl, the goddess of the stars, would slay all of humanity. Just as intriguing is the actual origin of the Aztec people. This leads us back to the very first of our species and their initial migrations out of Africa, a narrative that unearths some surprising facts as well as a number of unanswered questions about this period of human prehistory. The first hominids are known to have begun emigrating from Africa around two million years ago. The earliest of these was Homo erectus, who was followed over many millennia by other archaic hominids such as Denisovans and Neanderthals, both subspecies of the genus Homo. All of these species are now extinct, although, as we shall see, elements of them live on in an unexpected fashion. Our own particular species, Homo sapiens, evolved in East Africa over two hundred thousand years ago as a separate member of the hominid family. Its one apparent advantage was the size of its cranial capacity. Where Neanderthals and others had a capacity of just under one thousand cubic centimeters, Homo sapiens initially had a capacity of around one thousand three hundred cubic centimeters, though most of this was unused. Almost certainly, on account of failing crops due to climate change and consequent territorial competition, groups of Homo sapiens left their native East Africa some seventy-five thousand years ago, following in the footsteps of their hominid predecessors. These groups of Homo sapiens, which seem to have consisted of as few as one thousand individuals, are known to have left Africa by two routes, via the Sinai Peninsula as well as across the southern Red Sea Strait to Yemen. As these small groups began to multiply and spread out through Asia and later Europe, they are known to have interbred with the hominid subspecies that preceded them. Consequently, the modern humans who inhabit Asia and Europe still contain around one to two percent Neanderthal DNA. It seems that little interbreeding took place in Africa itself, as the modern African populations who did not migrate contain practically no Neanderthal DNA and are thus much purer Homo sapiens, a fact that gives the lie to much spurious racialist theory. In fact, one consequence of Homo sapiens interbreeding with his cousin hominids who had preceded him into more northerly latitudes, which had regular cold seasons, was that it enabled him to adapt to those barren periods of the year when nothing grew. It took Homo sapiens around twenty thousand years to spread east as far as China and Siberia. Here, the picture becomes blurred. In the twentieth century, evidence of a seven hundred and fifty thousand-year-old Homo erectus named Peking Man was discovered in China.
the 20th century German anthropologist Franz Weidenreich considered Peking man as a human ancestor and especially an ancestor of the Chinese people. To this day, the Chinese are taught in school textbooks that they are evolved directly from Peking man and not from the group of Homo sapiens who evolved in East Africa. This claim remains controversial and widely disputed amongst many non-Chinese anthropologists. Whether or not this has any more veracity than the Chinese claim to have discovered Australia remains beside the point. Here again, we have the notion of ethos entering history. Concepts such as those implicit in the Peking Man theory have similarities reaching back through all of world history. This is a classic claim of racial difference, frequently implying superiority. Such as has preceded time and again a justification for empire. As we shall see, this remains as true in the so-called post-imperial period as it was during the long era of empires that preceded it. To which we now return. As we have seen, the rulers of empire are not only the victors, but see themselves as a superior people, either racially and/or culturally. An early example of the latter was Alexander the Great's attempt to conquer the world. His declared aim was to impose on his conquered lands the advanced and superior culture of ancient Greece, of which he had only a tentative grasp, having paid little attention during his youth to the lessons he was given by his private tutor Aristotle. A similar belief inspired the Soviet Union's imposition of communism on the nations of Eastern Europe. Capitalism was a spent force; the future lay in the Leninist Marxist approach. The elephant in the room here, of course, is Hitler's drive to impose on the world a thousand-year Reich, an enterprise which falls into both categories of supposed superiority—that is to say, racial and cultural. Some twenty-five thousand years ago, when the first bands of Paleolithic hunter-gatherers reached the far northeastern corner of Siberia, they were inspired by no such inflated ideas of empire. Survival was their main concern. By now, the Earth was in the grip of the last ice age, with so much water locked in solid ice. The sea levels were some four hundred feet lower than they are today, leaving the Beringaland Bridge joining northeastern Siberia to northwest Alaska above sea level. It is thought that at least three separate waves of hunter-gatherers crossed the Beringaland Bridge, causing these original inhabitants of the Americas to spread with surprising rapidity through the north and then to the south of the American landmass. What is believed to be the origins of a twenty-one thousand-year-old campfire have been discovered in Mexico. By eight thousand BC, the indigenous inhabitants of Mexico had begun to cultivate maize or corn, whose plentiful crops and easy storage would play an integral role in Mesoamerican development, both cultural and agricultural. This nourishing and easily cultivated grain aided the growth of a series of civilizations, which grew up in Mesoamerica from sometime around 2,600 BC. Amongst the most important of these were the early Olmecs, from around 1,400 to 400 BC. These inhabited the tropical terrain and hinterland of southern Mexico on the border of the Caribbean. Today, these people are best remembered for their huge stone-carved heads, which appear to be a realistic representation of a people with square heads, broad noses, and wide lips, with fleshy but intimidating features. This close resemblance to native African features led some early historians to speculate that the Olmecs must have arrived directly across the Atlantic from Africa, but DNA testing has disproved this theory. The Olmecs developed a hieroglyphic script, believed to be the earliest in Mesoamerica, as well as an advanced mathematics used to calculate calendars and the movement of the stars.
On the other hand, they also introduced the ritual practice of bloodletting described earlier, self-stabbing to produce blood and appease the gods. Around the half century prior to 350 BC, the Olmecs went into a sudden decline. Entire cities were abandoned, and the population diminished rapidly. Historians have tended to put this down to a series of violent eruptions that took place in the region around this period. However, many elements of Olmec civilization would pass on to successive Mesoamerican civilizations. With hindsight, we can see that the Olmecs played a formative role in the evolution of the Aztecs. The other dominant civilization in the region were the Maya, who coexisted with the Olmecs, flourishing between 1800 BC and AD 250. The Mayan territory lay to the southeast of the Olmecs, straddling the wide swathe of the Mesoamerican Peninsula from Yucatan to the north and the Pacific Ocean to the south. Inevitably, there was conflict between these two neighboring territories. Apart from the exotic feathered decorations of the combatants, these battles were primitive affairs fought in Stone Age style with spears, stone axes, and hurled stones. Warriors were bedecked in coloured feathers, and their leaders would wear feathered headgear. Not until around 380 BC were more modern weapons introduced. In fact, these were secrets stolen from the Tenochtitlan, inhabitants of a powerful city-state that occupied central Mexico. This advanced technology consisted of slings, spears tipped with sharp obsidian blades, as well as wooden shields, helmets made of strong hide, and upper armor tailored from animal skins. Even with the introduction of such new weapons, the battles remained somewhat primitive. The secrets of making iron and constructing a wheel, let alone a chariot, remained unknown. This meant that battles were fought with little strategy in mind. Armies would form in line opposite one another and then charge. Thus, according to the 20th-century South African anthropologist David Webster, such battles soon descended into anarchy, with much thrusting, stabbing, and crushing. Almost all men in Mayan society were trained as warriors and were esteemed according to the ferocity with which they fought. This was the only means by which Mayans could rise in social status. However, the object in battle was not to kill your opponent, but to capture him alive. Prisoners thus taken would be used as human sacrifices in the ceremonies conducted to appease the gods. The only exception to this warrior class were the priests. It was believed that they could communicate directly with the gods or act as an intermediary between a citizen and his chosen god. More significantly, the Mayans developed their own language, which was more sophisticated than Olmec. Unlike previous Mesoamerican languages, which consisted of pictographs, standardized drawings resembling objects, the Mayans developed a script consisting of ideograms, symbols standing for ideas. This crossed the threshold from being a pictorial recording system to a sophisticated language, capable of conveying a much more subtle expression of thought. Like the Olmecs, the Mayans also built impressive pyramids. However, the Mayan pyramids tend to be shorter, with a larger area at the summit. Experts have concluded that this was to enable the construction of a temple, or perhaps to accommodate larger human sacrifices. The Mayans also developed their own distinctive method of stone carving for both statues and friezes. Investigations of the movement of the stars and the change of the seasons led the priests to develop their own mathematical system. As distinct from our present decimal system, based on ten numbers, the Mayan system was vigesimal, that is to say, based on twenty numbers, counting both fingers and toes. 
the Mayans also invented and inserted into their calculations a symbol for zero. This was an astonishing feat. Zero was and remains a particularly slippery concept to grasp. It was something that represented nothing. The Mayan symbol for zero was an empty tortoise shell. According to the contemporary U.S. historian John Justison, this may have been the earliest known occurrence of the idea of an explicit zero worldwide. A number of experts contest this. Some claiming the Babylonians as the first, others the Indians. Interestingly, this symbol did not reach China until the fourth century A.D., while it was not until the early 1100s that it passed to Europe from Arabic culture. Here is a prime example of sideways history. Yet it also serves as a prime example of a concept remaining undeveloped. The Mayans found no need to make further use of their newly discovered zero. The Europeans, who were entering the age of widespread foreign exchange and banking, certainly did and benefited accordingly. This led to a great leap forward in European mathematical understanding, as well as facilitating mercantile interaction. The collapse of Mayan civilization was as mysterious as it was sudden. After a continuous history of over two thousand years, Mayan life rapidly began to disintegrate. Between the end of the eighth century A.D. and the beginning of the ninth century A.D., the Mayans began to desert their cities as well as the pasture lands they had painstakingly carved out of the tropical rainforest. The jungle reclaimed most of these sites, but cities and ancient pyramids are still being discovered to this day. Aerial mapping techniques used in Guatemala and the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico, indicate the existence of large networks of freshwater canals, farming on an industrial scale, and extensive cities with pyramids, temples, and plazas. It was out of this rich mix of Mesoamerican civilizations that the Aztecs would finally emerge as the major empire. In 1428, a triple alliance was formed between the three most powerful city-states in central Mexico: Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan. This new Aztec power base soon reduced their neighbors to tribute states until the empire extended across central Mexico from the Caribbean to the Pacific, around 500 miles at its widest. The capital of this new empire was the fabled city of Tenochtitlan, on the present site of Mexico City. When Tenochtitlan was founded, this region was covered by the shallow waters of Lake Texcoco. The land chosen for the city was a marshy offshore island, hardly a promising location, despite its protection by the surrounding waters. The island was drained; easily defensible causeways were linked to the mainland, and terracotta ducts brought fresh water from surrounding springs and rivers. The city itself was built on a semi-grid pattern with well-laid-out canals, causeways. Streets, plazas, temples, and pyramids. Within just over a century, this city had become one of the wonders of the world. Its population was said to have been over three hundred thousand, making it far larger than any city in Europe, matched only by the likes of Hangzhou and Cairo. To anyone mounting the hillside overlooking the lake for the first time, Tenochtitlan appeared like a dream, or at least a mirage island in the midst of the still waters of the lake. Inside the city, the streets were filled with a people whose migrating ancestors had parted over seventy millennia ago from the Homo sapiens, who had evolved to become the European variety of the species. In the marketplaces, the short, stocky stallholders had square, light brown faces, fringed, straight black hair, and wore rudimentary clothes made out of dried agave leaf fibers. Their stalls were heaped with colorful foodstuffs seen nowhere else on earth: maize. 
peppers, sweet potatoes, peanuts, cocoa beans, vanilla pods. The citizens lived with their families in small huts made of wattle and daub, along with their domesticated dogs and pet turkeys. To entertain themselves, they sat on the ground playing flutes, whose whistles were echoed by the exotic-coloured parrots who perched on the rooftops. Most amazing of all was the palace of the king, which contained over a thousand rooms, each with its own bath. His gardens contained no less than two separate zoos, one containing eagles and birds of prey, whilst the second housed large wild cats with leopard-like markings on their fur, ocelots, and ferocious-looking black dragon-like reptiles with crests on their backs, iguanas. Elsewhere in the garden, ducks with all manner of colourful plumage swam in more than a dozen ponds. Yet at the heart of this wondrous city lay its ceremonial centre, complete with sacrificial pyramids, where the citizens would gather to watch the gruesome bloodletting for the gods. Curiously, the victims who took part in these horrific ceremonies appear to have been led up the steps quite calmly, and to have accepted their living disembowelment with an equanimity that is all but impossible for us to conceive. It has been suggested that they must have been drugged beforehand, but contemporary evidence contradicts this. Following the sacrifice, the victims were sent rolling down the steps of the temple, and the steps were bathed in blood. The gore and bodies tumbling down the steps of the pyramids towards the population below seem to have evoked similar alien emotions. One would expect the assembled crowd to experience a mix of strong, contradictory feelings—fear and empathy—reinforcing the dominance of the authorities. Such as was experienced at public executions in empires elsewhere, or a warped exultation at the death of so many enemies. Perhaps catharsis, even as was experienced by the audience at an ancient Greek tragedy. No, the Aztecs appear to have accepted that such bloodshed was necessary to feed the gods, as well as to maintain the all-important business of assisting the sun on its course, in order to prevent any catastrophe such as might bring their present era to an end. After the ceremonies, the skulls of those who had been sacrificed were stacked in racks outside the temples. As to the precise numbers of those sacrificed, figures remain uncertain. When a new temple to Huitzilopochtli, the fearsome god of the sun and war, was dedicated in 1487, it is said that 80,400 people, including women and children, were sacrificed. This is certainly an exaggeration. On the other hand, scholars agree that as many as twenty thousand victims may have been sacrificed each year throughout the empire, both around this time and during the preceding decades. Yet now that the three main city-states had formed an alliance, there was less occasion for war, and consequently a lack of captives for the human sacrifice ceremony. And even a succession of minor wars against nearby vassal states could only provide an increasingly inadequate supply. In 1450, there was a severe famine, and according to the 20th-century Mexican anthropologist Miguel Leon Portilla, the priests declared that the gods were angry at the empire, and to placate them, it was necessary to sacrifice many men, and this had to be done regularly. To overcome this problem, the authorities arranged so-called battles of the flowers. Far from being as innocuous and enchanting as their name might suggest, these consisted of ritual battles between chosen members of the different city-states. Lethal weapons were substituted with flat wooden clubs, which could batter the enemy into submission, perhaps even render him unconscious, so that he could be captured without sustaining serious injury. These battles had the added advantage of providing military training as well as supplying sacrificial victims. All this would seem to indicate a population with an all-pervasive aura of collectivity, 
to the point where it seemingly obliterated any ill-defined remnant of individuality amongst its citizens. Yet this was far from being the case. The Aztecs had developed their own unique sense of self. According to George Orwell, writing of his contemporaries, by the age of fifty, every man has the face he deserves. Well over half a millennium previously, the Aztecs had refined this casual generalization into a profound individualistic philosophy of their own. This way of thought had originally been developed by the privileged class of wise men amongst the priesthood, who claimed that it stemmed from the legendary symbol of Nahuatl knowledge, the great figure of Quetzalcoatl. The latter god appeared in the form of a feathered serpent and was responsible for the creation of humanity. According to his teachings, it should be the aim of all men to have and develop in themselves a face. This eliminated the anonymity into which they had been born and enabled them to put a mirror before their fellow men. It enabled each human being to develop self-knowledge, wisdom, and care, both for himself, his family, and his people. So profound was this message that it was said its implications were embodied in the Nahuatl language itself. Western philosophers will recognize a poetic version of the teachings of Socrates in the initial urge to self-knowledge. As for the second part, the idea that the very language we learn leads us to the philosophical conclusions we reach is astonishingly modern. Not until the twentieth century would the Austrian linguistic philosopher Wittgenstein suggest this paradox. In 1502, the 36-year-old Montezuma II succeeded as the ninth ruler of Tenochtitlan, holding sway over the entire Aztec Empire. Montezuma II was renowned as a warrior and is said to have extended the influence of his empire to its greatest limits. Others speak of him as being indecisive and overwhelmed by a foreboding of his own tragic destiny. The early years of his reign witnessed a number of omens prophesying disaster. Then a comet was observed, marking for many the end of the 52-year cycle of the Aztec calendar and the imminence of the end of the fifth sun. When Christopher Columbus made landfall in the Americas in 1492, this isolated landmass was once again reunited with the outside world. The Spanish immediately launched a full-scale search and conquest in the hope of extracting precious metals and other valuables. Backed by such motives, the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés made landfall in February 1519 on the Mexican coast at what is now Puerto Cruz. He was accompanied by just 500 men. According to an ancient belief stemming from the Tolmec era, the gods had sailed from Mexico, promising that they would one day return. Cortés and his men seemed to fulfill this prophecy. To the Aztecs, they even resembled gods. The Europeans had white skin and fearsome beards. Some were giants with two arms and four legs. In fact, these were men on horseback, and they could kill people far away from them with a bang and a puff of smoke, musket fire. Amazingly, the Aztecs had built their huge and precisely constructed monuments without the use of pack animals or the wheel. Just as the Europeans had never seen tomatoes, potatoes, and the like, the Aztecs, in their isolation, had developed no immunity to such common European diseases as smallpox, cholera, bubonic plague, flu, and even the common cold. On the other hand, Spanish sailors returning to Europe brought with them the scourge of syphilis. The collapse of the already ailing Aztec Empire was as swift as it was spectacular. Within two years, Cortes and his few hundred men had, by means of trickery, propaganda, superior weaponry, disease, and so forth, overcome the Aztec Empire. 
In the process, Montezuma II was held hostage and killed. Tenochtitlan was destroyed, and Cortes inadvertently became the first European to set eyes on the Western Pacific Ocean. Up to three million Aztecs are said to have died, and the rest were converted to Christianity by Catholic priests, with results we have already described. To this day, in remote jungle regions of the Yucatan Peninsula, Honduras, and Guatemala, isolated tribes of Mayan and Aztec people are known to continue with their own indigenous cultural practices. Concurrent with the Aztec Empire was the Inca Empire, which at its height occupied the remote east coast and hinterland of South America, from the southmost tip of Colombia as far as mid-Chile, a distance of some two thousand five hundred miles. In isolation, this too had developed into an original civilization, quite independently of the Aztecs. The Incas' wealth and their downfall resulted largely from Potosi, the so-called Mountain of Silver, which soon attracted the attention of the Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro, who led just 160 men and conquered the empire in two years. However, he never discovered the empire's masterpiece, the so-called Lost City of the Incas. This was Machu Picchu. Built over eight thousand feet up in the Peruvian Andes by a civilization that had only llamas, worthless as pack animals over mountainous terrain, and like the Aztecs, had yet to discover the wheel. Machu Picchu would remain lost for another four hundred years. However, in fifteen fifty-three, the Spanish did discover an ancient artifact which remains as impressive and perplexing as any yet found on Earth. Some one thousand seven hundred feet up in the Peruvian Andes, they came across a long, permanently dry, windless, arid plateau covered in drawings known as the Nazca lines. These depict, in outline, vast geoglyphs, drawings of plants, animals, even spiders, and primitive representations of human-like creatures with round heads, eyes, and legs, and a number of seemingly unknown creatures. As well as these, there are a series of undeviating straight lines, some over one thousand feet long, which have been drawn across the desert floor. It appears that these all date from around two hundred and six hundred BC. Yet, despite all manner of ingenious explanations, no serious investigator has yet managed to provide any entirely convincing explanation of their existence. By contrast, the irrepressible Eric von Däniken has asserted that these markings were created by ancient astronauts. Despite such tomfoolery, there is no denying that the full beauty and art of these markings can only fully be appreciated when they are viewed from high in the sky and are even visible from satellites. Such pre-modern imperial wonders appear all the more amazing when seen in the larger historical context of the migration of Homo sapiens to the very limits of the habitable globe. The challenges encountered on these migrations had led to Homo sapiens mastering a series of entirely new cognitive skills. As we have seen, the manifestations of these developments bore both perplexing similarities and astonishing differences. Yet, in a profound sense, they were common throughout the species. They involved traits capable of abstract, symbolic, and religious behavior. This was the beginnings of art, science, and writing. Humanity, as we know it, had been born. But this new variant species was far from being any Nietzschean superman in comparison with his fellow hominids. Homo sapiens may have been taller than Homo erectus and others, but many of these, especially Neanderthals, were much stockier and physically stronger.
Threats from early hominids, climate change, geography, and all the accidents of history ensured that the family groups and tribes of these new, more advanced beings were constantly on the move, driven further and further from their home continent. Yet their developing superior faculties, ingenuity in adapting to their surroundings, and imagination ensured that they thrived and continued to evolve. On attaining the furthest habitable limits of our planet, they often found hominid predecessors in residence. These two cousin species would live alongside each other on occasion for many thousands of years. Yet in every known case, Homo sapiens seems to have outlived its hominid predecessors, who became extinct. The speed with which this new Homo sapiens spread across our planet is remarkable. A brief and much simplified list will suffice to illustrate this. Although the first human immigrants crossed the Beringa land bridge from eastern Siberia some twenty-five thousand years ago, within nine thousand years they had reached Patagonia at the tip of South America. Just two thousand years after this, a second wave of migrants crossed the bridge, peopling the North American plains with groups of indigenous tribespeople. It was another ten thousand years before a third wave, the Inuits, arrived and took possession of the icy wastes of northern Canada. Homo sapiens arrived comparatively early in Western Australia, some sixty-five thousand years ago. Yet it was just three thousand years ago that a late wave of seafaring people set off into the Pacific, travelling north of Australia via New Guinea. After this, they split, populating the Pacific Islands. The northern group reached Hawaii around one thousand years ago. The southern group reached New Zealand around the same time. These latter people then continued east along a distended line of islands until finally they reached the very last of the chain, now known as Easter Island, around A.D. 300, but possibly as late as A.D. 1200. Here they started erecting almost a thousand tall stone heads or moai, all facing east. These remain only one of the many unsolved mysteries concerning this island, which is around 1,000 miles from the nearest islands, the Pitcairns, and over 2,000 miles from the coast of South America, making it one of the most remote inhabited spots on Earth. It would be at least half a millennium before the island was rediscovered by Europeans, who arrived to find the natives harvesting sweet potatoes, which originate from South America, suggesting that the inhabitants had American origins. On the other hand, the European ship also had a Hawaiian crew member who was able to communicate with the locals by means of his own language. This now brings us up to date with the population of the Earth by Homo sapiens. However, this in itself leads to an intriguing question concerning our species, namely its ability to produce art, an impulse that would increasingly characterize individual human development from this period on in far-flung regions ranging from Renaissance Europe to Mughal India and Ming China. Once again, it is necessary to return to prehistoric times. As we have seen, the impulse to create pyramids was not universal. Yet Homo sapiens does appear to have been driven by a compulsive need to leave behind him a precise trace of his existence, which can be seen as the beginnings of art. And what is most striking is the very particularity that this impulse first took: hand stencils. These were created by placing a hand on a cave wall and blowing coloured pigment, such as red ochre, through a pipe, so that the outlined imprint of the hand remained. This is arguably the earliest form of individualised art, yet its widespread and spontaneously independent appearance in vastly disparate locations is revelatory. Such stencils appeared in caves in France and Spain, dating from some thirty-five thousand years ago. 
Identical stencils appear as far apart as Indonesia, 40,000 years ago, and Patagonia, 9,000 years ago. But there is a sting in the tale. Such artifacts appear to demonstrate a quality unique to Homo sapiens, until in 2018, hand stencils were found in caves in Spain, which predated the emigration of Homo sapiens from Africa by some 20,000 years. And these hands were unmistakably Neanderthal. Homo sapiens is certainly unique amongst the hominids in having survived extinction, which begs the question, what else is unique about the evolution of this species apart from its survival, along with the lasting monuments of empire that it left behind? Chapter 7. The Ottoman Empire. We now return to the region where the world's earliest empires had begun and thrived for almost three millennia, namely the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire, which originated in 1299, would eventually achieve sovereignty over territory in Asia, Europe and Africa and would last for over 600 years. On four remarkable occasions, it would even threaten to destroy the more advanced civilization of Europe. Just 150 years after the founding declaration of the Ottoman Empire, during its early expansionist phase, Sultan Mehmed II, usually known as the Conqueror, achieved the unthinkable feat of conquering Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, still officially designated the Roman and Byzantine Empire. At its height in the 11th century, the Byzantine Empire had ruled over every country bordering on the Mediterranean, from Spain and Italy to Egypt and North Africa, as well as controlling the shores of the Black Sea and the upper half of the Red Sea. By 1453, Mehmed the Conqueror had all but destroyed this empire, taking Anatolia, Greece and moving up into the Balkans in the process encircling Constantinople. After Mehmed the Conqueror entered the Holy City, Constantine XI, the last man to claim the title of Roman Emperor, was killed. The Ottoman Sultan then declared that the 900-year-old Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom in Greek, Christendom's holiest cathedral and the largest building in the world, would from now on become a mosque. He also pronounced himself Kaisari i Rum, Turkish for Caesar of Rome. From his vantage point on the Bosphorus, Mehmed the Conqueror's capital straddled Europe and Asia, making it the potential capital of the world. Just over three centuries later, when Napoleon took Egypt, harbouring similar illusions, he regarded Cairo as the most strategic city on earth, the hub of Europe, Asia and Africa. America was dismissed as a primitive outpost. Back in Rome... A succession of popes had desperately been attempting to rally the divided nations of European Christendom to restart the Crusades and drive back the Ottomans. One by one, these attempts foundered, owing to ineffectual leadership, internal jealousies, suspicions and so forth. Meanwhile, the Ottoman advance continued inexorably north through the Balkans towards Venice and in 1480 even established a foothold on the Italian peninsula at the southern port of Otranto. Here, the local bishop was publicly sawn in half before the terrified population, 12,000 of whom were then put to the sword, with another 50,000 being shipped off into slavery. Within weeks, the Ottoman forces had advanced 200 miles up the east coast. Less than 200 miles east across the Apennines, the ailing, ageing Pope Sixtus IV was at his wit's end. It looked as if Rome was now to suffer the fate of Constantinople. Then, as if by a miracle, the Ottomans suddenly withdrew and sailed back across the Adriatic. 
In an echo of the Mongol invasion of Eastern Europe three centuries previously, the Ottomans had learned of the death of Mehmed the Conqueror and were anxious to return to Constantinople, where the future Sultan would be chosen. Europe was saved. But the threat of the Ottomans overrunning Europe was not over. Within fifty years, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent was laying siege to the city of Vienna. But the autumn of 1529 was long and wet, and the Turkish troops soon became demoralized. Their supply lines were overstretched, and a collapse of morale led to a Turkish retreat. Yet 150 years later, Sultan Mehmed IV ordered a second attempt to take Vienna. This time, with a fully equipped and supplied army of 200,000 men, led by the Grand Vizier or Chief Minister Kara Mustafa Pasha. In July 1683, before the Turks were even within sight of Vienna, the ruling Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I and 60,000 of its citizens had fled. In fact, Leopold I's act was less cowardly than it appeared. His intention was to solicit support from Poland, Cossacks, and German allies. The massive Ottoman army duly laid siege to Vienna, digging trenches and setting up tents in preparation for a long winter. By now, the Ottoman Empire had considerably expanded its territory, stretching along the North African coast through Egypt, Arabia, Syria, Iraq, as far as the Caspian Sea. In Europe, it had overrun the Balkans, Romania, and Hungary. Once Vienna fell, the whole of Central and Western Europe would lie at its mercy. The Ottoman forces had soon overrun the outer fortifications of Vienna and were beginning to dig tunnels beneath its walls. Then, on the 12th of September, the Ottomans were surprised by the appearance of a combined German-Polish force, which emerged from the Vienna woods at Mount Kahlenberg to the north of the city. The ensuing battle lasted 15 hours before the tent of the Grand Vizier was detonated, and as his troops fled from their trenches, they were put to the slaughter. Kara Mustafa managed to make it to the safety of Belgrade, but the Sultan was so outraged that he ordered his Grand Vizier to be executed and his head brought to Constantinople on a silver dish. The Battle of Kahlenberg is generally seen as marking the turning point of the Ottoman Empire, and from now on it would begin its long decline. Ironically, it was this long decline that would have the most profound effect of all. Presaging both the ultimate disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and the political destruction of the old European order. By the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was an impotent force. Egypt was virtually independent under the Mamluks. Persia and the Kurds threatened its eastern borders. Greece would declare itself independent in 1853, and Tsar Nicholas I of Russia described Turkey as the sick old man of Europe. Here was a vast empire ready for the taking. And all the European powers were covertly making plans to seize strategic territories for themselves. As early as 1799, Napoleon had already taken Egypt, but within a couple of years, the British navy forced the French to return home. The British then came to an arrangement with the Ottoman government in Istanbul, whereby they would act as Egypt's protector. However, this did not deter Napoleon. Having declared himself emperor, he began covertly drawing up plans for an overland invasion of Turkey in an attempt to forestall the Russians, who had by now extended their empire into the Caucasus borderland and looked poised to launch their own invasion. Things came to a head with the outbreak of the Crimean War in 1853 between Russia and an alliance of the Ottomans, Britain, France, and Sardinia. 
The ostensible cause of this war was a dispute between Roman Catholic and Russian Orthodox monks over the keys to the door of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, Christ's birthplace. The underlying cause was to prevent Russia from expanding into the Ottoman Empire, an aim in which the Western European allies eventually succeeded after a chaotic campaign involving great loss of life. Determined not to be left out, in the early 1900s, the recently formed German nation persuaded the Sultan to allow their engineers to construct a Hejaz railway from Damascus to Medina, ostensibly for the transport of pilgrims making the Hajj to Mecca. But in fact, as all could see, this railway would become an integral part of an interlinked Berlin to Baghdad railway, a key piece of German strategy. The Hejaz railway could be extended to Aqaba on the Red Sea, while the Baghdad branch could be extended to the head of the Persian Gulf. This would enable the Germans direct access to the Indian Ocean, thus circumventing the British-French-owned Suez Canal and enabling the Germans to extend their own empire beyond the bounds of German East Africa, basically mainland modern Tanzania. By the turn of the 20th century, the strategic European rivalries were falling into place, indicating many of the locations that in 1914 would become the flashpoints of the First World War. Such thumbnail sketches of the rise and fall of one of history's greatest empires give little indication of the transformation of the world that took place around it. During the years between 1299 and the Ottoman collapse in 1922, the world changed as never before shifting beyond recognition in a way that may well never be repeated. Such a claim might appear controversial in our present age of constant, miraculous human and technological self-reinvention, but is nonetheless worthy of argument. A brief outline of what happened during these 600 years will give an indication. In Europe, the Renaissance would blossom, followed by the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, which in turn ushered in the age of steam, electricity and mechanical engines of all kinds. Spain, having discovered the New World, would reap untold riches in gold and silver from South America, an unearned fortune that would ironically bring about its economic ruin. Meanwhile, Portugal, Great Britain, France and Holland would each carve out global empires. The wilderness of North America would see the British establish various coastal colonies. Owing to inept administration, these colonies would soon cast out their masters. After becoming United States, their need for manpower would attract downtrodden emigrants from Europe until America was on the verge of becoming the world's greatest economy. During this period, from 1299 to 1922, France would become Europe's leading power for 400 years, undergo an unprecedented revolution, and then, under Napoleon, set about actually conquering those countries over which it had once merely held sway. All this, and so much more, took place during the long centuries when the Ottoman Empire ruled the Middle East, to a great extent unaffected by what it saw as these external irrelevancies of political and technological transformation. This is not to imply that the Ottoman Empire remained isolationist, when Mehmed the Conqueror first set eyes on the walls and fortifications of Constantinople, he realised that they were impregnable, even to his army of over 160,000 soldiers. And a siege appeared to be out of the question. The city was built on an isthmus, surrounded by sea on three sides, its coastline protected by high walls. The land side was protected by a three-mile-long double ring of walls protected by a moat, in all, the walls contained over 50 castles, many with twin towers straddling the few arched gates, 
the inner ring of walls being forty feet high and fifteen feet thick. Even starvation appeared out of the question, as the inner city contained freshwater wells as well as gardens for growing produce. It appeared as if a stalemate was inevitable. But Mehmed the Conqueror had been informed of a Hungarian cannon founder named Orban, who had boasted that he could make a cannon that could blast the walls of Babylon itself. Mehmed commanded his men to bring Orban to the city of Adrianople, one hundred and fifty miles to the west, where there was a large iron foundry. Here, Orban was ordered to prove that he was as good as his word, and build the largest cannon of which he was capable. It took Orban over three months, and the result was a wheeled cannon with a twenty-seven-foot muzzle, capable of firing cannonballs weighing one thousand two hundred pounds over a distance of half a mile. This monstrous weapon was named the Basilic or the King, and it would require sixty oxen to drag it to the walls of Constantinople, where it arrived on the eleventh of April, fourteen fifty-three. It was also accompanied by a number of smaller cannons. Mehmed II ordered that the basilic and the other cannons be set up immediately opposite what he calculated was the weakest gate in the walls. He then ordered the cannons to be fired non-stop, day in, day out. Orban objected that this would overheat the muzzles of the cannons, which were then liable to disintegrate under the power of their own recoil. Mehmed II was adamant, and a barrage was launched that would last continuously for six weeks. Fortunately, the basilic took three hours to reload, but the smaller cannons proved less resilient, and Orban was killed when one of them exploded. By the end of May, the basilic had opened only a small breach in the outer wall. By now, Mehmed II had lost patience. He ordered his men to charge through the breach in what appeared to be a suicidal assault. At the sight of the Ottoman soldiers, the Byzantines panicked and tried to flee through a gate in the inner wall. In the midst of the melee, the Byzantines omitted to lock the gate behind them. The first Ottomans swarmed into the city itself, followed by wave after wave of their compatriots. The fall of Constantinople on the twenty-ninth of May, fourteen fifty-three, is still seen as one of the most significant dates in European history, the ultimate end of any real Roman Empire. The word "real" is necessary here, for as Voltaire pointed out, the so-called Holy Roman Empire, which grew out of Charlemagne's empire, was neither holy, Roman, nor an empire. Initially, Venice was the state most affected by this event, as it had previously carried out most of its foreign trade with Constantinople and the Eastern Mediterranean, maintaining several strategic ports throughout the Aegean and the Peloponnese. Whilst the rest of Europe remained divided over what action to take, Venice had even sent its own fleet to relieve the siege of Constantinople. Though this had barely entered the Aegean before news arrived of the fall of the city, whereupon, in accordance with the pragmatic policy adopted by Venice during this period, it decided to change sides. Bartolomeo Marcello, the Venetian ambassador aboard the fleet, was ordered to sail on to Constantinople and negotiate a trade treaty with Mehmed II. Choosing to overlook the fact that several hundred Venetians occupying the Venetian trading colony within Constantinople had been put to the sword by the Muslim invaders, Venice justified its change of policy to the rest of Italy by announcing, "Siamo Veneziani, poi Cristiani." We are Venetians, then Christians. Mehmed II received the new Venetian ambassador Marcello with the contempt he deserved. Yet the Sultan was also sufficiently versed in statecraft to realize the benefit of maintaining diplomatic relations with Italy's major sea-trading nation. A treaty was signed, 
And to cement this new accord, Venice chose to loan to Mehmed II its greatest artist, Gentile Bellini, who was renowned for the realism and psychological penetration of his portraits. Mehmed II had no truck with the Muslim edict against creating images, and was glad to welcome Bellini to Constantinople. Indeed, despite Bellini's understandable hesitancy, he and Mehmed II soon struck up a firm friendship. Unique in its intimacy, according to a contemporary observer, Mehmed II and Gentile both shared a deep interest in the knowledge and history of the Levant, as well as a love of the new sciences that were now beginning to emerge under the inspiration of the Renaissance. Bellini was given full reign to make sketches of life in the newly transformed Constantinople, as well as being commissioned to paint a portrait of Mehmed II himself. This conveys Mehmed seated in half profile, wearing his large white sultan's turban, red kaftan, and exotic fur shawl. There is no flattery in the depiction of Mehmed's stern features, with their long nose and full brown beard. This is the face of a determined warrior, yet also a man of considerable culture and knowledge. It was in these last two aspects that the cultural differences between Bellini and Mehmed II would become manifest. Mehmed II asked Bellini to create a painting of Saint John the Baptist, who was also renowned as a prophet in the Islamic faith. Mehmed II wished Bellini's painting to depict the head of John the Baptist on a platter when it was presented to the dancer Salome after she had engineered his beheading. When Bellini duly presented his meticulously finished work to Mehmed II, the Sultan examined it closely and then drew Bellini's attention to a detail in Saint John's severed neck. What Bellini had painted was not anatomically correct. Bellini politely begged to differ. He had, after all, studied anatomy alongside the young Leonardo da Vinci. Mehmed II beckoned for his attendants to bring forth a slave, whom he ordered to be summarily beheaded. Mehmed then leaned forward, pointing out to the aghast Bellini the precise error in his painting. Within two years, Gentile had managed to persuade his friend Mehmed II to allow him to return to his native Italy. The Ottomans appear to have originated in the Turkic heartlands of Central Asia, moving west under the banner of the Mongols. As we have seen, following the split of the Mongol Empire into four main khanates in the mid 1200s, Il Khanate had ruled the southeastern region of the empire, occupying Persia and much of Anatolia, which is modern Turkey. When Mongol power had waned, this too had disintegrated into various semi-independent provinces. One of these was a small tribal territory to the east of the Sea of Marmara, stretching just over fifty miles long and fifteen miles wide. This was ruled by Osman I, who had been born in 1254. Little is known of Osman I's early life, except that he became ruler of his small territory in 1299, which is usually taken as the founding date of the Ottoman Empire. Osman is also known to have had a dream in which he saw that a moon arose from the holy man's breast and came to sink in his own breast. When he asked his palace holy man what this meant, he was told that God had bequeathed the house of Osman with a great destiny, that it would one day rule over a vast empire with mountains and streams and running waters and gardens. This tale would become a driving myth for Osman and his people, who became known as Ottomans after their ruler. From this time on, Osman I gradually began extending his domain into neighboring territory ruled by the Byzantine Empire. 
Ottoman the First's dream was not only the founding myth of Ottoman national identity, but also played a leading role in the psychology of his descendant Mehmed II, who in 1444 ascended to the Sultanate at the tender age of 12, having scarcely finished his traditional Islamic education at the ancient city of Amasya. Despite being deposed by the Janissaries, the powerful crack troops who formed the Sultan's household guard, Mehmed II returned to rule in 1451. It says much of his determination and military skills that within two years he had taken Constantinople, as well as extending his empire's territory well into the Balkans, Anatolia, and the northern shores of the Black Sea. Six years later, Mehmed II would begin building Topkapi Palace, his imperial residence in Constantinople. As imperial palaces go, this speaks volumes for the taste of its creator. Here, there is none of the dwarfing grandeur of Roman imperial glory, or the overwhelming scale of Versailles. This is an almost homely palace. It is neither imposing from its exterior nor belittling in its interior. Yet its situation is utterly impregnable. The grounds of the palace and its buildings occupy the narrow foreland that overlooks the Sea of Marmara to the right, the Bosphorus below, and the entrance to the Golden Horn to the left. The walls that surround it are set at the crest of the steep, rocky slopes high above the water, and thus have no need to appear hugely imposing. Inside the main gate, which serves as the entry from the city, the atmosphere is more like that of a university than a palace. Everything is on the human scale, from the comparatively small, well-proportioned buildings to the courtyards and shaded walkways. Fountains play in the gardens. Amidst one courtyard stands a square library building. Across another is the modest treasury building. Behind the walls that encircle the courtyards, there are small pools where the sultan's wives could gather and bathe. And at the far end of the palace, overlooking the vista of the water far below, is a small marble enclave with a single marble seat where the sultan could sit on his own, gazing down over the vista of the city and the Bosphorus to the shore of Asia. On the left of the large second courtyard is the largest building in the palace, the harem. This housed the sultan's living quarters, as well as those for his wives and concubines. One entrance to this building leads onto the divan, which is lined with the furnishings that now take its name. This was the council chamber where the sultan's grand vizier and the other ministers of state would gather on their divans to hold what were virtually cabinet meetings. High on one wall is a grill behind which the sultan would sit unseen, watching as his ministers discuss the state business of the day. Afterwards, the sultan was liable to summon any minister to a personal audience to account for what he had said during the divan. These debates may have been informal; tea, cakes, or meals could be served, but the manner of discussion was both guarded and discreet. All dreaded a summons to meet the sultan afterwards. Where wider law was concerned, the Ottomans were a classic example of Krivichek's observation concerning the governing of subject people. This was best left as before, but with the new imperial administrators occupying the senior positions. As long as sufficient recruits were inducted into the local imperial army, taxes were gathered, and the annual tribute sent to the central government administration in Istanbul, there was little interference from their Ottoman masters. For the most part, local courts operated according to local religious custom. Jews were tried by Jewish courts in accord with Talmudic law. Christians had their own courts that applied canon law, and the Muslim courts administered their own version of Sharia law. However, the Sultan's decrees were above all laws and were to be obeyed without question. 
There were, of course, exceptions to this pragmatic approach. In a number of conquered territories, the subject people were forcibly converted to Islam, while in others the subject people were induced to convert with rewards such as lower taxes, access to privileged employment, land ownership, and so forth. In this way, many amongst the conquered people were converted. The aftermath of such mixed religious populations remains to this day, accounting for hostilities in such regions as the former Yugoslavia and Cyprus. Mehmed II may have sought cultural advice from the likes of Venetians such as Bellini, but there is no doubting that the Ottomans were, in many aspects, quite the cultural equal of their European counterparts. Just two years after the conquest of Constantinople, Mehmed II set about building the Grand Bazaar. Which remains to this day the largest and finest covered market in the world, containing more than sixty streets and four thousand shops. At the same time, he embarked upon the Topkapi Palace. Yet the greatest was yet to come. The Islamization of Istanbul would reach its apogee under Suleiman the Magnificent, who was born in 1494, just thirteen years after the death of his only rival in greatness, Mehmed the Conqueror. Suleiman would become Sultan at the age of twenty-six, and his reign would live up to his epithet. Suleiman was not only the longest-serving Sultan for forty-six years, but would rule over the Ottoman Empire at its height, expanding his territory until he ruled over twenty-five million people. By comparison, the population of the entire continent of Europe during this period was seventy-five million. It was Suleiman the Magnificent who made the inspired choice of Mimar Sinan as his chief architect. Sinan would be responsible for the great and graceful mosques that are such a feature of Istanbul to this day. The Suleymaniye Mosque, overlooking the Golden Horn, and the Galata Bridge, with its superb squat dome and towering pinnacle minarets, makes an inimitable silhouette against the evening sky. Inside, its gracefully arched courtyard gives way to the ethereal hues, intricate calligraphy, and symmetrical designs of the stained glass windows that adorn the vast, domed interior. This is rightfully judged to be Sinan's finest work in Istanbul. This is certainly a match for Michelangelo's contemporary plans for St. Peter's in Rome. Sinan's technique and architectural influence was so great that both the Taj Mahal in India and the tiled modifications of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem were heavily inspired by his work. Other influential aspects of Ottoman culture include its cuisine, which would spread from Anatolia throughout the empire. The variety and ingenuity of its meze remain central to restaurant menus all over the Eastern Mediterranean. Other ingredients include aubergine, spit-roasted meats. Honey-soaked pastries and all manner of vegetable dishes. Most of these originated as Anatolian or Levantine peasant meals. Indeed, the transmission of food and our words to describe it echo the spread of cultures. As the anthropologist Jared Diamond indicates, the passage from language to language of words describing animals or food often gives surprising insight into the evolution and spread of these items. Consider, for instance, the use of the word describing sheep. Indicating the passage of its domestication, sheep is avis in Sanskrit, ovis in Greek, ovis in Latin, oveja in Spanish, ovtsa in Russian, avis in Lithuanian, and oi in Irish. English uses the word sheep, but the ancient root is preserved in the word you. This leads us to a further historical distinction that can be indicated by language. 
For example, when William of Normandy took over England in 1066, his army included many French knights who were rewarded with estates taken from their previous Anglo-Saxon lords. The language spoken at the dinner table was French, while the words used by the lowly servants and cooks remained Anglo-Saxon. Evidence of this remains in the names of animals and the cooked meat dishes they provide. Pigs become pork and French poor. Sheep becomes mutton, mouton. Cows become beef, boeuf, and so forth. A host of such deep linguistic divisions between the colonizer and the colonized can be found to this day in the former territories of the Ottoman Empire. Two common examples will suffice. What is called kebab in Turkish is insistently named souvlaki in Greek, and when asking for a small cup of thick Middle Eastern coffee, one orders Greek coffee in Greece and Turkish coffee in Turkey. Another difference in Ottoman culture was noted in 1717 by Lady Mary Montagu, wife of the British ambassador. She observed that the local women of all classes practiced ingrafting, a process that involved piercing the skin of children with a needle which had been infected with a tiny amount of smallpox. After a mild bout of smallpox, the child would then be protected from this disfiguring and often fatal disease for life. At the time, smallpox was one of the greatest medical scourges. According to Voltaire, sixty percent of the world population were liable to catch this disease, causing a death rate of twenty percent. The disease was spread via the lungs, and through the centuries, none were spared, regardless of class or personal cleanliness. It is now known that Pharaoh Ramesses V had died of this disease as early as the twelfth century BC. Elizabeth I of England had suffered from it, as had Mozart and George Washington, and its effect on the Aztecs would lead to it being described by Dr. Edward Jenner as the most dreadful scourge of the human species. When Lady Mary Montagu returned to England, her ingrafting idea was not widely accepted, almost certainly because she was a woman and of no medical qualification. Not until 1796 would Jenner himself introduce the idea of ingrafting with cowpox rather than smallpox itself. The idea of vaccination was born, and the scourge of smallpox all but eliminated. Few realized then, as now, that this originated from an Ottoman invention. By now, the Ottoman Empire was at the height of its power, with territory stretching from the Horn of Africa to Algeria. From the time of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottomans had virtual control over the whole Mediterranean. This was largely due to a pirate of Albanian descent known as Barbarossa or Redbeard, who had set up his headquarters in Algiers. When the Ottoman army overran the city, it was soon agreed that Barbarossa should remain in charge. This suited both sides. Barbarossa was declared admiral of the fleet and led his considerable naval force to a resounding victory over the combined Christian-European navy at Preveza, off western Greece, in 1539. Algiers would continue as a centre of piracy for centuries to come, attacking ships of all Christian nations. As had happened to Julius Caesar in ancient Roman times, pirates took important captives hostage, only releasing them from their jail in Algiers when a ransom had been paid. Others were simply sold off as slaves. An indication of the scale of such piracy can be seen from the geographical range of their activities. Barbary pirates, as they became known, seized hostages or slaves from places as far afield as West Africa, Cornwall, and Iceland. Celebrated figures who suffered this fate range from the early Renaissance artist Filippo Lippi, who bought his release by selling skilled portraits of his captors, 
to the Spanish writer Miguel de Cervantes, who would go on to write Don Quixote after his release. But the most renowned of their captives would be the twenty-year-old Aimé de Rivéry, a cousin of Napoleon's wife Josephine, who was taken from a French ship in the Atlantic. The Bay of Algiers quickly realized the high value of such a beautiful white virgin, and in order to gain favor with the Sultan Abdul Hamid I, sent her to Istanbul so that she could be taken into his harem. It is said that the Sultan became so enamoured of Emma that she was appointed his chief wife, taking on the name Velide Sultan Naxidil. A dominant and well-educated woman, she persuaded her husband to introduce a number of long-overdue reforms and encouraged close diplomatic ties with France. Doubts have been cast on this story, and although some aspects of it ring hollow, there is no doubting the existence of Velide Sultan Naxidil and her beneficial influence over the Sultan. By the end of the nineteenth century, the power as well as the caliber of the Ottoman sultans had begun to wane. Much of this can be attributed to a uniquely Ottoman tradition known as the kafes or cage, which was originally introduced on humanitarian grounds. Prior to the seventeenth century, when the sultan died and his son succeeded, it was the practice for all his brothers to be executed immediately in order to avoid any sibling claims to the sultanate. Sultan Ahmed I, who acceded to the throne in 1603, decreed an end to this barbaric practice. Instead of having his brother murdered, he had him confined to the kafes. Here, he was otherwise granted every comfort, including his harem of wives. This practice would have a number of unintended consequences. When Murad IV died in 1640, he was succeeded by his brother, who became Ibrahim I. By this stage, the new sultan had spent twenty-two years confined in the kafes. It is easy to see why he soon became known as Ibrahim the Mad. Utterly ignorant of political practice and protocol, as well as being deprived of the social graces expected of the occupant of the Topkapi Palace, he spent his days frolicking with his harem in the palace pool. When he heard a rumor that one of his wives had been unfaithful to him, he ordered all two hundred and eighty members of his harem to be tied up in sacks and thrown from a ship into the Bosphorus. According to legend, one of them was rescued by a passing French ship and ended up living in Paris, where she earned a fortune after her memoirs became a bestseller. Such degenerate behavior and erratic decision-making by successive sultans led to a considerable weakening of the Ottoman Empire, and it was now that the European powers began scheming to divide amongst themselves the vast territory of the sick old man of Europe. In 1914, the Ottoman Empire was persuaded to join on the German side in the First World War. By now, Turkey and the provinces of its empire were beginning to fall apart. Rumors spread of various groups bidding for power. The population of Anatolia contained, as it does to this day, a rich blend of nationalities. These were remnants of people who had, over the centuries, conquered or defended the country, as well as people from all over the Ottoman Empire. As such, they included a wide variety of Turkic people who originated from Central Asia: Mongols, Kurds, Armenians, as well as people of Slavic, Caucasian, Greek, and Albanian stock. The notorious Armenian massacre, which took place in 1915, was provoked by the central government's paranoia concerning this Christian group or others taking over the country. In fact, by now most racial groups were partially, if not fully, integrated. There were even Armenians who had risen to ministerial level, running such vital institutions as the National Mint, the Water Board, and munitions production. 
Over the coming years of the war, the campaign against the Armenians led to mass deportation and, indeed, genocide. The very word was coined to describe what had taken place, an event that led to the death of over one million people. In 1918, the Ottoman Empire found itself on the losing side of the war, and at the Treaty of Versailles, Turkey was stripped of its colonial possessions. Consequently, the Greeks launched an opportunistic invasion into the heartland of Anatolia, but were eventually driven back by the skilled General Mustafa Kemal, who had defeated the Allies at Gallipoli. In the ensuing confusion, the port city of Smyrna, now Izmir, was burned, and as many as 100,000 fleeing Greeks may have lost their lives. A few months later, the last Sultan Mehmed IV abdicated. Within months, General Mustafa Kemal took power. Naming himself Atatürk, father of the Turkish people, and began introducing a widespread program of reforms intended to Europeanize the supposedly backward country. These included such measures as banning the fez for men and the veil for women, transposing the Turkish language from Arabic to European script, an attempt to establish parliamentary democracy as well as abolishing Sharia law and curtailing the power of the religious authorities, especially with regard to education. Almost a century later, disputes have begun to arise once more over most of these reforms, and now it is the Kurds who have become the scapegoats. The Ottoman Empire may be viewed as the last of the old-style empires, as we have seen. Initially, the world's great empires had usually been initiated by the urge to conquest. Indeed, in the case of the Mongol Empire, arguably this appears to have been the beginning and the end of the entire project. Other, more civilizing or more exploitative aspects came in the wake of conquest. Yet, since the end of the 15th century, empire building had undergone a subtle sea change. In both senses of the words, from that time on, the sea would play a major role in empire, and change in the form of historical transformation or advancement would become a feature excelling even that of Roman times. The Spanish conquest of the New World was almost as domineering as the Mongol Empire, yet in its wake came the extraction of great wealth in the form of gold and silver. The Portuguese, on the other hand, had rounded the Cape of Good Hope in the search of trade. They intended to circumvent the Silk Route to the east, and their success bankrupted the Venetians, the previous main beneficiaries of the trade in valuable Oriental spices such as nutmeg, pepper, cinnamon, and ginger. From now on, trade would often be the initial inspiration rather than the secondary consequence of empire building. From now on, it would be the age of growing European empires. Europe had become a cockpit of competing nation states. Wars were won and lost, but states survived more or less intact. No one would conquer the entire continent of Europe until Napoleon. European civilization advanced, spurred on by such internecine conflicts. In the process, warring European states developed ever more ingenious military inventions, which in turn led to a scientific revolution. Both Leonardo and Galileo aspired to success as military engineers. Galileo's modified telescope, proposed to the Venetians as a means of advanced warning of any approaching enemy fleet, would only become a revolutionary scientific instrument the moment Galileo raised it to the night sky. Meanwhile, the rest of the world remained largely untouched by such technical progress until the Spanish and the Portuguese initiated a new way forward. Other nations on the European landmass soon followed suit: the Dutch, the English, the French, 
All were soon sailing the seven seas in search of trade, with territorial conquest following in its wake. The latter were sometimes prompted by local objections to these interloper traders, but increasingly by the old imperial urge to conquest. In this case, prompted more by greed and the wish to keep out other European competitors rather than the wish to dominate or civilize. Contrast this with what was happening on the symmetrically opposite side of the Eurasian landmass. China remained undivided and isolated, while its offshore counterpart to Britain, namely Japan, maintained a similar policy of isolation and inwardness. Meanwhile, the European nations went on discovering the rest of the world, rapidly claiming its territories as their empires. The greatest of these would become the empire on which the sun never set, namely the British Empire. This was literally true. No matter how the globe spun, the sun was always shining on at least one part of this far-flung empire. On the other hand, it did contain the implicit suggestion that the sun would never set on such an empire. As we have seen from the outset, this has been a delusion of all great empires. What might be called the Ozymandias syndrome has persisted in the modern era. One of the few reliable lessons of history, its traces can be seen in Hitler's Thousand-Year Reich. As well as the notion of a permanent American hegemony. Chapter Eight: The British Empire. It used to be said that if any power had to dominate the globe during the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, it might as well have been the British. Other candidates were all lacking in that British sense of fair play and reasonableness. Ironically, it seemed the more decent among the nations in Europe, the more disgraceful were their treatment of their colonies, namely the barbaric rule of the Dutch in the East Indies and genocide by the Belgians in the Congo. However, the more one examines this claim mitigating British colonial power, the less clear-cut it becomes. As all were prepared to concede, there had, of course, been a number of blots on British imperial rule. Take the case of India, the so-called jewel in the crown. The early 19th-century opium wars, when the British forced the Chinese to purchase opium grown in India, was hardly fair play. Consequently, 40,000 mainly coastal Chinese became addicts, and China's GDP was halved. And then there was the 1919 Amritsar massacre, sanctioned by the governor of the Punjab, Michael O'Dwyer, when British soldiers were ordered to open fire on a religious gathering of Sikhs. Official reports were forced to admit up to 200 deaths. Later investigation revealed that more than one thousand died and fifteen hundred were wounded. This single act was said to have been the crystallizing moment for the independence movement. Twenty years later, Udam Singh, who had witnessed the massacre, would single-handedly and single-mindedly travel all the way to London, where he would shoot Governor O'Dwyer. After being tried, he would be hanged by the British. To this day, his picture is revered in the Golden Temple at Amritsar, the spiritual heart of the Sikh religion. By this time, the independence movement was being led by Mahatma Gandhi, who would pursue a policy of passive resistance, encouraging his followers to lie down on railway tracks to prevent the passage of trains. With some justification, it has been claimed that such a tactic could only have worked against the British, who threw buckets of sewage over the demonstrators rather than simply driving the trains over them. Furthermore, it was the British who had built the railway tracks in the first place, introducing a modern transport system that reached the length and breadth of the subcontinent. 
disconnected cities whose civic buildings were at least the equal of many in Europe, in which British and Indian civil servants ran an administration attempting to modernise a population of hundreds of millions. This involved pursuing a policy of divide and rule, incentives, indigenous military recruitment, and selective threat of force. To give an idea of the magnitude of this task, in 1900, 165,000 British administrators and army ruled over around 330 million Indians. The British administration, often aided by the army, would introduce modern irrigation, forestry, a new legal system, and new prisons. As well as widespread education in English, they would look on in bemusement as the Indians founded their own steel industry, which saw the rise of Tata Steel, now one of the world's largest companies. Yet, at the same time, for over 150 years, India's GDP would remain stagnant. Some even claimed that it halved. Meanwhile, the GDP of Great Britain increased by nearly 700 percent during this same period. Much of this due to British imports from India, such as jute, cotton, spices, and even rice, despite famines. On the other hand, enlightened policies led to the growth of a thriving Indian middle class. A few even educated at prestigious English public schools. It was intellectuals from this emergent class who would one day form the backbone of the independence movement. Once again, we come up against the perennial, double-edged question: What have the Romans ever done for us? Which also begs the question: What have the Romans done to us? In keeping with the new European empires, the British Empire began as exploration with a view to trade. As early as 1497, the Venetian Juan Cabotto, anglicised to John Cabot, was financed by a group of Bristol merchants to sail west across the Atlantic in the wake of Columbus. Ironically, Cabot made landfall near where the Vikings had established their brief Vinland colony some 500 years earlier, a place which Cabot named Newfoundland. Cabot was under the misapprehension that he had landed in China and decided against founding a colony. Almost a century later, in 1585, Sir Walter Raleigh established a colony at Roanoke Island in Virginia, which was then the English name for the entire coast north of the Spanish claimed territory of Florida. It was from Virginia that Raleigh first brought potatoes and tobacco back to England, but when a British ship arrived at Roanoke in 1590, it was found that all the inhabitants had mysteriously vanished. In 1607, the British would establish the first permanent settlement in the Americas at Jamestown, some 100 miles north of the lost colony of Roanoke. Just half a century earlier, the English sailor John Hawkins had hijacked a Portuguese ship sailing from Africa to the Caribbean, carrying 301 black slaves, which he sold at Santo Domingo. Finding this to be a lucrative business, he then embarked upon the triangular slave trade, which was already being operated by several European nations. This involved a ship sailing from Europe with a cargo of textiles, various tools, weapons, and rum. On arrival in West Africa, these cheap European manufactured goods would be sold to local chieftains in return for slaves. The ship then embarked upon the second leg of the triangle, the notorious Middle Passage across the Atlantic for the Caribbean. The cargo of chained black slaves were laid out below decks in closely packed rows, where they endured stifling heat and appalling conditions. Many died. Though it was in the interests of the captain as well as the profit of his backers to ensure that as many as possible amongst this precious cargo remained alive, 
Ships carrying 250 slaves, sometimes even 600, would transport their human cargo in this fashion to the West Indies, where they were sold to the owners of sugar plantations. The slaves were then set to the backbreaking task of hacking down sugar canes in the subtropical heat. Some slaves were sold as far north as the British plantations in Virginia. The first Africans arrived in the British colony of Jamestown as early as 1619. These were said to be indentured labour rather than permanent slaves. That is, they were bound to work for their masters as slaves for a fixed period, whereupon they were released and sometimes given a plot of land. By 1619, there were also a number of English indentured labourers serving at Jamestown. These were men and women who had been found guilty of crimes in their homeland and sentenced to a period of indentured labour in the overseas plantations. Jamestown was thus not only a plantation colony producing cotton, tobacco, and wood for export, but also a penal colony using convicts as a form of quasi-slave labour. In 1640, one black and two white indentured labourers escaped from Jamestown and fled north towards Maryland. All three were soon recaptured and brought before the Virginia Governor's Council. The two white fugitives were sentenced to serve out longer indentures, while the black fugitive named John Punch was sentenced to permanent, that is, lifelong indenture. In the words of Radney Coates of Miami University, this made John Punch the first official slave in the English colonies. The slave trade was carried out by almost all European maritime nations, even Sweden and Russia. It is reliably estimated to have transported up to 12.5 million Africans across the Atlantic, with some 10.7 million surviving the Middle Passage before slavery was abolished. The British campaigner William Wilberforce finally managed to get an act through Parliament abolishing the trafficking of slaves in 1807, with the United States following suit in 1808. Consequently, a British naval squadron was tasked with intercepting slave ships leaving West Africa. Even so, slavery would continue until 1833 in the sugar plantations of the British Caribbean, after which the sugar plantation owners forced to free their slaves received compensation for loss of property of around twenty million pounds in total. This sum represented no less than forty percent of the British government's annual expenditure, navy. Army, civil administration, and authority throughout the land, and so on. In present terms, this payout would be worth around 16.5 billion pounds. Despite the efforts of Wilberforce and the British Navy, the slave trade represents more than a mere blot on the reputation of the British Empire. It has been argued in mitigation that all the other major powers were involved, and the British were the first to abolish it altogether. The United States did not abolish internal slavery until 1865, while in Brazil it persisted until 1888. Indeed, all previous empires we have discussed relied heavily upon slavery, from their everyday life to their great monuments, from the pyramids to the graceful columns of the Parthenon, from the immense cavern dug out to house Emperor Huang's terracotta army and the stones hewed and hauled to construct the great mosques of Istanbul. All were only made possible using massive quantities of slave labour, but this was the distant past. Perhaps our main concern with slavery in the British Empire, as well as in the Americas and other European empires, is that the proceeds from this unspeakable trade laid the foundations of the modern world we inhabit today.
The vast influx of money from the sugar plantations built great fortunes in Britain. Nick Draper of London University, who has made a revealing study of the compensation received by British slave owners, estimates as many as one fifth of wealthy Victorian Britons derived all or part of their fortunes from the slave economy. In fact, by 1833, there were over 46,000 British owners of slaves. This was how the ancestors of George Orwell, Graham Greene, ex-Prime Minister David Cameron, and a host of others made their fortunes. Even the Bishop of Exeter received over four thousand pounds, presently worth around half a million pounds. And perhaps more surprisingly, half of the beneficiaries of the 1833 compensation were women, who had, for the most part, received ownership of their slaves through family inheritance. This was the wealth that would create banks, country mansions, and vast estates. It would also fund the age of steam, of canals, of railways, and the world's greatest navy. This was the money that financed the industrial revolution, which made Britain and its empire into the greatest power in the world. An industrial revolution that spread and transformed Europe. An industrial revolution that spread modernity across the globe. In other words, the world as we know it. Is built on this money, as Balzac observed. Behind every great fortune, there is a great crime. Passing to the other side of the world and the eastern origins of the British Empire, one of its earliest and most significant territories was a tiny island less than two miles long and half a mile wide in what is now Indonesia. This was the island of Run in the Banda Islands, which lie amidst the various scattered archipelago that occupy the 800 miles of sea between what are now known as Borneo and Papua New Guinea. The Banda Islands had originally been discovered by the Portuguese in 1511. Then, in 1609, the Dutch East India Company muscled in, but in 1611, the British captain Nathaniel Cawthorpe took possession of the island of Run. The attraction of this obscure archipelago was that these islands were, at the time, the world's sole source of nutmeg and mace, two spices which were so highly prized in Europe that they were worth more than their weight in gold. Besides being highly prized as a condiment, nutmeg was also valued for its alleged medicinal properties, believed to be capable of curing everything from the bloody flux to the plague. Ten pounds of nutmeg could be purchased in Run for just one English penny, old style. Back in London, this could be sold for the equivalent of two pounds fifty. Some goods had a markup of as much as sixty-eight thousand percent. After the British laid claim to Run, the Dutch sporadically laid siege to the island. The British maintained a tenuous hold on the island until a few years before 1677, when a peace treaty was signed with the Dutch at Breda in Holland. Under the terms of this treaty, Britain agreed to relinquish all claim to Run in exchange for a slightly larger island held by the Dutch in the Americas, namely Manhattan Island. Whereupon the local settlement of New Amsterdam, population two thousand five hundred, was renamed New York. According to historian Giles Milton, the trade in Oriental spices such as nutmeg, pepper. Ginger and cinnamon would bring about a new age of revolutionary economics based on credit, the rise of a rudimentary banking system, and ultimately free enterprise. Here was the beginning of modern capitalism. The epitome of this revolution can be seen in the rise of the joint stock company, most notably the English East India Company. This was granted a royal charter in 1600 by Queen Elizabeth I, giving the company a monopoly on English trade with the East for 15 years. 
This allowed a group of London merchants to buy shares in the company, which would then be run by a board of directors. The capital accumulated from the sale of these shares allowed the directors to purchase a ship, man it, and load it with cargo, giving the captain instructions to sail around the Cape of Good Hope and trade its cargo for valuable spices in the East Indies. At the time, a vague appellation covering the whole of India, Southeast Asia, and even China. When or if the ship successfully returned to England, its cargo of spices would be sold, with the shareholders benefiting from the profits according to their share of the total initial investment. Financial innovation involving credit, free enterprise, and rudimentary banking were very much in the air during this period. The Dutch led the way with the largest stock exchange in Europe at Amsterdam. Even so, it would not be until 1602 that the Dutch founded their own Dutch East India Company, which would seek to monopolize the spice trade in what became known as the Dutch East Indies or modern Indonesia. Other Europeans, such as the Portuguese and even the Danes, were already running similar schemes, but the English and Dutch East India companies would soon emerge as the major players, with what would become the British East India Company virtually taking over the whole of India within 200 years. The profits accruing to the British East India Company were soon greater than those of the West Indies sugar plantations. Competition with the Dutch and French companies quickly led to armed skirmishes. By 1800, the British East India Company was a state within a state. It appointed its own governors of India. It had its own navy, consisting of both merchant and armed vessels. Its armed navy was even able to conduct its own wars, such as the Opium Wars against China. The company also ran its own army of 260,000 men, with British officers commanding locally recruited soldiers. This was twice the size of the entire official British army and was used for conducting campaigns against independent maharajas. The defeat in 1799 of the fearsome Tipu Sahib, Sultan of Mysore, saw Arthur Wellesley, later to become Duke of Wellington, notch up his first victory. Then, in 1857, came the Indian Mutiny, which began in Delhi and soon spread throughout central India. Although this was eventually put down with much savagery on both sides, the British government back in London had had enough. The British Empire was no place for an entire subcontinent to be ruled by an independent commercial enterprise, and the government nationalised the East India Company. India was placed under British colonial rule, and a few years later, Queen Victoria would be declared Empress of India. By now, the British Empire had expanded to truly global proportions. In 1759, General Wolfe and his soldiers scaled the cliffs at Quebec on the St Lawrence River and took the French city. Four years later, Canada became a British colony. However, ten years after that, when the British government imposed taxes on the American colonies and then tried to sell them tea imported tax-free by the East India Company from China, this resulted in the Boston Tea Party. Colonists dressed as Native Americans boarded the ships and cast tea chests into Boston Harbor. Demonstrations against inept British rule under the slogan "No taxation without representation" soon spread throughout the thirteen British colonies in America, and in 1776 they achieved a historic victory, forming the United States of America. By now, Captain Cook had sailed the South Pacific and planted the British flag in Australia, claiming the entire territory for the empire in 1770. After the British had lost their American colonies, they no longer had a penal colony where they could exile such criminals as were deemed not worthy of hanging. 
The theft of a sheep or goods valued at twelve pence merited the death penalty. Pickpockets and juvenile offenders were merely exiled for life to penal colonies in the Americas, where they usually worked as indentured labourers. But now that Australia had been discovered, the authorities decided that this was just the place to establish a new penal colony. And in 1788, a ship carrying the first prisoners arrived at Botany Bay, now Sydney. The empire may have been flourishing across the globe, but the majority of the people back home, like those who had been subjugated abroad, derived little benefit from this. On the contrary, the industrial revolution resulted in an exodus from rural areas to the cities in search of work. What they found was even worse than the servitude of working the land. The rapidly expanding cities were soon teeming with factory workers enduring long hours and housed in appalling conditions. The figures speak for themselves. In 1700, Manchester had been a small market town with a population of 10,000. By 1800, this had become 95,000. By 1850, it had become 250,000. When the German factory owner Friedrich Engels moved to Manchester and saw for himself the unbelievable squalor of the slums, he wrote to his friend Karl Marx, and together they composed the Communist Manifesto, with its stirring call to arms: "Workers of the world, unite!" The British Empire was making people rich, but throughout the world and even at home, the condition of its subjects was often a humanitarian disgrace. The fact that the Marxist system simply doesn't work and itself would often lead to conditions of widespread and appalling distress when it was applied does in no way gainsay the disgraceful conditions it sought to alleviate. When the First World War broke out in 1914, many thousands of young men in cities throughout Britain enthusiastically volunteered to join the army. The army's slogan was "Britain needs you." The slogan of many joining up was "This is our chance to get out of here, lads." Three years later, word spread through the trenches that there had been a revolution in Russia, and many of those same lads rejoiced at the news that somewhere, at last, all men might be equal. Years later, when my father had become a successful businessman in London, he was in the habit of raising his glass to the Kaiser and Lenin. When the bemused company would ask what he meant by this seemingly contradictory toast, he would reply, "The Kaiser got me out of Glasgow." And Lenin made me believe there could be justice on this earth. Ironically, the British Empire had always had trouble at home. It had taken centuries for the component territories of Great Britain to acquiesce to what was, for the most part, English domination. In 1301, after Edward I had defeated the Welsh, he promised them a prince born in Wales who did not speak a word of English. The Welsh assumed that this would be a Welshman who spoke the Welsh language, but they'd been tricked. Their new prince turned out to be Edward I's infant son, who happened to have been born in the English castle at Carnarvon in Wales. From this time on, the reigning monarch's son has traditionally taken the title Prince of Wales. The Scots proved more troublesome, bitterly contesting all attempts at conquest by the old enemy. Then came the last years of the 17th century, when the Scots decided to branch out into the empire business, attempting to found a colony of their own at Darien in Panama. This was financed by the Company of Scotland, a joint stock company on the East India Company model. Ironically, this Scottish company was founded by William Paterson, the Scotsman who had successfully founded the Bank of England. Everyone in Scotland became enthused with this patriotic scheme, and all who could sank their savings into it.
When the so-called Darien scheme failed, largely due to its ill-chosen jungle site and its vulnerability to Spanish attack, the entire nation was bankrupted. In 1707, Scotland signed an act of union with England, prompting the national poet's Rabbi Burns to declare that the Scots were bought and sold for English gold. There followed unsuccessful rebellions in 1715 and 1745. In the latter, the Scots reached Derby, just over 100 miles short of London, but when no one turned up to fight them, they simply returned home. The third of England's Celtic neighbours, the Irish, suffered worst of all. The Normans had invaded as early as 1169. After the Reformation, England's fear of Catholic Ireland being used as a base for European Catholic powers to attack mainly Protestant England led to further incursions and rebellions. Through the 16th and 17th centuries, plantations were established, during which the indigenous Irish were driven off land that was then given to Protestant immigrants, largely from Scotland. These occupied much of the north of the country. Famine and emigration cut a swathe through the entire country during the 19th century. By 1841, the population of Ireland had risen to 8.5 million. By 1900, this had fallen to 4.5 million. Then, in 1916, an uprising was staged in Dublin, which was partly put down by shells lobbed into the city by a British naval vessel at the mouth of the River Liffey. Many view this as the first people's revolution of the 20th century, coming as it did just a year prior to the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. In 1922, Ireland would finally gain independence. The country which had a claim to being the first colony of the British Empire was now the first colony to break free from it. America didn't count. As far as the Irish were concerned, this was just a civil war amongst the English. And besides, by now, large sections of New York, Boston and Chicago had been colonised by the Irish. By 1913, the dark continent of Africa had been all but totally divided between the European powers. Only Liberia and Ethiopia remained free, with the British and the French taking the lion's share. Cecil Rhodes, the British imperialist par excellence, had pushed north from the Cape Colony with the aim of founding British colonies from the Cape to Cairo, but was temporarily thwarted by the German colonisation of Tanganyika, now mainland Tanzania. The success and retention of the British Empire depended largely upon the British Navy. Being an island race, the British had long understood that their only defence against more powerful continental neighbours lay in ruling the waves. When the occasion arose, it was the British Navy that had guaranteed British sovereignty. By defeating the Spanish Armada in 1588, Drake had singed the King of Spain's beard. Nelson's victory over the French fleet at Trafalgar in 1805 ensured that Napoleon could not launch an invasion. The Royal Navy didn't actually win the Battle of Jutland against the Germans in 1916. If anything, it was a draw, with the Germans claiming to have inflicted greater losses. But after this confrontation, the Germans had no alternative but to return to port, where they remained confined for the rest of the war. Not for nothing is the Navy known in Britain as the Senior Service. However, it was the junior service, the upstart Royal Air Force, who in 1940 won the Battle of Britain in the skies over southern England, once again ensuring that no invasion could be launched. So how did the British Empire end? By 1914, the European powers had taken over almost the entire globe, with the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish and the Portuguese leading the way. 
Germany, by now the powerhouse of Central Europe, had been a latecomer, for the simple reason that Bismarck's United German Reich had only come into existence in 1871, too late to pick up anything but a few bits and pieces of unconquered territory that lay scattered across the globe. So, what next? Perhaps inevitably, despite a foolproof network of interlocking alliances, the Europeans turned on each other, tearing apart their continent in what became known as the First World War. The Western Allies, led by Britain and France, were only rescued by the Americans, after which U.S. President Wilson presided over the Versailles Peace Conference. His message was self-determination for all peoples. This was accepted in Europe, but the superior diplomatic skills of the British and the French ensured that no such enlightened policy was applied to empires outside Europe. The British Empire was safe, but in fighting the war, the British themselves had run up huge debts with the Americans. Just over twenty years later, Europe once again began tearing itself apart. On this occasion, the Americans arrived a little earlier. Just in time to save solitary Britain and the distant USSR holding out against Hitler. After this war, Britain was indebted to America to the tune of 21 billion pounds, a debt that would not finally be paid off until 2006. In 1945, Britain could barely support itself, let alone an empire. The largest white colonies, such as Canada, South Africa, and Australia, had already been granted dominion status. Virtual, then increasingly real independence. By now, the message of self-determination had spread across the globe. Reluctantly, Britain was forced to grant independence to India in 1948. One by one, over the coming decades, the British colonies struggled to follow suit. Armed conflict was tempered by negotiations with leaders of independence movements. It became almost a rite of passage for the future leader of a newly independent nation to have served time in a British jail. Finally, only a few tiny outposts remained. These were either unwilling to pay, or could not afford the expenses involved in independence, or were possessed of a British patriotism that had long since vanished in the motherland. These last remnants now include only the likes of Gibraltar, the Falkland Islands, and Saint Helena, once Napoleon's own personal penal colony. Meanwhile, there remain some scattered island protectorates in the Indian and Pacific oceans, ensuring that the sun still never sets on the British Empire, but only just, and only in the most literal sense. The next empire runs almost parallel to the British Empire, but only in temporal terms. Any other comparison of the two provides an object lesson in the vagaries of sideways history. Chapter nine. The Russian Empire. Churchill famously described Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. This was the case for centuries before Churchill made his remark, and indeed, arguably, remains so to this day. What will Russia do next? What will become of Russia? The fact that so much of Russia is still opaque, even in the age of internet technology and social media, remains an enigma in itself. This undeniably has something to do with its sheer size and the variety of its people. Russia is far and away the largest country in the world. In its present state, it covers over 6.6 million square miles. Canada comes a poor second with 3.8 million square miles. Then there is the question of national pride and an accompanying mistrust of foreign influences, which encourages an element of secretiveness. Geographically speaking. 
All of Russia, west of the Ural Mountains, is part of Europe. Yet, culturally speaking, Russia has always remained ambivalent about its European status. Three hundred years ago, Peter the Great founded St. Petersburg on the marshy shores of the Baltic. This was intended to be Russia's window to the West, a new city of classical stone facades to replace the age-old wooden Moscow as the capital. Russia had begun to modernize, but this Europeanization was never fully accepted, even amongst the nobility. Arguably, the heart of old Russia remained in Moscow, with its walled Kremlin of ancient cathedrals, onion-domed towers, and palaces. The Russian Empire began as it meant to go on. Its founder is generally recognized to be Ivan the Terrible, who assumed the title of Tsar of all the Russias in 1547, when he was just 17. His grandfather, Ivan the Third, the Grand Prince of Moscow, had driven the remnants of the Mongols or Tartars from central Muscovy at the end of the previous century, expanding his domain northwest to the shores of the Baltic and northeast to the shores of the Arctic Ocean. Ivan the Terrible's childhood was copybook psychopath. He ascended to the princedom of Muscovy at the age of three after his father died from blood poisoning. His mother would die five years later from a more direct form of poisoning by a palace faction. This left young Ivan to be groomed by rival groups of boyars. These were the feudal aristocrats of Eastern Europe. Their name deriving from the old Bulgarian word boylare, meaning noble. While Muscovy was plunged into chaos by rival boyars, the young Ivan grew up amidst a court filled with intrigue, suspicion, and poisoning. His response was to develop a habit of torturing small animals. Despite such an unpropitious upbringing, Ivan grew into an intelligent young man, well versed in literature and music. He also developed an ambition to restore the country back to the pre-Mongol days of the earlier Kievan Rus Federation, when the principalities and domains occupied by the Rus stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea and east towards the Ural Mountains. To a large extent, this had grown from the hinterland of the Dogava-Dnieper river systems, down which the original Vikings had sailed from Scandinavia to the Black Sea and Constantinople in the 10th century. It was this link with Constantinople that had been responsible for the population of Rus becoming Christians. Vladimir the Great, the ruler of Kievan Rus in the early 11th century, was a convinced pagan, worshiping the ancient Viking and Slavic gods. In common with the prevailing practices expected of a pagan ruler, he took several wives and some 800 concubines. He appeased the gods for his continuing good fortune by erecting many shrines and statues to them. For some time, Christian missionaries had ventured from Constantinople into Kievan Rus, suffering much martyrdom in the process. However, these apostles to the Slavs would introduce a number of beneficial innovations. They set down the oldest known version of the Slavic alphabet, the Glagolitic alphabet, which was modelled on the Greek alphabet. Their followers would later go on to develop the Cyrillic script, named after the Byzantine Saint Cyril, who had pioneered the earlier Slavic alphabet. In time, Cyrillic would come to be used by the Russian, Eastern European, and North Asian languages. Vladimir was so impressed by the advances introduced by these Christian monks that he began to have his doubts about the pagan gods and dispatched commissioners to study other religions such as Judaism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, and Byzantine Orthodox Christianity. The commissioners dispatched by Vladimir to Constantinople were overwhelmed by the beauty of a service conducted in the huge domed cathedral of Hagia Sophia. 
the finest building in the Byzantine world. We no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth, they told Vladimir. Consequently, Vladimir was baptized in 987. He then summoned the entire population of Kiev to gather in the waters of the river Dnieper, where they were given a mass baptism. From now on, Kievan Rus would be a Christian nation. Surprisingly, the people of Kievan Rus took to the new religion, and a strong connection was made to Byzantium. This would even outlast the centuries of Mongol rule from 1237 to 1480. Yet the Mongol conquest would have the effect of isolating still further the people of Rus from Europe, an isolation that would persist even after the Mongols had been driven out by Ivan the Terrible's grandfather. When Ivan had himself crowned Tsar of all the Russias, this was more than an act of self-aggrandizement. It also harked back symbolically to a past that was by now all but legendary. Ivan was claiming the legacy of the pre-Mongol Kievan Rus. According to the contemporary US historian Janet Martin, a specialist in medieval Russia, the new title symbolized an assumption of powers equivalent and parallel to those held by the former Byzantine Caesar and the Tatar Khan, both known in Russian sources as Tsar. The political effect was to elevate Ivan's position. The Tsar was thus not only the secular ruler of Russia, but also its divine leader, who had been appointed by God to enact his will. The concept of the divine right of kings was widely accepted in Europe too. On the other hand, the ultimate religious power remained universal and separate in the form of the Pope. And even here, religious power would not remain absolute. In the early years of the 16th century, Western Europe would be split by the Reformation. The century preceding this had seen the Renaissance, which affected Europe's entire culture. Art, architecture, literature and science would all be transformed under the influence of a new humanism derived ultimately from ancient Greek and Roman sources. This philosophy placed a crucial value on individual humanity, creating a profound mental sea change. The medieval world, which saw this life as merely a preparation for the day of judgment and the life to come, was drained of its psychological imperative. All this change, a fundamental shift in Western civilization, was taking place in a Europe that had little contact with Russia. Even the connection to Constantinople had been broken when the Byzantine world was swept away by the Ottomans. From 1547 on, the Russians would be ruled by a Tsar who had absolute secular and spiritual power. And all the while, the country would remain in isolation. Decisive developments in European history, from the Magna Carta, the first guarantee of civil rights, to the Renaissance and the Reformation, which saw the Protestants split from the Roman Catholic Church, would see no echo in Russia. However, when Europe tore itself apart in the brutal, mainly religious, Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, this had been preceded in Russia during the reign of Fyodor I, Ivan the Terrible's son, by the Time of Troubles from 1606 to 1613. The latter witnessed a similarly widespread catastrophe to that which would affect Central Europe, though indicatively it was not prompted by religious division. A corrupt Tsardom and ineffective administration was tipped into anarchy following the cold summers of 1601 to 1603 when ruined crops unleashed famine and uprisings. In the West, Polish-Lithuanian forces took advantage of this chaos to invade Russia, even taking Moscow in 1610. But as Napoleon and Hitler would later discover, 
Reaching Moscow was no guarantee of victory over Russia. The wooden city was set on fire, and a patriotic, largely volunteer army forced the invaders to withdraw in 1612. These volunteers would not have volunteered of their own accord; they would largely have consisted of serfs who had been volunteered by their feudal owners. Serfdom in Russia meant that the landed gentry legally owned the peasants who worked on their land. Serfdom had largely died out in Western Europe with the collapse of the feudal system, which never fully recovered after the Black Death. In Russia, serfdom would not be abolished until 1861. That is to say, four years before slavery was abolished in the Deep South of the United States. Following the chaos of the Time of Troubles, in 1613, an assembly of feudal lords voted for the installation of a new dynasty of czars, namely the Romanovs. The first of the new line of Romanov czars would be Michael I, whose grandfather had been advisor to Ivan the Terrible, as well as being a brother of his first wife, the Tsarina Anastasia. It was during the rule of Michael I that Russia began its more lasting expansion beyond the Urals into Siberia. By 1639, Russian explorers had reached the Pacific Ocean, with a settlement being established in 1647 at Okhotsk, which lies some 1,200 miles north of modern-day Vladivostok. An indication of the sheer scale of Russia can be seen from the fact that Okhotsk is 3,500 miles east of Moscow, with the easternmost point of Russia being a further 1,500 miles away. The Khanate of Sibir, a region of indigenous tribes and diverse Muslim peoples, had officially been a vassal state of Russia since 1555. Yet not until the following century would the region known as Siberia become part of the Russian Empire. Cossacks defeated the local tribes, establishing forts. The Russian state then collected taxes from the subdued tribespeople, allegedly in exchange for protection from their long-term enemies. Further tribespeople who had not yet been subdued. Meanwhile, other Cossacks conducted expeditions to collect the fur of sables, foxes, and ermines, which fetched a high price in Western Russia and even more in the markets of Western Europe. The furthest northeastern regions of Siberia were occupied by tribes of the Koryak people and the Chutki, many of whom had been isolated from outer contact since Stone Age times. The fierce climate had ensured that these remote nomadic peoples remained at a stage of development that had vanished from Europe around four thousand years previously. Siberia became Russia's Wild East, which existed as such some two centuries prior to the American Wild West. But whereas the latter consisted of expansive plains and would be settled by pioneer farmers and cowboys, the very different terrain of forests and tundra in the wild east was settled mainly by escaped prisoners, fugitive serfs, and old believers. These last were Orthodox Christians who rejected the reforms introduced in an attempt to align the Russian Orthodox Church more closely with its Greek Orthodox parent. These liturgical and ritual reforms had been instigated between 1666 and 1667 by Patriarch Nikon of Moscow under the auspices of Tsar Alexis, the son of Michael I. From this time on, all who clung to the ancient rites were anathematized or placed under the curse of God. This meant that they could only continue to practice their faith in regions beyond European Russia and the Urals. Owing to the nature of Siberia and the spread of its new inhabitants, even its remotest outposts were viewed as part of an expanding Russian empire, rather than as distinct colonies. 
This eastward expansion continued to such an extent that just 100 years after the reaching of the Pacific, the Danish explorer Vitus Bering, in the employ of the Russian navy, ventured into the strait named after him. From here, he spotted the distant shoreline of continental America, making landfall and claiming the territory in the name of the Tsar. Trappers and hunters would soon follow, establishing themselves in Alaska and eventually pushing many hundreds of miles down the archipelago of the Western American seaboard. The liturgical reforms of 1666 to 1667 were a rare attempt to unify Russia with its European neighbors. Unfortunately, this unity was achieved with the Orthodox religion, which now flourished only in the more backward parts of southern Europe, as well as the Levant and beyond. These areas had been barely touched by the great developments taking place in northern and western Europe, such as the Renaissance and the Reformation. Just a year after the Russians implemented their religious reforms, the disastrous Thirty Years' War that had devastated Western Central Europe came to an end. But with the cessation of hostilities came a transformation of Western political thought, which remains to this day. The 1668 Treaty of Westphalia laid the foundations of international politics. It established the idea of national self-determination, the sovereignty of the state, and decreed against any involvement in national affairs by neighboring states. Nations existing side by side with different customs, culture, religion, or race were not to interfere with each other, no matter how antithetical such practices might be. As far as European nations have been concerned, this principle may have been honoured as much in the breach as in the observance over the centuries since 1668. However, the seed was sown. The prolonged preliminary negotiations for the Treaty of Westphalia were attended on and off by 194 different states, many little more than German family dukedoms. All signed up to the new order, which has remained central to international law. Ironically, although the European powers would practice no such observance in the establishment of their worldwide empires, this principle would be a major argument for the peoples seeking liberation from these empires, and especially in the creation of the United Nations. In the immediate aftermath of the Treaty of Westphalia, Switzerland would be granted freedom from Austria and the Netherlands from Spain. Russia did not attend these negotiations, and indeed, throughout its long history, the policy of the Russian Empire, in its various forms, has seldom paid regards to this notion of national self-determination. Further irony emerges in the fact that during this very period, Russia would be ruled by Peter the Great, the Tsar who did his utmost to drag Russia into the European sphere of enlightenment and modernity. His 43-year rule from 1672 until 1725 would transform the country from a state of historical stasis into a major European power and participant in the continent's affairs. From the outset, Peter was different. His father Alexis I ensured that he had the best available education. This involved being taught by a variety of tutors, including an aristocratic Scottish soldier of fortune who believed in making outdoor games with live ammunition. At the age of ten, Peter was chosen to be Tsar by the Boyar Duma, a council of noblemen. After a period of family squabbles, Peter finally became a fully independent ruler at the age of twenty-two. By now, he had sprouted to the exceptional height of six foot eight inches, but his frame was weak. And he suffered from facial tics. 
Even at this early age, Peter already had in mind a grand plan for Russia. This can be summed up in one word: reform. He wished to transform the country from top to bottom, turning Russia into a state on the European model. His reign started with an edict banning beards and robes from his court, commanding that European dress would be worn from now onwards. The young new Tsar Peter then set off with a large delegation to form alliances with European monarchs and discover for himself how the modern world worked. He insisted upon travelling incognito, but this soon descended into farce owing to his towering height and his outrage when members of his delegation admitted to treat him with the exaggerated deference expected of all citizens in the presence of the Tsar. Peter's extended tour of Europe included longer stays in France, England, and Holland, where he observed and learned a great deal regarding the achievements of Western civilization. Europe was entering the age of the Enlightenment, which placed a premium on rational thought and scientific advancement, a total contrast to the mystical thought so prevalent in Russia. This early Russian incursion into Europe would also bring lasting diplomatic results. Eventually, treaties would be signed with Venice and the Holy Roman Empire, which guarded Russia's southern flanks from the Ottoman Empire, and a treaty with Denmark opened the way to the Baltic without Swedish interference. The latter would result in Peter's greatest undertaking: the building of St. Petersburg. This would guarantee Russia a port, giving access to Europe for almost the entire year. Its only other northern port, Archangel, was iced up for months on end during the long winters. Although this new city was named in honor of Peter's patron saint, indicatively it was given the German suffix "burg." In the new Tsar's eyes, Germany stood for all things modern. Swiss, French, and Scots architects were imported, and a vast army of peasants was press-ganged in from all over the country. These drained the marshes and constructed the grand buildings that lined the grid of canals on Vasilievsky Island, the central island at the mouth of the Neva. The project had been started in 1703, when the Swedes had been driven from their fortress at the mouth of the Neva, and in 1712, Peter the Great, as he was now becoming known, transferred the capital to St. Petersburg. During the course of building the city, many tens of thousands of peasants would lose their lives. Peter the Great would officially declare Russia to be an empire in 1721, by which stage its territory stretched from Finland to the Pacific and as far south as the Sea of Azov and the northern shores of the Caspian. Only during the following century would the empire gradually expand south and east into Central Asia, which would become known as Russian Turkestan, modern Kazakhstan, and its Turkic neighbors. Peter the Great ensured his own survival and that of his Europeanization program by curtailing the strong influence of the powerful pro-Slavic boyars. Amongst other measures, he imposed a prohibitive tax on their beards, which the boyars regarded as a measure of their rank. Junior ranks were only permitted moustaches. By the time Peter the Third became Tsar in 1762, Europeanization amongst the Russian ruling family had reached extreme limits. The man who became Peter the Third was the son of Peter the Great's elder surviving daughter, and he was born in Kiel as Karl Peter Ulrich von Schleswig-Holstein-Gottorp. His wife was the even more Germanic Princess Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst. Peter the Third could barely put a sentence together in Russian, which hardly endeared him to his subjects. 
However, he proved even more unpopular with his wife, who had him assassinated six months into his reign. Whereupon she herself became Empress of Russia, which she ruled for thirty-four years, becoming known as Catherine the Great. From the outset, Catherine was determined to follow in the footsteps of Peter the Great. She started by reforming the administration and ordered the building of new cities. Her court would attract European intellectuals of the highest caliber, epitomized by the Swiss Leonhard Euler, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. Her reign also enabled homegrown talent to flourish, especially the father of Russian science, Mikhail Lomonosov, who was a remarkable polymath. Not only did he write original poetry, but he also made important discoveries in both chemistry and astronomy. It was during Catherine's reign that Russia extended its empire along the shores of the Black Sea and south along the western seaboard of North America. By now, it was clear that Russia was emerging as a major player on the European scene, so much so that it would attract the attention of Napoleon. Having conquered most of Europe in 1812, Napoleon launched his revolutionary army on a drive towards Moscow, which he duly captured. But the greatest military tactician of his age had overlooked three basic facts concerning the Russian Empire: its huge expanse, its vast population, and its bitter climate. Once again, the inhabitants of Moscow set fire to their wooden city and withdrew to the hinterland, leaving Napoleon to face the Russian winter amidst the ruins. Napoleon was forced to order a withdrawal. His retreat from Moscow back across Europe was to be one of the most bitter defeats in European history, costing the lives of anything up to three hundred and eighty thousand men. Following Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in eighteen fifteen, the Russian Tsar Alexander I was invited, along with other European statesmen, to the Congress of Vienna. Beside figures of the statue of Metternich, Wellington, and Tyrone. Alexander I sought to shape the future of Europe through the coming century. This was the first time in history that leaders from throughout Europe had met to make such momentous decisions. Where Alexander I was concerned, the Congress of Vienna was a huge success. He managed to gain control of Poland, at the same time ensuring peaceful coexistence in Europe. He also signed a holy alliance, a coalition of monarchist powers intended to crush secularist republicanism and revolution. Having begun his reign as a liberal, Alexander I had by now developed into a reactionary nationalist tyrant. By this period, the upper classes in Russia had become completely Europeanized, as described by Tolstoy in War and Peace. Yet the serfs, though granted their liberation, remained members of a huge, downtrodden Slavic underclass. These were the lumpen proletariat, described by Marx as owning nothing but their labor. Here we see the opening words of Tolstoy's other great novel, Anna Karenina, applied on a continental scale. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. This unhappiness in Europe remained more or less contained in its own way, with cycles of alternating liberation and repression. On the other hand, the Russian way involved ever-increasing autocratic rule, which began transforming Siberia into a vast penal colony and ensured that no bohemian or intellectual community in the great cities of Europe was without its cadre of exiled Russian revolutionaries. By the beginning of the twentieth century, the balance of powers in Europe was assured. 
It was built on the blueprints set out by the Treaty of Westphalia, with foundations laid down by the Congress of Vienna and rising on bricks and mortar through the 19th century in a series of interlocking treaties. However, all it took was the removal of one brick for the entire house to come tumbling down. This might have resulted in just another self-destructive European war. However, by now the European empires spanned the globe, while the scientific and industrial revolutions had enabled the construction of a monstrous military machine. This meant that instead of a European civil war like the Thirty Years' War, or to a large extent the Napoleonic Wars, by 1914 humanity found itself capable of launching a world war. By 1917, the Russian army was in a state of collapse, as was the country it was meant to be defending. In March 1917, the weak and unpopular Tsar Nicholas II was forced to resign in favor of a provisional government. The Germans shipped the exiled Bolshevik revolutionary Lenin back to Russia, in the hope that he would foment a situation that resulted in a Russian surrender. This did take place, but prior to it, Lenin had outwitted his political opponents. A majority who ranged from social democrats to fellow revolutionaries, and staged a Bolshevik revolution. Lenin took charge of the new revolution, proclaiming a deceptive blend of Marxist, communist, and his own ideas. A civil war ensued between the Reds under Lenin, but led by his henchman Trotsky, and the Whites, ranging from czarists to democrats to anarchists, supported by opportunistic invasions by British and American expeditionary forces. Five years later, the Reds emerged victorious, and Lenin decreed that Russia was now the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. This proved to be neither a union nor socialist, nor ruled by Soviets, which were workers' committees, or a republic. Instead, it was a re-emergence of the Russian Empire in a different guise. The country was now subject to autocratic rule by a pseudo Tsar, devoid of familial or indeed any recognized form of succession. In this, it has been compared variously to the papacy or a mafia family, where a leader emerges. Just over a year after the civil war ended, Lenin died, whereupon his expected successor Trotsky fled for his life, and a Georgian named Stalin, who really had been a gangster and a trainee priest, emerged as leader. Surprisingly, there was a genuine ideological clash behind this seizure of power. Trotsky subscribed to Marx's slogan "Workers of the World Unite" and wished to spread the communist revolution across the globe. Stalin, on the other hand, wished to consolidate communism in one country. Only then would he launch the historical inevitability of communism superseding the various forms of capitalism that had evolved in the free world. Anyone questioning the raison d'être of previous empires had received an answer much like the justification for climbing Mount Everest. Because it was there, but now history too had become scientific. Ideas took the place of facts. Such was the nature of capitalism that it was historically predetermined to destroy itself. Whereupon an entirely new socio-economic age would emerge, where all were equal under the dictatorship of the proletariat. All property would be collectively owned by a classless society. The means of production would be in the hands of public ownership, and so on. For three eight-hundred-page volumes of Marx's Das Kapital, he had planned to write six volumes, but managed to convey his message nonetheless. For many years, people had dreamt of a just society, to the Kaiser and Lenin and so forth. 
In the Russian Empire, prior to the revolution, it had been possible to ask, what have the Romanovs ever done for us? But the advent of communism rendered such naive inquiries redundant. Marx had discovered the science that lay behind inevitable history, and science was not open to question. The class-ridden societies of the West, from country house Britain to robber baron America, looked on in horror, fearful that the contagion of communism would spread. In America, the international workers of the world, the Wobblies, attracted thousands, leading strikes. In 1918, amidst the chaos of defeated Germany, the journalist Kurt Eisner declared Bavaria an independent communist state. Hungary also declared itself communist. In Britain, 60,000 striking Glasgow workers had to be dispersed by tanks, and the Scots revolutionary leader John Maclean was appointed from Moscow as Bolshevik consul to Scotland. Between 1921 and 1922, Russia, which became the USSR during this period, would suffer from the Volga famine. This was caused by the chaos of the civil war, drought, and inadequate transportation. Yet it was further exacerbated by Lenin's introduction of war communism. This entailed grain stocks being seized from the peasantry, whom the Bolsheviks saw as resistant to communism in order to provide for the urban proletariat, whose loyalty was essential. Insurrection, especially by the sailors at Kronstadt, the naval base outside St. Petersburg where the revolution had begun, led Lenin to soften his rigid policy. Instead, he introduced the new economic policy which permitted, especially in the countryside, a free market and capitalism, both subject to state control. Despite this, five million died in what became known as the Volga Famine, which raged through a large region southeast of Moscow, as far east as the Urals, as far south as the Caspian. In 1931, seven years after Stalin had succeeded to power, he admitted with admirable frankness We have fallen behind the advanced countries by fifty to a hundred years. We must close that gap in ten years. Either we do so then, or we'll be crushed. The last remark was not entirely paranoia. Stalin's response to this situation was to abolish the new economic policy and instigate the first five-year plan. This decreed that all land should be collectivized and peasants marshaled onto large collective farms. Peasants who resisted giving up their plots of land, or any who had made a profit during the days of the new economic policy, were labelled gulags and decreed enemies of the working class. This insistence on idealism over realism would result in the 1922-23 Ukraine famine, which saw 10 million deaths over a region extending as far as Kazakhstan and beyond. By now, Stalin's suspicions had hardened into genuine paranoia. Between 1936 and 1938, this resulted in the Great Purge. The difference between this and the previous mass deaths was that the purge affected the upper echelons of Soviet society: army officers, especially generals, the professions, the intelligentsia, even the secret police who carried out the purge, as well as the usual suspects amongst the lower orders. This resulted in around one million deaths, with many more sent to the gulags. A new network of forced labor camps in Siberia. Others were set to work on Stalin's pet projects, such as the White Sea Canal. This was intended to link Petrograd, by now renamed Leningrad, on the Baltic to Archangel on the White Sea. The result was possibly as many as seven hundred and fifty thousand deaths, 
around twice as many as those who died during the entire construction of St. Petersburg. The final achievement was a canal that was not deep enough to permit the passage of ocean-going ships, only barges and the smallest coastal freighters. The period of the Russian Empire's self-inflicted death and catastrophe would come to an end with the advent of the Great Patriotic War, known as the Second World War in the West, against Nazi Germany. Here, too, the Russian people suffered catastrophic losses, but this time in a cause to which all the democratic Western nations subscribed. An estimated 26 million Soviet citizens would die in the conflict, of which 11 million were military personnel. Nazi Germany lost over 4 million armed forces and some half a million civilians. Japan lost a total of 3 million, China 20 million, and so it went on. The 20th century would see advances such as in no other era of human history, as well as slaughter on a scale that still defies comprehension. There is no doubt that such conflict spurred human inventiveness. On the other hand, there is no denying that at the same time, civilization transformed itself of its own accord. Widespread electrification, the spread of rail transport throughout the world, refrigeration, telecommunications and countless other benefits were all for the most part spurred on by humanitarian aims as well as profit. The end of the Second World War saw the division of Europe into a communist half and a free western half. The Russian Empire was now larger than it had ever been and its Tsar far more powerful than any of his predecessors. In the new communist countries of the Russian Empire, intellectuals sought to combat the repressive regime. Meanwhile, in the Free West, a large proportion of intellectuals remained more or less overtly in favour of communism. This was particularly the case in France, where the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre would influence a generation of Marxists. At the same time, in Italy and Greece, only covert CIA manipulation ensured that these countries remained free. For the best part of half a century, the world saw a Cold War, with the two superpowers being the Soviet Union and the United States. These menaced each other with a series of proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam and other third world countries, as well as a series of more dangerous crises, Cuba, Berlin and so forth. These latter threatened the planet with nuclear war and the end of civilization as we know it. Fortunately, a mix of sanity accident and sheer luck prevailed. As we have seen, historical research has revealed that these incidents were hair-raisingly close to the edge, closer even than anyone at the time imagined. Ironically, it was Lenin who had coined the phrase, voting with their feet, yet it was the communists who erected an iron curtain across Europe to prevent the inhabitants of their empire from doing just what Lenin described. After the Second World War, the overseas European empires soon broke up, the Russian Empire, on the other hand, remained in its greatest incarnation until 1989, when the fall of the Berlin Wall marked the end of the Soviet era of the Russian Empire. When the Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev had introduced perestroika, reform and democratization of the Communist Party, along with glasnost, openness and freedom of expression, he had no idea of the pent-up forces he was unleashing. On a trip to Lithuania, he naively appealed to the locals, and by extension all other Soviet puppet states or colonies, not to leave the USSR. In the scramble for the exit, all that was left was the Russian Federation, with the heroic drunkard Boris Yeltsin resisting a coup by hardliners and becoming the next Tsar. 
Yeltsin took the unprecedented step of introducing free elections and privatizing state industries, which then fell into the hands of an unscrupulous gang of oligarchs. In 2000, Yeltsin was succeeded by Vladimir Putin, a former low-ranking KGB officer in East Germany. Putin quickly and brutally asserted his control over the oligarchs and, indeed, any opposition to his rule. After years in power, his motives of personal gain gradually transformed into dreams of a return to the glory days of the Soviet Union, with authoritarian rule and the Russian Empire as a world superpower. In this, he appears to have made a similar mistake to Gorbachev, imagining that Russia can hold on to a past that is already history. Even so, Russia remains the world's largest country and continues its incremental expansion and influence. All this, despite its internal disregard for civil rights embodied in any form of Magna Carta, to say nothing of its complementary external unwillingness to recognize the principles of the Treaty of Westphalia. But are such principles so obvious as to be necessary? Is progress towards them inevitable? Is the entire world bound to evolve towards some kind of liberal democracy? And when such a vision is on the brink of realization, does this herald the end of history, as the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama claimed? After the collapse of the Russian Empire, left the United States as the world's only superpower. Such questions will be the constant backdrop to the evolution of our final great empire. Chapter Ten: The American Empire. When the ever-perceptive Adam Smith published his Wealth of Nations in 1776, he was only obliquely correct in his forecast for America. He did not foresee its independence, let alone that this would take place in the same year as the publication of his masterpiece. On the other hand, he did forecast America's greatness. One day, he predicted, the center of the British Empire would shift to the New World. In that same year, 1776, Thomas Jefferson would write the United States Declaration of Independence. In this, he took account of some of the finest philosophical thinking of the Age of Enlightenment: Thomas Paine, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, David Hume. One could not have asked for a finer pedigree. Or indeed, a more heartening and resounding document. We hold these truths to be self-evident: that all men are created equal; that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights; that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, this stirring vision did not apply to the indigenous Native Americans or the transported Africans who were already enslaved in all thirteen states. Indeed, by this time, the state of Virginia held over 187,000 slaves, while more than 60% of the population of Georgia were slaves. From 1770 figures. That said, the British, who belatedly tried to win back the American colonies, even going so far as to burn down the White House in 1814, were not fighting for the release of slaves. Neither were the French, who helped drive out the British in the first place. Their age of liberty, equality, fraternity. Still lay thirteen years in the future at the time of American independence. But to return to the Declaration in all its glory, it is no accident that these self-evident words resemble mathematical axioms, as in the philosophy of the Jewish-Dutch pantheist or atheist Spinoza. In this aspect, an unacknowledged influence.
Upon such axioms can be built abstract truths extending far beyond their basic origins. Indeed, the growth of America can be seen in this mathematical metaphor. The huge structure that today is encompassed in the idea of Western liberal democracy assumes the truth of Jefferson's initial vision. To Americans, and to a varying extent their allies and the entire free world, the deductions from these self-evident foundations are the way society ought to be. They are viewed as a moral imperative, and societies that deviate from such foundations are viewed as evil. As in Reagan's description of Russia as an evil empire, as in Roosevelt's characterization of the Nazis as an enemy of all law, all liberty, all morality, all religion, as in General Miller in the film In the Loop describing war. Once you've been there, once you've seen it, you never want to go again unless you absolutely fucking have to. It's like France. Thus, the American way, in a country where all its citizens, bar the Native Americans, are ultimately descended from immigrants, the majority less than three generations away from the home country. This accounts for why Americans, on the whole a friendly, outgoing people, will frequently reveal to a foreigner within the first few minutes of conversation, one, how American they are and you are not, two, how Irish, Jewish, Turkish, etc. they are. There is no conflict in this apparent illogic. Patriotism is unabashed and far stronger than it is in most old world countries, and it has to be, coexisting as it does with deep ethnic loyalties, largely from the old world. This must constantly be borne in mind when discussing the American empire. Even before America was a nation, the participants in the Boston Tea Party dressed as Native Americans, even if they did refer to them as Red Indians. As with the British in the 19th century, many say that if anyone had to be top dog in the 20th century, it was probably best that it was the Americans. Naturally, as in the British case, there have been grotesque blunders. Yet the Americans nonetheless prevailed, most notably tipping the balance in two world wars, assuming the role of world superpower in facing up to the Soviets, and in spreading their popular culture across the globe. Many resented and looked down upon this Coca-Cola culture, yet there can be no denying that it was popular in both senses of the word. It was in no sense highbrow or elitist, and a lot of people liked it. This is the nation that gave the world not only Coca-Cola, but Hollywood films, hamburgers, chewing gum, and the general razzmatazz that accompanies American presidential elections and other great sporting events. No other nation would presume to stage an annual World Series between two of its own teams. American presidential elections and their product are the modern incarnation of Jeffersonian democracy, enough said where the present is concerned. Yet it is worth bearing in mind that even the noble Jefferson himself found it necessary to pen notes on the state of Virginia. According to U.S. expert on human behavior Lee Allen Dugatkin, this work was written in reaction to the views of some influential Europeans that America's national flora, fauna, including humans, was degenerate. Closer to the truth than mere prejudice on this topic is the insight of the 19th century American philosopher Thomas Dewey. It was he who understood that despite all its inequalities, American life is infused through and through with the ethos of democracy. Dewey recognized that democracy is more than a form of government. It is primarily a way of associated living, of communicated experience. 
America is a nation where the individualistic ideal coexists with an exaggerated acclaim for success. The French revolutionary slogan "Liberty, Equality, Fraternity," which remains its national motto to this day, is a contradiction. Liberty eventually outruns equality. The American way of life acknowledges that fact. Even if we all begin at the same starting line, someone is going to win the race. And America won in the twentieth century. Winners are seldom popular. I remember as a student traveling through Europe, where I was asked by an American student, "Why do they all hate us Americans so much?" I could only reply, "Last century, it was us British who ruled the roost and were heartily despised all over the world for this achievement. Now it's your turn." Which brings us to the question: What exactly is the American Empire? In 1776, the thirteen states that had declared independence stretched in a continuous line down a thousand miles of the eastern seaboard from Maine to Georgia. These extended into the hinterland for an average of two hundred miles or so, sometimes much more, sometimes much less. To the north lay eastern Canada, recently taken by the British from the French, which had expanded to include the entire region of the Great Lakes as well as the hinterland territory now occupied by Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and more. West of those founding states, further down the Atlantic seaboard, lay the vast expanse of French Louisiana. Stretching northwest from New Orleans up into what is now Canada, in a vast belt of land that was up to 800 miles wide, to the south lay Spanish Florida. The rest of the territory now occupied by mainland USA belonged to Spain, including the region occupied by modern California, New Mexico, and Texas. Meanwhile, Alaska and the coastline stretching south for over 500 miles belonged to the Russian Empire. The original thirteen states had an aggregate population of some 2.5 million, including slaves and Native Americans living within their boundaries. This occupied a territory far less than a tenth of the present USA. The Russians regarded Siberia and Alaska as part of their empire. The westward expansion of the U.S. is regarded as adding to its territory. What is the difference here? Purely one of attitude, it would seem. Both expansions involved the disruption or displacement of indigenous peoples, replaced by settlers or colonists. But there was one essential difference: the United States actually bought two large chunks of its territory. In 1803, Jefferson bought the entire territory of Louisiana from Napoleon for 15 million dollars. In present terms, this is worth anywhere between 300 million dollars and 1.2 trillion dollars. Dependent upon which federal agency does the calculation, this may have been a bargain, but it still represented a considerable sum, and Napoleon needed the money at once to fund his wars in Europe. Only one snag: America simply didn't have that sort of money. But Jefferson recognized this purchase for what it was—the making of a future great nation. So he turned to Baring's Bank in London, who facilitated the payment using their financial expertise. A third of the money would be paid in American gold. Baring's persuaded Jefferson that the rest could be financed by government bonds, the very first securities issued by the American government on the international market. Baring's now sat down with the French and agreed to purchase these bonds from the French government in return for cash. Baring's would then sell the bonds on to buyers on the markets of London and Amsterdam to recoup their outlay and, of course, make a profit. It was a risk. But finance involves such risks.
Were people willing to believe in the future of America to the extent that they would trust them to pay interest on these bonds and, in ten years or so, buy them back? The way this was presented by Bearings, any purchaser was in a win-win situation. The Louisiana Purchase, as it now became known, doubled the size of this new nation. The bonds were soon snapped up. People were beginning to believe in America. Even if nine years later the British burnt down the White House and tried to take America back, just over half a century after the Louisiana Purchase, the U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward would buy another huge chunk of land for America. In 1867, he bought Alaska from the Russian Empire for 7.2 million dollars. The Russians needed this to pay for the Crimean War, yet American finances were in an even greater mess. Having barely recovered from the Civil War, this purchase of unexplored territory was greeted with derision and became known as Seward's folly. But Seward's strategic instincts were right. The Alaska Territory was in danger of falling into the hands of the British. However, unlike the Louisiana Purchase, Seward's strategic victory was a financial loss. His outlay in terms of present-day dollars is still below the balance of cash the federal government has received from Alaska in the 150 or so years since it was bought. Contrary to contemporary wisdom, both within and outside the U.S., money is not everything, even where America is concerned. By this time, the United States had taken California from Mexico in 1847. Texas had also thrown off Mexican rule in 1836, but it decided instead to become an independent republic. This lasted for ten years before Texas was annexed by Congress. Then, in 1861, there began the most traumatic internal event in the history of the United States. This was the American Civil War, which would last from 1861 to 1865. The mainly rural South employed slaves on its cotton plantations. While all the states of the more industrialized North had abolished slavery by 1804, things came to a head when the Confederate states of the South threatened secession from the Union, and war between the two broke out. This was the earliest mechanized war in the world, with both sides using such advanced weapons as repeating rifles, machine guns or Gatling guns, metal-clad ships, and even submarines. It was also the first industrialized war, with efficiency increased by the factory manufacture of weapons, technological advances such as railway trains for rapid transport, and telegraph for speedy communications, as well as manned balloons for reconnaissance. The result was a total death toll of around seven hundred thousand, more than the combined U.S. losses in all conflicts, including two world wars, for another century. Not until the Vietnam War would this figure be exceeded. The Unionist North defeated the Confederate South when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant on the 9th of April, 1865. Five days later, President Abraham Lincoln would be assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, a Confederate sympathizer. During the Civil War, Lincoln had delivered his famous Gettysburg Address, which to this day is seen as a defining statement of American national purpose. This harks back to the Jefferson Declaration, with Lincoln's ringing words stating that America was a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He was speaking in November 1863 after the Unionist victory in the bloody three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Here, more than 23,000 Union soldiers and many more Confederates had lost their lives, and Lincoln resolved. 
that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. It is salutary to compare this speech with the Communist Manifesto written some 15 years previously by Marx and Engels, coinciding with the widespread European revolutions of 1848. Marx's address stresses the conflict between classes and urges the workers of the world to unite. Lincoln's address, by contrast, exhorts a free people to govern themselves. There is no denying that, even then, America had its class divides to say nothing of the racial divide that had given rise to the Civil War. However, Lincoln's address is to a new people in a new land. The great majority of these people had not achieved their freedom by revolution, but by crossing the Atlantic in immigrant ships. Twenty-one years later, the Statue of Liberty would proclaim, Give me your huddled masses yearning to be free. America was a fresh start for those who set foot on its shores. Here is where Dewey's ethos of democracy differs so radically from the dictatorship of the proletariat. But America was no utopia. Even for those who fled the Irish famine, the Jewish pogroms of Eastern Europe, the poverty, for those ambitious individuals keen to throw off the shackles of European society, as well as the fugitives and the ne'er-do-wells. The erection of the Statue of Liberty would also see the era of the robber barons powerful and ruthless capitalist moguls who would exploit those same huddled masses in their factories. Cornelius Vanderbilt, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford and others built up huge commercial empires, ruining all competitors who stood in their way, as well as using the latest innovations and business efficiency to accumulate fortunes. These were the pitiless men who made America great, but at great cost to others. The government of the people, for the people, by the people, would do its best to stand up to these barons, whose power often seemed to dwarf that of the government and the law. As J.P. Morgan brazenly informed a judge, I don't know, as I want a lawyer to tell me what I cannot do. I hire him to tell me how to do what I want to do. Yet there was another side to such men. Not once, but twice, this same J.P. Morgan would personally rescue the United States, in 1895, he bought sufficient gold to rescue the dollar by keeping it on the gold standard. And in 1907, he stepped in with a financial guarantee that single-handedly averted a Wall Street crash. The government learned from this. No one should have such power, even if he wielded it for the good. In response, the government eventually set up the Federal Reserve. Henry Ford invented the modern assembly line at the Detroit factory that built the first affordable people's car, the Model T Ford, affectionately known as the Tin Lizzie. As Ford put it, you can have any colour you want as long as it's black. The American love affair with the automobile had begun. When Rockefeller monopolised the oil business, the government prosecuted him under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Rockefeller fought every which way, swapping his companies from state to state, but in 1911 he was finally forced to split up Standard Oil into 32 companies. Some of these remain to this day, such as Chevron and ExxonMobil. America was becoming the greatest country on earth, while nobody else noticed. And its empire was itself. America was, and would essentially remain, a world power rather than an empire. 
In those early days, it didn't invade countries, or not often. In 1836, the new state of Texas was threatened by Mexico, so the U.S. invaded Mexico. Within two years, Mexico was defeated, and the U.S.-Mexico border was redrawn to include New Mexico, Utah, and all of California as part of the United States. These were new states, not colonies. In 1902, the U.S. liberated Cuba from the Spanish Empire. Cuba became independent, but only so long as it behaved itself. In 1903, the U.S. bought out the bankrupt French attempt to build a canal across the Panama Isthmus, then a part of Colombia. This was arguably the greatest engineering project undertaken to date, and would be completed by 1914. The Panama Canal's 51-mile stretch of waterway and giant locks created a vital trade link between the east and west coast of North America. Consequently, Washington decided that this valuable trade link should be protected by the United States Army, occupying a canal zone extending five miles or so on either side of the canal itself. This was defined as unincorporated territory of the United States rather than a colony. The entry of the United States into the First World War would tip the balance in favor of the four leading Western allies: Britain, United States, France, and Italy. As a result, at the Versailles Peace Conference, President Wilson was widely recognized as the senior arbitrator amongst the four leading statesmen, which became three when the Italian leader Vittorio Orlando burst into tears and flounced off home when he could not get his way. Wilson was filled with good intentions, the only American president ever to hold a PhD, and this was the first occasion when it was conceded that America was now probably the world's leading power. Despite this, Wilson was outwitted by the practiced political deceit of the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and the French President Clemenceau. The 35-year-old economist Maynard Keynes, a junior member of the British delegation, resigned in disgust to dash off the economic consequences of peace, which became a bestseller, sympathetically received by the informed public and future statesmen throughout the world. Yet nothing was done about the final treaty, which saddled Germany with crippling debts and drew arbitrary lines in the deserts of the Middle East, marking out new countries divided between French and British interests. The former blunder would contribute in large part to causing the Second World War. The consequences of the latter blunder remain with us to this day. America now entered the Roaring Twenties of the Charleston. Bootleg liquor and Charlie Chaplin, as well as great parties thrown by the likes of the fictional Great Gatsby. In America, everything was great. The Great Party of the 1920s was followed by the Great Crash of 1929, which in turn led to the Great Depression. During this time, skyscrapers began to create the Great New York skyline. Started before the Great Crash, there was nothing left to do but complete these skyscrapers, regardless. In order to alleviate the effects of the Great Depression, President F. D. Roosevelt introduced the New Deal, a Keynesian-style project designed to put unemployed Americans back to work. Roads were laid out across the country. Great projects such as the Grand Coulee Dam were initiated. Schools and hospitals were built. Even writers were set to work recording the history of states and territories throughout the country, providing a self-portrait of America. Such was the power of the American economy that the Great Depression affected the entire world. In America, this downturn only came to an end when the U.S. finally abandoned its isolationist policy with a vengeance, 
and embarked wholeheartedly on the war effort when it entered the Second World War. This was occasioned in December 1941 by the surprise Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. The Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, one of the few skeptics of Japan's dream of oriental hegemony, warned, We have woken a sleeping giant. Simultaneously, Hitler, a master of disastrous decisions, excelled himself by needlessly declaring war on America. A beleaguered Churchill drank champagne with his cabinet. Europe was saved. The war would now be won by the Allies. The cost in lives of this war was barely imaginable, let alone measurable. Vague estimates reach 150 million, almost four times more than in the First World War. Europe, Japan and much of China were left in ruins. The transition of power in Japan was masterfully handled by General MacArthur, who effectively became emperor of much of East Asia. It would be six years before megalomania caused the corncob pipe-smoking general to be relieved of his post during the Korean War. Western Europe would be rescued by the munificence of the Marshall Aid Programme. Stalin, who now ruled Eastern Europe, refused this capitalist bribe. Marshall's $12 billion, well over ten times that amount in present values, rebuilt European commerce, and once again American Coca-Cola, Hollywood, Ford Motors and the like all had a thriving export market. Meanwhile, the world's two new superpowers, the USSR and the USA, embarked upon a series of proxy wars, featuring the Korean War from 1950 to 1953 through to the Vietnam War from 1955 to 1975 and beyond. It was during this period that America elected a president who epitomised his nation in a similar fashion to the way Julius Caesar had epitomised the Roman Empire. This was John F. Kennedy, though the parallels in his actual life are more in keeping with the equivocal Gatsby than Caesar. When the charismatic, youthful and articulate Kennedy took office in 1961, he embodied the hopes of an America that unquestioningly assumed its greatness – yet felt itself once again to be a young, optimistic country. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, Kennedy declared at his inauguration. Kennedy made it plain that he would champion black civil rights at home and freedom from communist oppression abroad. At home, amidst marches, mayhem and murder, the southern states were in open revolt. At his first summit conference in Vienna with the tough, brash communist leader Nikita Khrushchev, Kennedy was humiliated. The recent fiasco of the US-backed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, growing confrontations over Laos, a prelude to the Vietnam War, and the Soviet threat to swallow up isolated Berlin proved unanswerable. He beat the hell out of me, confessed Kennedy. Yet a year later, it was Kennedy who deftly and calmly faced down Khrushchev over the Cuba crisis, and in the same year, in response to the Soviet superiority in space, he boldly announced that within a decade, America would reach and land on the moon. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The boyish, energetic image that Kennedy presented, accompanied by his attractive, multilingual, Vassar-educated wife Jackie, clad in her scrupulously fashionable outfits, captured hearts around the globe. The White House, which hosted diplomatic soirees and sophisticated cultural events, became known as Camelot, after King Arthur's legendary court. Yet behind Kennedy's Dorian Gray picture lay another darker portrait every bit as ambiguous as Gatsby's past. 
Kennedy's father Joe had as good as bought the election for his son, using the vast fortune he had accumulated on the stock market and allegedly from bootlegging during Prohibition. He had mafia contacts, retained fascist sympathies. He once tried to meet Hitler and later supported the fanatical anti-communist witch hunt by Senator McCarthy. John F. Kennedy appears to have remained, for the most part, innocently unaware of this. Yet the healthy poster boy president was also not quite what he seemed. For years he had been racked by crippling illnesses, including hyperthyroidism and a rare endocrine disorder, Addison's disease. Treatment required a constant cocktail of drugs and injections, which brought on hypertension, mood swings, and sexual addiction. As he confessed to the bemused upper-class British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, "If I don't have sex every day, I have a headache." This practice ranged from call girls covertly shipped into the White House when Jackie was away, to the likes of Marilyn Monroe, Marlena Dietrich, and more dangerously Judith Exner. Mistress of mafia boss Sam Giancana. Distressing though it is to record such a fact, there is no doubt that Kennedy's assassination in Dallas in 1963 came just in time. A wave of shock and grief swept the Western world. There is now a JFK Boulevard in major cities throughout all continents. Even a tearful Khrushchev declared Kennedy's death to be a heavy blow to all people. Just over a quarter of a century later, the Soviet Union would collapse, leaving America as the sole superpower. Liberal democracy was the ultimate form of successful government, and under the aegis of the United States, it would inevitably spread throughout the world. Meanwhile, America, acting as the world's policeman, would aid this evolution. Invasions of Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, and even the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada have proved such dreams to be an illusion. America, which never had an empire, could thus not lose one. Yet its substitute for territorial colonialism, its power is undoubtedly under challenge. And ironically, this challenge comes from the very source that it assumed it had eradicated, namely communism. This time in its new variant forms in China and Russia. Capitalism, it seems, is not the only way of doing things that is capable of survival through self-transformation. Yet for the time being, Uncle Sam remains the world's dominant relative. Just. There's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip, a proverb that has held true for more than two millennia. Several decades ago, it was inevitable that Japan would become Asia's leading economic powerhouse. Now it is China's turn. Similarly, the end of capitalism has been predicted since we first recognized its existence. Generally agreed to have been around 500 years ago, yet still it persists in its latest adaptive form. This was the economic engine that lifted much of the world out of poverty, at the same time exploiting most those who benefited from it least. According to the biblical adage attributed to Christ, the poor are always with us. So it seems are the filthy rich, and contrary to polls, slanted statistics. Practitioners of ingenious econometrics and other magi of our age, the worldwide gap between these two strata of society has remained much the same since antiquity. In 1909, the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto showed that through any human society in any age or country, 20% of the population owned 80% of the wealth, and 20% of that 20% owned 80% of that 80%, and so on. 
According to this 80-20 power law, the top 0.6% of the population should own 38.4% of the wealth. According to the January 2019 OECD figures, the top 0.6% of the world's population owns 39.3% of the world's wealth. The claim that the world is going to the dogs has a similar lengthy pedigree, being one of the earliest secular inscriptions deciphered from ancient Egypt. Another unpalatable fact was revealed in the 19th century by the English economist Reverend Robert Malthus, who reluctantly proved that the world's population would inevitably outgrow its ability to feed itself. Yet, in the words of Charles Dickens's character, Mr. Micawber, something will turn up. And so it did. The world learned how to produce more food. No little part in this transformation was played by the great German chemist Fritz Haber, who discovered how to synthesize ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen gas, thus revolutionizing the manufacture of fertilizers. However, Haber eluded canonization by also creating poisonous gas for use in warfare. Humanity's transformations have almost invariably emerged from left field. Accidents such as Fleming's discovery of penicillin, a pig-headed refusal to accept the facts, according to Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind, as well as the genius flash of inspiration, as in Archimedes' discovery of the buoyancy principle, Eureka, and many such discoveries have all played their part in changing the course of history in utterly unforeseen fashion. The latest of these life changes is perhaps the computer-driven IT revolution. Just thirty years ago, people walking down the street, talking animatedly to themselves, or believing it necessary to transmit their every passing thought for approval or disapproval by a host of imaginary friends, were liable to be escorted into care for their own good. Now they are simply part of social media. The latest candidate for the end, the catastrophe that will destroy our planet, is global warming. In my youth, it was a nuclear holocaust. Few of us believed we would live until we were sixty. There has always been the argument: ah, but this time it's different. This expression of wish fulfillment has most frequently been employed by optimistic, well-informed financiers during a prolonged bull market, when faced by naysayers predicting a crash that will destroy the world economy. Democracy is a recipe for short-termism, and such governments are unlikely to implement collectively all the drastic solutions required to reverse global warming. Alternatives for the survival of our species, such as emigration to Mars, are more a matter between Elon Musk and his psychiatrist. Miracles such as cold fusion and massive, powerful carbon dioxide absorbance have long been awaited. The saving miracle, if it arrives, will be the biblical cloud. No bigger than a hand span, which may even now be materializing just beyond the left field of our vision. As for future great empires and the world's geopolitical picture, this may not be as harsh as the continuous warfare envisaged by George Orwell in his dystopian novel 1984, but it is more than possible that he accurately foresaw its empires and their competing spheres of influence. He posited three. Oceania, including the Americas, Australia, Southern Africa, and Britain; Eurasia, stretching from Portugal to the Pacific, and East Asia, a westward expanded China. Is it inevitable that one of these will emerge as the dominant power? A knowledgeable friend of mine once gave me a tip for a two-horse race: the favourite had no chance of winning. Place all you can on the other horse.
During the race, the favourite fell at one of the early fences, leaving the field clear for our horse. Alas, the weight of expectation on this horse evidently proved too great, for it keeled over with a heart attack within sight of the finishing line. Such is, and always has been, the state of predictions concerning the future of the world and the great empires that will form its history. This concludes Empire by Paul Strathern.